Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. That was the Earthquake song by The Little Girls, a kind of a novelty song of the alternative genre from 1981. It got a lot of airplay on early K-Rock, K-R-O-Q, in Los Angeles, which later became a very influential station in the alternative scene, but back in the early 80s was kind of a small station nobody cared about. You guys know why I played that song. We had two earthquakes in Las Vegas. Well, actually four earthquakes, but uh, two earthquakes of uh, real size that uh, affected the Las Vegas area. One right before the World Series and one during the World Series. That's going to be one of the many topics of this crazy week. It's only been five and a half days since I last did this show. It feels like it's been a month because of how much stuff that has happened. There there were so many stories that the poker world has talked about in that time, and so many things have changed in that time, that I feel like the last show was already obsolete, and I finished it on the morning of July 2nd, and right now it's the afternoon of July 7th. I was actually thinking that in this World Series... It was fairly low on news and drama, and definitely the last week has taken care of that. So we have a lot to talk about, and I wanted to make sure to get this show in on the last free day I have, because after this, I'm going to be playing the World Series every day until it's over, at least over for me, and then I'm going to leave. So this is the last show you're going to hear at the Rio for sure. We have a free roll tonight, which starts in one minute, but uh, don't panic because you have 25 minutes to get in for late registration. It's a $60 free roll. Maybe a more convenient free roll this time for you guys to play because uh, a lot of you are in a time zone where normally it's tough for you to do it unless you stay up very, very, very late. But this one starts at 5.15 Pacific Time which is in one minute, 8.15 Eastern, and even those in Europe. It's 1.15 a.m. in London, which is not the most convenient time, but it's better than the usual time for the free roll, which is after 5 a.m. over there. In fact, someone in Europe was happy that we're starting the show at this time, because he's still up, but he's not up usually when we start it in the middle of the night there. Anyway, $60 free roll. You have until 5.40 to get in. First place is $30, second place is $18, third place is $12. The donations this week came from Rayo88, $25, Willie McFML gave $25, and Franklin, who used to be known as Quincy, but he, his real name's Franklin. And he gave $10 on behalf of the SPCA and kindness to all animals. So Franklin likes animals so much and... Uh, Hates cruelty to them. He's actually uh, 
dedicating this $10 that he's giving away to the SPCA and kindness to animals. So first, second, and third, 30, 18, and 12 this week, I will pay you by bank transfer, by Bitcoin, or other methods, like Zelle, like a service that's been around for almost 20 years that you can transfer money and pay for things online you might be able to think of. You can text me at 775-372-8355 to collect the money, or it's better if you PM me on the forum. That's Dan, Dan Space Druff, not Dan Druff, but Dan Space Druff on the forum, or email me dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. I, I prefer to be PM'd on the forum, actually. And you need a registered forum account in order to qualify for the free roll. In fact, you need to take a look at the free roll rules to understand if you qualify for the free money. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. It takes place on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. It's a little tab there. Just click on it. It's very self-explanatory. You need a separate account from the forum on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It also needs to be validated. So if you're creating the account right now, you're not going to be able to play. If you want to be validated on there, you can message Belly Buster on the forum. That's Belly Space Buster. Or you can message me if he's non-responsive, but try to get it done with him. Uh, if you want to call the show this week, it's the same numbers as always. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. Mount Charleston is a mountain near Las Vegas, about 45 minutes away by car. If you want to get away from the desert while you're at the World Series of Poker, it's a good place to go. I have a little cabin near the top of the mountain that has an old 70s rotary phone up there. And uh, I did take a picture of it, which I'm going to be posting shortly, a picture of the phone and me in the cabin. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. It's a separate line into the show. If you want to call to listen to the show, you can do that. We have a call to listen line which you can just call up and listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone. does not re- require a data plan. It does not use any of your data. It does not need a computer or the internet. None of this stuff. And it never buffers. It never freezes, buffers, makes you wait. No, it just runs. It just works. And any phone that has ever been able to dial and can still dial can call it. That phone number is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736, the call to listen line. You can also use the alternate call to listen line at 641-741-1095, 641-741-1095. All these phone numbers can be found on the radio page, the radio tab on pokerfraudalert.com. By the way, I think on the call to listen light right on the call to listen line right now. We have a listener who doesn't usually listen, and that's actually my ex-girlfriend, Miri. Not my current girlfriend, but my ex-girlfriend who was with me for most of the 2000s. Not the 2010s. We weren't together in the 2010s, but most of the 2000s. And uh, she's listening right now. Though she said that uh, she's not going to listen for most of the show. She'll turn it on at the beginning and probably turn it off some point soon. <laughs> that's a ringing endorsement. I guess she got enough of me talking to her in the 2000s. I didn't tell her to listen, though. She's doing this on her own. You can text the show before, during, or after the show. Anytime. Just anytime. 24-7, you want to text me or the show, you can do so at the main phone number, 
800-848-8355. Be careful if there's something you don't want me to read over the air that you mention at the beginning of your text, unless it's obvious, because otherwise I might read it, and you might be embarrassed, or something you may not want over the air might be read. Uh, I got a text here. Let's see. From the 507, hope to see you on the ESPN feature table. Thank you. Uh, someone asked, if you pay... I have a question. They put out a stack for Helmuth at the feature table, but he's not there yet. I know Late Reg ended at the start of day two, so how does that work? The way it works is that Helmuth gets favoritism. That's how it works. <laughs> That's the answer. Certain players at the World Series get extreme favoritism, and they will do things for them that they would not do for me or for you. So that's that's how it goes. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the simple way of putting it. So Helmuth was traveling, and he decided not to register day one. He decided to extend his trip as long as he could. And I guess when they put him at the feature table, he wasn't there yet. And he probably called in and said to Jack Effel, hey, can you put me there? And I'll be there a little bit late. Okay, no problem, Phil. And they pre-register him. Something they'd never do for anyone who's not a big-name player. So I have to imagine what happened. The person's asking if you pay by credit card first. Can you automatically put yourself in the event? Blah, blah, blah. I don't even know if I haven't paid by credit card. But I guarantee this one was favoritism. That's how it worked. In fact, this discussion came up yesterday when I was playing the main event about favoritism and how certain people are banned from the World Series of Poker and certain other people are not banned because of favoritism in that if you're friends with someone who is influential, you can get unbanned. And if you are disliked by people who are influential, then it hinders your ability to get unbanned. Now, people who don't like you can't just get you banned from the World Series. But if you're already banned and you want to come back and there's certain people who don't like you, you're not coming back. And on the flip side, if you're friends with people who are influential and you get banned, then there's a good chance you're coming back. Okay, I don't want to extend the intro too long here. I, I, I'm trying to get through the intro faster these days, and you guys distract me. It was a good question, though. I appreciate the question in text. You can text anything. 775-372-8355 is the number. You can chat in the chat room if you're listening live. And... If we're not live, then don't bother. There will be nobody there. You need a flash-enabled device. Don't bother on your iPhone or iPad. It will not work. You can mainly chat with the other people there. And I may have a surprise for you guys tonight if I seem a bit distracted. I'm trying to get someone on the show tonight that you probably wouldn't be expecting to be on the show. But I'm not sure, so I don't want to promise anything or jinx it yet. But I'm going to try. Ah, jeez. Skype is reinstalling. That's great. I must have clicked something wrong. <laughs> well, I won't be able to get anyone on here until Skype is done reinstalling. I hope it doesn't restart my computer. It'll kick me off. The good news is I don't think we're going to have the usual disconnect during the show that we have when uh, we're doing this from the Rio, where I lose internet, and then I have to re-sign up for the internet in the middle, which is impossible to prevent. But I believe I signed up for the internet this morning, so we'll be okay. Here's the agenda this week, and then we will get going. The show is almost going to be entirely World Series coverage. We've had some gambling-heavy shows lately, that is, shows that are about 
gambling topics and not about poker, but not this week. This week's going to be all about the week six of the World Series of Poker, mainly the main event. The good news is even if you're not a poker fan, there's a lot of humorous and interesting stories that took place here that don't require any poker fandom or poker knowledge. So this isn't just boring poker stuff of who has a bigger stack and who's doing well. And you know, I, I don't usually cover that stuff, and that's not going to be what we cover this week. It's going to be interesting and weird stories, of which we have many. Before we get to the main event stuff, the first topic will be about a Limit Hold'em satellite where I had a heartbreak. And I'll explain what happened there. A mistake I made, kind of a common mistake, but it was a mistake nonetheless that started a chain reaction that busted me. And then for the fourth year in a row, I was the chip leader, chip leader or second chip leader. This year I was was the chip leader at the 10K Limit Hold'em event and failed to cash. Not good stories, but I've got to tell them. The two biggest earthquakes to hit Vegas in quite some time struck on July 4th and 5th, which both affected the main event, one more than the other, and one earthquake was bigger than the other. I will tell you my experience with the earthquakes. I had personal experience with both, being here in Vegas, and I'll tell you about how it affected the World Series of Poker. I have a well-above-average stack after two days of the main event. Right now, the average stack is about 180K. I have 300K after two days of the main event. We're still not close to cashing, but we're on the way. After the full day three, we might be in the money, might not be. It'll be very close. So I'll talk about my main event so far and my impression of it. And even about a player who played next, or not next to me, played at my table, who initially disliked me and bashed me on Twitter, but by the end of the event had a very different opinion. There were two players disqualified from the main event, I believe within the first hour of day 1C, not the one I played. I played 1B. Georgie Bellinen was disqualified, banned, and jailed after jokingly grabbing another person's stack after winning a hand. And another player named uh, Ken Strauss pulled down his pants, showed his penis, and threw a shoe at the table, actually hitting a player, when he was all in blind with Queen-3 offsuit. (laughs) This, This really happened. And then... He went on to do something similar at another hotel. So we're going to talk about Ken Strauss. We're going to talk about Georgie Bellinen. Andy Frankenberger did not get disqualified, but the earthquake ripped him off. Yes, an earthquake ripped him off. I'm not misspeaking here. He claims that he had pocket sixes and would have doubled up with a set during a hand in which the earthquake came and everybody evacuated and the hand was canceled. So we'll talk about that a little bit. What a heartbreak for him, if that's true. Luke Vrabel, who we had on the show two years ago after he was banned from all Caesars properties, and he's still banned, 
has started a series of popular, well-liked tweets where he mocks those making World Series of Poker bust tweets from the main event, those who uh, talk about their bust and usually the hand that they busted on. Instead of saying, good game, get him next year, encouraging stuff. No, instead he says something derogatory and says, hit the showers, and puts a little emoji of a shower. These have gotten very popular, so much that people have been asking to be showered themselves when they bust the main event. However, Twitter did not find this very humorous. He's been banned from Twitter. However, the showering continues. I will tell you about Luke Vrabel and his showering and what I think of the whole thing. A horrible ruling at the World Series of Poker forced a player to be raising for half his stack when he did not want to be. Imagine that, the main event, that you're forced to do a half-stack raise at the beginning of the event when you just wanted to call. I'll tell you about this terrible ruling and how it looks like the guy had no recourse. The World Series of Poker has probably fallen short. I haven't checked today, but uh, I believe it's fallen short of setting the all-time record for the main event number of entrants set in 2006 when Jamie Gold won, but it came in second. Before today, when there's going to be some late registrants, there were over 8,200 entrants, and we did have a record for the most ever playing on one day for day 1C. We'll talk a bit about the numbers and why the numbers are so high this year when poker is declining and aging. Speaking of aging, when you see a woman at your table over 70, let's even be more specific, a white woman at your table over 70 who you don't know to be a good poker player. I'm not saying you have like Linda Johnson there or someone like that. I mean an unknown in poker who's a 71-year-old woman. You're probably not very scared of her. You'd probably much rather have her at your table than some young guy or uh, someone else who kind of looks scary, who has this stereotype of someone who's going to be good. The 71-year-old female, the 71-year-old unknown white female at the World Series is very likely to be one of the soft spots of the table. Let's be honest here. But not at a particular event, because 71-year-old Sue Faber won a World Series of Poker bracelet, not in the seniors, not in the ladies' event, but in a World Series of Poker open event that anyone was allowed to play. Talk a bit about that surprising victory. Liv Bory was busted out of the main event by her boyfriend, Igor Kurganov, and she tweeted a little clip about that afterwards that's gotten very popular on Twitter. I'll talk a bit about that and give you an opinion about it that you may or may not find surprising. Final World Series topic. I hate to end it on a bad note, but uh, a terminal cancer patient played the main event. A, A player named Kevin Rax. A young guy, I think he's like 31 or something who has terminal cancer and is not going to live until August 1st, most likely. Of this year, I'm talking about. This guy is almost done. And he played the main event as a way to bring attention to the disease. So how did he do? We'll talk about how Kevin Rax did, why he did it, and 
what he had to say about it afterwards on Twitter. I even invited him to come on the show, but uh, understandably, uh, he's not in the best condition right now. Someone who's not expected to live till August 1st is, uh, I didn't think was that likely to do a radio interview, but he has uh, been corresponding with me on Twitter. Finally, the only topic we're going to do this week, unless something comes up that's not about the World Series, is about earthquakes. A lot of people don't understand a lot about earthquakes. A lot of people think, for example, that a 5.0 and 6.0 earthquake are fairly similar, but one's a bit bigger than the other. Not true. They're very, very different. A lot of people think that the last two earthquakes were Los Angeles earthquakes. They weren't. A lot of people do not realize that this broke a long streak of no major earthquakes in Southern California or Nevada. A lot of things people don't know about earthquakes. Specifically, we're going to talk about earthquakes in Southern California and Southern Nevada. I lived most of my life in Southern California, some in Southern Nevada, very briefly in another state, but uh, I was very young. So I got to know a lot about earthquakes and got used to them. And some people here for the World Series felt one for the first time, people from other parts of the country or world where they do not have earthquakes. That'll be our final topic. 11 a.m. tomorrow, I'll be playing the main event day three, so you can check Dandruff Poker, at Dandruff Poker on Twitter, for updates. Don't check my main Twitter. I don't tweet very much on there with chip updates, but at Dandruff Poker, I'll be tweeting anything that's uh, significant, where I'm... uh, going up, going down. Sometimes if nothing happens for a while, I'll tweet that too so people know what's going on. Uh, if something interesting happens at the table that's unrelated to me, I'll, I'll mention it. I, I try to make you feel like you're there, even though nobody has a piece of me in the main event. I have 100% of myself. I know there's some people with interest, and I appreciate that. So let's get going. Uh, let me see if I can get this person that uh, I was thinking we might be able to get on. I'm getting texts from people. These are, these are not uh, radio texts. I'm actually getting texts from people on my regular phone. I mean, personally. They're telling me they've quit the show already. They, they, they've, they stopped listening already in the intro. That's not good. People I know personally have given up already and stopped listening before I even got going. That's a great record. All righty. Let's see, I got some more texts here before we get going. Do you wear regular sunglasses or poker glasses? I actually wear prescription sunglasses. So I've had the same sunglasses for many years that I wear when playing poker. And also that I wear when driving during the day. It's all the same sunglasses. Someone sent me a screenshot. I don't understand what they're trying to send me. Oh, I see. Um, Hello from Australia, Druff. Tiger Piper here. Crushed the main event. One interesting poker fact. Rake down here live is 10% up to 15. Beatable? I think not. Australian dollars about 70 cents US. Yeah, I never liked those 10% up to 
such and such, I, I would not play a game like that. 10% up to 15, that means the rake is uh, more than $10 on big pots, and that's pretty brutal. Not as bad as cruise ship rake, where it can be up to $25. 10% up to 25 that's horrendous. Like, people talk about, all oh, the games on cruise ships are so great, the players are so bad. True, but you don't understand how terrible the rake really is. It's just awful. It's not worth it. I don't think those games are beatable with that type of rake, even as bad as players on cruise ships are. And I'll, I'll be honest, the softest no-limit cash game I've played in my life has been on a cruise ship. I played a seven-handed game on a cruise ship where five opponents were horrendous, and one was kind of... He knew what he was doing, but he still wasn't good. But there was like one guy with a clue, but even he wasn't good. He was kind of mediocre. And then the other five were terrible, like among the worst I've played with. Like, to give you an example of how bad, like, they'll have like a tiny bit of chips left on the turn. I mean like a tiny bit. And they'll have called the flop. And then I'll bet the turn... And, and they'll fold for like almost like a few bucks left. It was crazy. It's not like folding the river when you have six high and you go, okay, might as well just save a few bucks. No, this is on, on the turn where they, they were okay calling the flop. So they had enough to call the flop and then they, they'll have like $3 left and fold the turn. I, I, like, I can't believe it. Uh, just dumb things like that. And they never bet their hands unless they've got something huge. So then you you always know when to let go and when and when to keep betting. The only, the only challenge with players like that is value betting them. Sometimes you're going to bet all the way down and they'll show you a better hand. But aside from that, these were just super easy players to play. And I busted all six of them. And I did win. But I looked and I noticed that they actually raked more than I won. I busted six players. I was the only one left standing, and I was actually the second biggest winner. The biggest winner was the cruise ship. So imagine how I would have done if I didn't bust all six players. <laughs> that showed you how horrendous the rake was. So that, that was the last time I played. I said, screw it. All right, let's get going here. Um, I'll start up with... My topic, let's see if we can reach Trader Ruski. kind of disappointed we didn't uh, get the other person. Maybe it'll still pop up. Let's see if I can find Trader Ruski at least. He's always reliable. He's, he's always here. Not always, but usually. We start at weird times. We start on the fly. He's, he's just there. You know, he's available. It's good. We'll get him on the road. We'll get him walking the dog. We'll get him drinking tea. We'll get him in Vegas. We'll get him at home. We'll get him at conferences, whatever. He comes on. Okay, see, he says he's ready. See, he's there. I love it. What's happening, Druff? Hi, Trader Ruski. Welcome to the show. And you'll get me in Pismo Beach, where I am now. Oh, really? Okay, you're in Pismo Beach. Very nice. All right, I think we are going to have a, a surprise guest on tonight, but it won't be right now. They just texted me back. So, uh, Trader Ruski, though, you're not a surprise guest. People expect you now, and uh, happy to have you here with me. Thanks for having me. And I don't think I don't think there's going to be tea tonight. I don't think you're going to fall asleep. The show's not going to be that late. Yeah, no, I think we'll get there before uh, the tea starts. Let's move on here. We're going to talk about my first topic is the World Series of Poker limit events. 
a satellite and then the 10K event that I tried to play at the beginning of July. Uh, I have not had any luck yet in the Limit Hold'em satellite. I've come close a few times, but it just seems like when I get towards the end, something happens. Now, you have to understand the this, this structure in the Limit Hold'em satellite is incredibly bad, like most satellites are. So there's a lot of luck in this, and you may ask, well, then why do you play? Because there's a lot of fish who play. There's like a lot of awful players that are there at the beginning, and even ones that make it past the beginning to where there's value in it. Uh, but you still have to get cards, and the blinds get big really, really fast. And at one point, like, everybody's short, and it's a matter of who hits hands. Why? Because it's not supposed to be a three-day event. It's supposed to be uh, an event that takes a matter of hours so people can go on and play the 10K limit hold'em the next day at 3 p.m. and be able to have time to sleep in between. It starts at 8 p.m., and the next day's event is 3 p.m., so you, you can imagine that it's something that's not meant to take a long time. I normally would not talk about the satellite here, but something happened there which was pretty heartbreaking. So first I got a great starting table where just the, some of the worst players were, were at that table, and I, I couldn't capitalize on it, though. I wasn't able to do very much with it. In fact, I was never much about above starting stack, sometimes below starting stack, and I was kind of battling with that, but I wasn't busting. So I was surviving, then I got moved around tables, and people were, were busting, and I still was short, and in fact, at one point, I was very short with uh, 30-something players left of the 135 that entered. Uh, 14 spots were going to get paid, and the way these satellites work, it's different than a regular poker tournament. There's no first place. The top 13 all get the same amount of money, and then 14th place gets the remainder. So the top 13 get paid $10,100. The 14th place gets 3700 Everybody else gets zero. It was $1,100 to buy in. So it's very, very important, of course, to make it to the top 14 and especially the top 13, but not necessarily important to finish with the very best stack. So 30-something players left, getting kind of close, but I was very short-stacked. And also at the very, very end, it slows down because people are terrified to play a hand because they don't want to be the one that goes out you know, 15th, 16th, whatever, right, you know, right before the money. There it's especially devastating to be the bubble. I knew I was going to have to go in because I was about to be blinded off. Uh, I then tripled up twice. Once where a guy raised under the gun and I had ace three of uh, ace three suited, which normally that's not a good spot. But number one, I was going to be pretty much virtually all in on the blind uh, anyway. So I was just waiting for a reasonable hand to go in. So ace three was great even with the under the gun raised uh, ahead of me. And two, this guy was pretty loose, so I thought there was a chance Ace-3 was the best hand. The funny thing was I got a, another caller, too, all in pre, and Ace-3 actually was the best hand, and it did hold up. It was the best hand pre and post-flop. So I, I tripled up there. Then a few hands later, I got a pocket queens and uh, almost tripled up. Another guy came in who was a little bit less than me, but my flopped a set. Not only did I triple up, but it wasn't even a sweat, and I was up to about average stack with 30 people left there i said all right now i've got a real shot at this 10k only about half the field is going to get paid here and i have average stack great so i got moved around tables again and with 28 left that's when the devastating thing happened the blinds had just gone up from uh 1000 2000 to 1503 and i had about 39k and this is limit hold'em but still with these huge blinds you can imagine how uh any hand you play really eats your stack if you lose. So it folded to me late position. I had sixes. And 
at this point in the satellite, you got to be aware of who your opponents are and where they are on the table. And in the small blind was a guy, and I, I know who he is. He's a, a regular limit hold'em player. He had a huge stack to where he probably could just fold to the top money. So he really didn't want to play hands. And I knew that. Only only someone who isn't aware would play hands there. So this guy was in the small blind, and uh, a decent-sized stack was in the big blind. And people were really avoiding playing hands that could knock down their stack because everyone's kind of playing the waiting game at that point to hope others fall off. So I raised to the sixes in late position, and then I was given the bad news that my raise was not a raise. Why? Because I thought the blinds were uh, 1,000, 2,000. I made my raise 4,000, which is what you have to do with limit hold'em. Turned out I had to make it 6,000. And the problem is, because 4,000 is not halfway between 3,000 and 6,000, it's considered a call. So not only did I miss that the blinds went up, but I also had the misfortune of the blinds going up to where the raise I thought it was wasn't more than half. Because if, if you know, let, let's say the blinds had gone up to uh, uh, you know, something 2,500, you know, 1,500 or whatever, then this still would have been considered a raise if I threw out 4,000. Because it would have been more than halfway between call and raise. So then I would have been fine. Then they just would have forced me to put in the rest. It would have been fine. Here, they forced me to take back 1,000 to make it a call. And that let people in, including the small blind who never would have played. Even if he had aces, he wouldn't have played. And I can't be sure about aces, but there's a good chance even aces he would have folded there. So he limped in. With, for half a bet, he figured, why not? Flop was 5-5-3, five, five, and I had a feeling, oh, no, that's exactly what I didn't want. Of course, I had to bet it. Of the three opponents that came in only because I limped accidentally, two of them folded, but that small blind called, and yes, it turned out he had me, especially when the three hit the turn. And uh, I lost the hand. Now, I was still holding enough chips to where I wasn't gone. I I lost a 12K on that hand, which wasn't that much, but it was still uh, almost a third of my stack. And then I just lost every hand after that. And I'm sure you guys have had the situation too where you lose a hand and you say, oh no, not only did I lose the hand, but it changed all the hands after that. To where if I hadn't lost this hand, the cards would have been different, which they would have been, and maybe I would not have had the bad luck that followed it. And that's exactly what happened. I lost every hand after that including getting uh, seven outed all in on the flop. And I uh, lost on the turn as my bust-out hand, which had I won, I would have been back to the same 39 I had when all this started. So I was out, and I was very frustrated. Had I busted just because I ran bad there, then fine. Then that's the way I knew that the structure is bad there and that you have to be able to survive you can't wait around forever. The blinds will eat you, and I didn't have enough chips. I'd have to play some hands, and if I lost them, I'd probably be screwed. But uh, to lose this way, because limping when I meant to raise, because I didn't see the blinds went up, caused me to lose that hand instead of win it. And I would have won it for sure, because the small blind would have folded, and everyone else would have either folded pre or folded post, because I know, because the ones that came in, everyone except that guy folded the flop. So... Instead of winning a small pot there, I lost a pot and then lost every hand after that, which would not have dealt, been dealt to me had we not played that hand that way. It was like the butterfly effect. So it sucks. 
So I was very frustrated. It was like, uh, I, it's not like I was a lock to win it. So it's not like I threw away 10K there, but I, I kind of felt like my equity there was, was uh, maybe close to 5K. Maybe a little bit less, but uh, somewhere around there was my equity at that point of the tournament, given the stack I had prior to that hand. That was really frustrating. But I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to get this out of my mind, and I will not think about this as I play the 10K limit hold'em the following day. Which I played. Last three years in that event, I have been the first or second chip leader at some point during day one. And when I say some point, I don't mean like after the first hand. I, I don't consider that a chip leader. I mean, when you've gone you know, at least a few hours into it. At least four hours into it. I, I Usually, I've, the last three years, I've actually been the chip leader around six or seven hours into it. First or second chip leader. This year, I was the chip leader four hours into it. It's happening again. I said, okay, it's got to be different this year. It can't happen four years in a row, can it? Well, yes, it did. First, uh, I stagnated from there. I just uh, was trading wins and losses, so people easily passed me. So by the time we got to level nine, I I actually had a little bit less than I did at the end of level four. And then level nine, I was just brutalized. I lost all seven hands I played in level nine, and within 45 minutes, I went from an above-average stack to gun. And I wasn't tilting. I, I got seven good quality hands to play in the position that I was dealt them, and I lost all seven. So that's how it went. So another big chip stack heartbreak at the 10K limit hold'em four years in a row. I, I keep thinking this can't happen every year, and and then it happens again. Four years in a row. It's it's unbelievable. And it's not like I'm, I got to the bubble or I got deep into day two. No, I, I was busted day one. And that's the amazing thing here is that of these four years, none of them were close either. Two of them I busted day one. Two of them I barely made day two and busted. So what a freaking fail this has been. Also, I'm now on an unfortunate streak in Limit Hold'em where I've lost ten straight Limit Hold'em tournaments. Ten straight. And that includes the 1500, that includes the 3K6 max, which hopefully I won't be playing this year because that is uh, tomorrow, and uh, I'd have to be busting the main event uh, a few hours in for me to play that, and I'm hoping I get to miss this one. But I've lost 10 in a row. Last one I cashed was 2016, where again I kind of had a meltdown, not even from tilting, but just from... Good hand after good hand losing. That was uh, in 2016 at the 1500 where I was chip leader with 42 left and went out 40th. That I guess that started a curse where I've lost 10 limit hold'em tournaments in a row. Not including the satellites either. If you include the satellites, it's 13 in a row. Ugh, terrible. Uh, it's just bad luck, really. That's really what's happening here. In the same time period, I've actually done fine in No Limit, and I've done fine in Omaha, just not Limit Hold'em, where you'd expect me to be doing the best. That's how tournaments are. You never know. Okay, enough about that. Let's move on to talk about the main event. A lot of stories. A lot of stories for the main event. I was scheduled to play the main event 
day one on the 4th of July, day 1B. A few reasons for this. Uh, first of all, the 4th of July was the 14th anniversary of when I won my bracelet, so I have good memories of playing poker on the 4th of July. Now, to be honest, I've played poker on the 4th of July, including the main event in the past, and it didn't go well, so it's not like the 4th of July is magical for me, but that one year it was. Uh, but the main reason I chose the 4th of July is because it's day 1B. There's three starting days into the World Series of Poker. Day 1A, main event that is. Day 1A, 1B, and 1C. And you can choose any of them. They are separate day ones where just the field is split up, and it's just because they can't accommodate everybody who's going to play it in one day. I choose 1B because I think it's the best by far. Why is it the best? Well, the scheduling's the best. You play day 1B, then you get a day break, then you play day 2AB, meaning the A and B flights combine into day 2 of who's remaining, and then you get a day break, and then you play day 3, 4, 5, 6, etc., however long you last, every day without a break. And you're with the entire field at that point. This is better especially than 1C, that you play 1C, get a break, then you play 2C, and then you've got to come right back the next day to play 3. And then if you make it deep, you've got day after day after day of playing, and you get burnt out. Here here I've get I've got two days in between, one following day one, one following day two, and these breaks are nice. You get to sleep extra if you're tired. You get to clear your mind. You don't feel burnt out on poker. You don't feel burnt out on tournaments, it, especially for someone like me who's not used to playing tournament after tournament after tournament. Uh, you, you get the breaks. Uh, and yes, once you get to day three, there's no more breaks, but at least then you come in fresh. You come in fresh to day three, and then you, you tough it out the rest of the way. And, and then you know, once you're at day four, you're in the money anyway, and you're feeling better, and, and you're feeling excited, so you don't need the breaks as much. 1A, you also get breaks, but the first time there's a two-day break. You play 1A, then there's a two-day break before you play 2A or 2AB. So I don't like that either. I think that's too long. Who wants to wait two days in between? Let's say you have a short stack. Do you really want to sit there for two days to come back and play off that short stack? It's it's just too much time. The one day is perfect. So the 1B, I feel, has the best schedule. And there's one other problem with 1C in that it's a zoo. For some reason, everyone loves 1C. 1C actually gets more players than 1A and B combined. It's been this way for a while. I don't know why people love the last day. I've never been able to figure out. And I've asked people, why do you like it? And I can't get a straight answer. Oh, I just like it. Oh, that's just my favorite day to play, people say. I also believe that 1C is more pro-heavy. I can't prove that. And, of course, with with it being the bigger day anyway... It is going to have a larger number of pros just because there's more entrants on that day, but that doesn't mean percentage of pros is higher. So it's a little hard to figure out, but I'm telling you, so many pros that I know and have known like to play that last day. And I thought, well, that seems like a day I want to avoid then, <laughs> especially because you also get them on day two. Anyone who plays 1C, I don't see until we make it to day three. They're playing right now as I'm doing this show. Anyone who's in 1C is either playing right now or busted. They did not play with me yesterday. They did not play with me on the 4th. So I also also think it might be a tougher field. There's some other things that can happen with 1C. It can sell out, which they warned could happen this year. It didn't, but they warned it was possible. 
and it can end up ten-handed. Usually you play this nine-handed, and they warned that 1C could end up ten-handed because they said they were going to do that rather than sell out. So they'll first go to ten-handed if, if they're getting close to selling out, and then if uh, they run out of tables after going ten-handed, they're just going to have to give up and sell out. So who wants all that? Then you go to the breaks, and the bathroom's impossible to get into because there's so many people, and the hallways are so jammed, and the restaurants are so jammed. I mean, there, there's so many reasons to avoid the gigantic crowds you're going to get on day 1C and 2C. And yeah, I, I had a big crowd on 1B. I'm not saying it was easy to get to the bathroom or easy to walk through the hallway, but it was easier than the sea flight. So I don't know why people put themselves through the torture that is the sea flight. And if you play the sea flight, I would rethink why you're doing it. There is only one good reason I can think for playing the sea flight, and that is you, you have one day less in Vegas if you have to get back to work. So if you don't want to take off as many days from work, this way uh, you can show up for 1C, and then uh, it's one fewer day. But if you only make it to days 1 and 2, you're there for the same amount of time anyways if you played 1B. You're only there one fewer day if you make 3 or beyond. So how much are you really gaining here? But other than that, ask yourself why you're playing C. And maybe you'll change your mind. So anyway, getting back to what happened on the day I was going to play 1B. I had a messed up sleep schedule by that point, as often happens in Vegas. It gets really just crazy. And I knew that it was going to be hard to get to sleep the night before the main event because my sleeping schedule was so off. And even to wake up to go play at 12... My sleep schedule was just still way, way off. So I knew I was going to, like, I wasn't going to get eight hours of sleep because I wouldn't be able to fall asleep at, uh, like, 3 a.m. There's no way. Sounds weird, like, how can you not fall asleep at 3 a.m.? But I, with the way my schedule was, I could not fall asleep at 3 a.m. So I had slept a lot the day before, so I figured, okay, I'll have to get less sleep on this day, go to sleep when I can, and then... Since I'm in the Rio, I'll just wake up at the last minute and come down. I'll wake up 11.30 and come down to play it at 12. I had already showered the night before. I got everything all ready. Just, just needed to basically wake up, brush my teeth, uh, get everything together, get dressed, and go down. And it takes about eight minutes to walk to the Amazon room from the hotel room here. So 11.30 would have been fine. But at 10.33 a.m., Something woke me up, 10.33 a.m. on uh, July 4th, about an hour before I was going to get up. Something woke me up. Yeah, that... It shook me out of bed. Not physically shook me out, but the bed was shaking. I woke up, and I knew it wasn't because the people next door to me were having rough sex. Being from California, I knew that. I knew what it was. And I was not happy because there's something I had never experienced in my life, and that was being in a tall building during an earthquake. Now, I'm not on the top floor or anywhere close to the top floor, but it's still a tall building. 
it was still moving in a way that I had never felt before. And I knew that. I knew in a building it feels different than a house, but I had thoughts running through my head. Number one, there's no way to get out of here. There's no way I can run out of the building in time, so I wouldn't even try. Um, I thought about the fact that the Rio was built 30 years ago and that I hoped that it was built to withstand earthquakes. Over time, they have been constructing buildings and houses to better withstand earthquakes. But in 1989, when this was built, I don't know. I don't know if this was uh, built with earthquakes in mind. That was kind of right on the border of when they started really doing that a lot. I hoped it was, and the way the building was moving, I was thinking it kind of felt like it was on rollers, which would be good. But I was still wondering, because I could tell it was a big earthquake, and I knew as soon as it was over, I would Google it to see how strong it was and where it was centered. I knew I'd be seeing something big. And I didn't, it was going on for what seemed like a long time. And I was wondering if at any point the building was going to come down or something and I'd be dead. And I knew whatever was going to happen, that was just going to be my fate. You were just stuck here. This is uh, one of these cases where you're really helpless. Not, at home, you can, you can make an attempt to get outside. And if you can, you should. And you know, I've had people say to me, oh, I don't want to run outside. There's trees. Believe me, you're much safer outside. As long as you can avoid falling debris on the way out. That's the only danger, really. But uh, if you can get out without falling debris hitting you, then once you're out there, you're much safer than in the house for several reasons. But that was not an option for me here. There was no way I could get from the floor I'm on outside in the time the shaking was occurring. And I definitely wouldn't want to take the elevator and the stairs. There's no way I could get down in time. So I had to just accept whatever's going to happen was going to happen. Uh, I stood in a doorway, which in a tall building probably isn't going to matter as much, but I did anyway. I was in my underwear, so I hoped nobody was going to walk by it and see, but I figured during an earthquake no one's going to just stroll down the hallway. Oddly enough, they, a maid was pushing a, a big cart down the hallway at the time it was happening. She wasn't even acting like anything was wrong. And at first I'm thinking, am I imagining this? Is this just like this big cart making the building shake? I'm like, no, it's, this is way too much shaking for that. So I quickly got that out of my head. Then the shaking stopped, and I Googled it, and it was a a 6.6, then downgraded to a 6.4 quake that was centered in Searles Valley, California. I had been to Searles Valley before. I took a picture of myself in Searles Valley in front of the sign. Probably one of the few people in the world who have a picture of themselves in front of the Searles Valley sign. It's a a tiny town that's... uh, really just for mining from what I've seen going through it. The population's got to be very small. It's northeast of Ridgecrest, California. It's kind of uh, between Ridgecrest and Death Valley, but closer to Ridgecrest. Most of you have never been there. Most of you have never heard of it prior to this earthquake. I took the picture in front of the sign just because we have a longtime member of the forum, Jay Searles, on the site. So I took the picture as a joke. That's the only reason I took that picture three and a half years ago. 
But I, I revived the picture and posted it on Twitter and pretended that I was on the scene already. And people were like, what? How are you doing that? And they, they thought I was there in Vegas for the World Series. How am I all the way in Searles Valley right on the scene after the earthquake? But it was a real picture. It just wasn't taken in 2019. Anyway, Searles Valley is about 125 miles directly by flight to Vegas. And that's what matters, not how long it is to drive there, because that's not a direct route. But if you go a direct route from Searles Valley, it would be 125 miles. And that's close, but not really close. So a big earthquake you're definitely feeling, especially in a large building. But it's not like epicenter right near Las Vegas. But what about Los Angeles? I'm sure you've heard about this being a Los Angeles quake, a Southern California quake. And especially if you're not from California, you might think this is really a quake that L.A. had that Vegas got to feel. No, it's actually closer to Vegas, the epicenter, than it is to L.A. The closest big city to the epicenter is Las Vegas. L.A. is the second closest big city to the epicenter. That's important to know. Now, it's not that much of a difference. I think directly from Searles Valley to L.A. is 150 miles, 160 miles, something like that. But it's closer to Vegas. So it was more of a Vegas quake by a little than it was an L.A. quake. And you should know that. Vegas especially felt it because Vegas is not that close to locations where quakes typically occur. So L.A. is much more likely to feel strong quakes. L.A. sometimes has quakes centered in that area. For example, the Northridge quake in 1994 was centered in Northridge, California, which is part of Los Angeles. So if it's centered right there, then it can be really devastating, as the Northridge quake was. The farther away you are from the quake, obviously, the less impact and damage that comes from it. So Vegas, there's not likely to be a quake centered in Vegas. So this is one of the closer ones that has been affecting Vegas, at least of the big quakes that we've had. Now, I knew after this quake, first of all, there's a problem because I knew I couldn't get back to sleep after this. There was like, if you think about everything that went through my head during the shaking... There was no way I could just go, okay, well, I'll go back to sleep for another hour. I couldn't. This woke me up. That was it. You know, when, you're, when you're sitting here during the shaking, wondering if the building's going to collapse, you're not uh, able to say, okay, well, cool, I'll just go to sleep now, especially for just an hour. If I had several hours to get back to sleep, I could probably calm myself down and get back to sleep. But I knew for an hour it was, it was done. I had to get up. Unfortunately, that affected me, and I, I felt tired throughout the day. And I, I took caffeine pills, and I, I just I felt tired, not not exhausted, but but by the final hour of the main event, I was very happy it was coming to an end because I was really starting to feel tired. Despite that, I actually played day one uh, pretty well. So it's not like I made big mistakes. Uh, I, I made one minor mistake at the very end where someone raised under the gun and I just called with nines and I had forgotten the fact that they were short stack or otherwise I would have put them in and that let somebody else in with fours who would have folded but instead came over the top of me and I laid it down 
and then they showed fours. And this is not the player who would have come over on me if I had raised. So they, uh, the way the whole thing went down, I won't bother to explain it. The person would have folded almost certainly had I re-raised the person, but I, I had forgotten they were a short stack, which I knew. But I had forgotten because I was so tired. It was like in the last uh, 10 minutes of the day. That was the only mistake I made. Uh, everything else I played pretty much the same I would have if I was not tired. Uh, I, I corrected the tiredness by sleeping a, a quite some time the following day when I had an off day. So for day two, I was fine. And I slept a lot today, which is part of the reason radio was late. But uh, I knew that an aftershock was coming. It almost always is when there's a quake that's over six that you're going to have an aftershock of over five. But five is significantly smaller than six, as we'll talk about later. Like a 5.0 is ten times smaller than a 6.0. So I wasn't worried about feeling the same thing. So I, I wasn't really thinking about another earthquake happening. I thought yeah, maybe an aftershock. In fact, an aftershock is almost certain. But I, I wasn't worried. And one did not come while I was playing, and at least nothing I could feel. But then at 4 a.m. following day one, now on July 5th, I was still up and I felt the aftershock. And I, I was like, oh, an aftershock. Like I wasn't even, I wasn't even concerned. I didn't even get out of bed. I was lying in bed just uh, texting with people. I, I didn't even bother to get out of bed because I, I knew it. I knew what it was. It was much less shaking than the first one. I knew it was an aftershock. I knew it was coming. And I said, okay, the building was fine from the 6.4. It's fine during the aftershock. And yeah, everything was fine. Didn't even concern me. I knew that there is a small but possible chance that a bigger one was to follow. At the time, it was said that this was a 9% chance of happening, that a bigger one would follow, and that this 6.4 was not really the main earthquake, that it was a foreshock of a bigger earthquake to come in the next week. And I remember reading that, seeing 9% and going, is that 9% going to hit? I kind of had a feeling it was going to, but I just go, no, it's 9%. It's, it's not going to happen. Well, at 10.30 a.m., and I was sleeping at this, not 10.30, sorry, uh, what, what time was it? Yeah, I'm forgetting what time it was now because I was sleeping, but I got, uh, um, or sorry, you know, I was, I was awake, I'm sorry, I was, uh, this, this was in the evening, I'm confusing the two things, I was in the room but not sleeping, it was in the evening on July 5th, another quake happened. And this one I could tell right away was not an aftershock. I mean, for the first few seconds, I thought, oh, an aftershock. I go, oh, wait a minute. This is much worse than an aftershock. In fact, this feels worse than the actual first quake. This might be the bigger one they're talking about that had the 9% chance of hitting. And the shaking was even worse. And I went to the doorway again. This time I wasn't sleeping. I was dressed. I was listening in the hallway and I heard people screaming. And... The shaking was pretty bad on that one. And then I got worried all over again. I thought, okay, well, this feels bigger. So, yeah, the Rio survived the first one without any problem, but this is a bigger one. Now what? So I had to go through the same concern again of, okay, is, is it going to be okay to withstand a, a quake of this size? Which I thought was probably of magnitude 7. 
I started getting texts from people from in L.A. telling me that they felt what they thought was probably a magnitude 7 quake. A lot of shaking there. I googled it, and sure enough, 7.1 centered it right around the same place. It was then downgraded to 6.9, and then upgraded back to 7.1. So it, it was a 7.1. And there was a warning that perhaps we might have an even bigger one in the coming week. But it was said that it was a 5% chance and that the chance would decrease over time. Basically, with every minute that would pass without another large quake, that the chance would slightly go down. So we're probably not going to have another larger one at this point from this series of quakes. It has now been about two full days since we had the 7.1, which is good. I don't want to have the Rio tested for an 8.1 see how that holds up. It is good. It's 125 miles away. It is good that the likely reoccurrence from this series of quakes would happen around over there. So bad for people living in Ridgecrest, which is very close to the epicenter, but good for everybody else who lives in bigger cities such as L.A. and Vegas. It's just if it's that far away, it's limited how much damage it can do. Even if it's a, a very large quake. Now, if it's an eight, that might be enough to really cause some damage and death in places like L.A. and Vegas. And that's that's my one concern. But we saw from the 7.1 in L.A. and Vegas, there was no appreciable damage or injury. Just a lot of rattled nerves. But, but since the second one took place in the evening of July 5th, what about day 1C? Well, people were in the middle of playing the main event. And chaos ensued. Because think about it. You're at the table at the World Series of Poker main event. And then shaking starts. And it feels like a pretty bad quake. You're not high up in the building. You're on the ground floor. In some cases, you're fairly close to the door to get outside. What do you do? Well, the natural instinct people have is to run. It's to get up and run outside. Which, if you can make it, is correct. It may be tough to make it between the crowds all doing the same thing and the distance you have to get outside, but it's not impossible to do like it is if you're up on a higher floor of the building. But that's what a lot of people did. That's what some dealers did. People said, screw, screw poker, I'm, I'm running out of here. So a lot of people stood up and ran for the door. Apparently there was a log jam in some places people couldn't get out, but uh, nobody got trampled or anything. It wasn't that disorderly, but people jumped up and tried to get out during this. Not everybody. Some people stayed, but some people didn't. And they decided to pause play until everything could get back to normal, until everybody could come back, until everybody could sit down, they could assess what happened. So they actually stopped play at the World Series of Poker main event until everybody returned to the table and enough time had passed to to where they felt that everyone had enough time to get back. One problem was that 
with everyone getting up and running out, there became the question about what to do about hands that were in progress. Is it fair to you if you folded your hand, possibly even in the middle of putting chips in the pot, is it fair to you to have folded your hand because you were escaping an earthquake? So the decision was made to back out all action that occurred during the earthquake hand unless everybody stayed at the table or unless everybody who had cards when it took place stayed at the table. That if people ran out who had yet to act, that the whole hand was considered dead and all action was backed out and returned, chips returned to the players. Which I think is fair, because this was, I don't know what the official rule book says about this, if anything, but uh, you have to say that if something happens where a reasonable person would abandon the table or abandon their hand, that's beyond their control, that affects everybody. I don't mean if you're, uh, if you have explosive diarrhea and you have to abandon your hand and run to the bathroom because you don't want to crap your pants, that's tough luck on you. I mean, if a natural disaster hits or even, let's say, somebody came in with a gun or something like that and people ran, something that affected the entire room where some people left, some didn't, provided it's a reasonable action to get up and leave, it makes sense why they would have uh, made that decision. Andy Frankenberger claims that this screwed him. He was in the middle of a hand with pocket sixes and had flopped a set on, uh, I think, a king six five board. And he was hoping he was going to get a lot of chips out of it. Unfortunately for Frankenberger, this happened during the earthquake. And even more unfortunately for him, his opponent had pocket fives. Can you imagine? So he tweeted, 8.48 p.m. July 5th, Earthquake bad beat. I call a raise in the small blind with sixes. Earthquake, I run out with one to 200 others. Eventually they open the doors. I go back to still see hand in progress. My hand is dead. A6-5 is the flop. I guess it was A6-5, not King 6 5 The guy had 5-5. Five, five. I would have doubled. And I guess it was confirmed with the hands that uh, both he had and the other guy had. So I'm I'm getting a message here that uh, some of my information might be incorrect about the backing out. I was told that uh, they actually just killed hands of anybody who ran out. (laughs) And that's what happened? I don't know. I, I had heard that they backed things out, but maybe I heard wrong. I can't confirm they backed things out. I still think that's the most fair thing to do if people are running out for that reason. Again, it's not like you're getting up to go to the bathroom or to take a break. I mean, this is... uh, It's reasonable to run away during an earthquake. (laughs) Anyway, either way, he ran out and uh, they killed his hand. I still don't know if they gave him his chips back. I don't know which is the truth, whether they just uh, killed your hand or if it was just tough luck on you, you give up whatever chips you had. That's a great question. I'd love to know the true answer to that. Maybe I'll uh, ask Kev Math that. I bet he could answer that. 
Anyway, it was confirmed, though, according to Frankenberger, that he had sixes against fives on an A6-5 board, but ran out of the room when the earthquake hit, and that killed the hand, and that uh, he would have doubled up instead of overstep. Neither of them had enough chips. Where they said One of the two didn't have enough chips, I assume he didn't, to where either could have gotten away from the hand. So like two, not like two gigantic stacks going at it where maybe the fives could have folded. He said that uh, it was clear that he would have doubled up. So he called it an earthquake bad beat, and I have to agree. That was a weird consequence. I wonder how many others were like that. This, this was seen because Andy Frankenberger is a well-known player. But I wonder how many like unknown players have that like, went through something like this and just nobody knows about it. So that was one of the weird things that happened there on day 1C, but not anywhere close to the weirdness, the, the weirdest. You would think that an earthquake happening during the main event and before the main event the day before, the biggest quakes Vegas has had in a long time, decades. You would think those would be the biggest stories of day one of the main event. But not even close. At the beginning of day 1C, the biggest story of the day occurred. A player named Ken Strauss, who is not very well known, but he does have World Series caches, including this year. So this is not just some guy playing his first World Series ever. This is someone who actually has caches, and uh, he doesn't have that many, but he did cash at the 5K six-handed no limit on July 1st, which is a tough event. That's a damn tough event. He cashed there, 122nd place. The rest of his caches were at very small events. In fact, I'm, I'm surprised he played that because the rest of his caches, including 2019, are at very small events like... Uh, a $200 daily deep stack, a uh, $110 event uh, in May, a $50 event back in 2017. So somehow he decided to start gambling it up, and he cashed in the 5K 6 max, which may have been what propelled him to want to play the main event. Because he cashed for 7402, maybe he decided, okay, I'm going to play the main event. Now, it's not clear what led up to him doing what he did. And again, this is at the beginning of the event. A very weird and interesting situation. Uh, and again, he's not really well known, but he's been located on Twitter. I'll tell you guys in a second where to find him on Twitter. And here's what happened. So this was at, I don't know, uh, 2 something p.m. It was tweeted, a video of it was tweeted at 2.21 p.m. The main event started at 12, so this was either on uh, level 1 or level 2. I have to, it has to be, I guess it has to be, 2.20 sounds like the beginning of the break of level 1. So, level the levels are 2 hours. So this seems like it happened during level 1. And this guy tweeted the video during the break of level 1. It's very early in the day. Uh... For some reason that's still unknown, Ken Strauss decided to go all in blind with Queen 3 offsuit and show that he had Queen 3 offsuit. So he acted out of turn, 
turned his cards face up, queen three offsuit, and went all in. Which created an interesting dilemma for people in the event. The World Series of Poker main event is very, very slow moving, as you can see by the fact that I'm through day two and not close to cashing. And there's no rebuys. So if someone busts you and you get your money in good, but not where you absolutely have the guy crushed, then you're you're gone. So it's called lost opportunity cost, where it's not just about the 10K that you spent to buy in, but the fact that once you're out, you won't be able to continue playing and maybe beating people going forward. You can't just say, oh, I'll throw another 10K into this. You're just gone. So if you think you have an edge in this event that's pretty big, you may not want to take a chance to win like a 60-40 shot in doubling up at the beginning. And there's some debate about this. Some people think that doubling up at the beginning and starting with a big stack like that is such a good advantage, it's worth taking the chance. But uh, this is the reason a lot of people will fold kings in the early stages of the main event, because it moves so slow. And there's no reason to take that chance that you might be up against aces. There was even a question of uh, if someone went all in blind and you couldn't see their cards, but you knew they were doing it without looking at their cards, what hand would you have to have to call them? I'm not talking about the first hand of the main, where if you lose it, you're out. What hand would you have to have to call an all in blind? Obviously, if you got something dealt very good, like tens, jacks, queens, kings, aces, of course, there you have to do it. But do you do it with... Uh, Ace-3 offsuit, which is a, a good hand in a runout against the r- random cards, but not a huge favorite. So you have to make that decision. There's been some discussions about that. Like if someone went all-in blind on the very first hand of the main, what would you call them with? Assuming you were last to act. Well, this question became even more complicated. What if you can see the hand this person's doing it with and they have queen-3 offsuit? What do you do it with? But it got even more complicated. Why? Because, remember, he acted at a turn. And by the way, this story is going to get a lot more interesting than just poker stuff. I'm just setting it up here. Something real crazy happened. But he goes all, all in with queen three offsuit out of turn. They call the floor. The floor rules that as long as somebody limps, or as long as somebody's in before him, that the all-in stands no matter what. But if it's folded to him that he has the right to take the all-in back. So, the people before him have an interesting decision here, because they know he's probably going to do it. They know that even if everybody folds, he's probably just going to push again. Why wouldn't he? So, they know he's got queen three offsuit and going to go all-in. You're now told to act before him, knowing what he's going to do. What do you do here? Well, someone chose to limp before him. What could this mean? It could mean it's a trap, like somebody has aces and they hope somebody else is going to come in uh, and they'll get their money too. It could mean that someone is not loving their hand, but they like their spot against queen three, but they want to see how many other people come in and they may decide to lay it down when it comes back to them. So anyway, somebody limped, clearly with the intention to call the all-in if it's only Ken Strauss of the Queen-3. 
Well, maybe. If the guy had a bunch of chips, he might have just wanted to make sure the guy's all in stood. I guess, but wouldn't you think he's going to go all in again? If he went all in blind, wouldn't you think he – and turned it over, hey, I've got a queen three, I'm going all in. Wouldn't you think that if three people then fold, it, it backs out, people fold, and then he can do it – wouldn't you think he'd do it again? Yeah, right, and, and maybe he wanted him heads up, so that way if everybody else mucked around to him, he could call, but if there's two other callers, he doesn't. Yeah, he that, so that seemed to be most likely. So so there's a limper, and that forced the all-in to stand. Everybody else folded, and then it got to the big blind. And the big blind turns over, looks at his hand, it's 5-5, five, five, and he's going, oh, crap, what do I do here? So the guy with 5-5 five, five actually thought to himself, okay, I'm willing to run this out against queen three and hope the queen doesn't flop. But what scares me is the limper. The guy was afraid that whoever was limping is either trapping or will still call off and has better than 5-5. Five, five. What if they've got sixes or higher? And this is, again, for their probably their entire tournament life right at the beginning of the main event. So after a lot of thought... Uh, well, actually, I didn't say after. While a lot of thought was occurring, Ken Strauss did something very surprising. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play it to you guys. If you haven't seen this video yet, I'm going to play you uh, this video. And I'll try to describe what's happening. You can find this, by the way, on Poker Fraud Alert. Right now it's in the Flying Stupidity Forum called Poker Player Ken Strauss. Whips out Dick. I guess I'm already giving it away in the 2019 main event. And you can see this video. I'm always blind. Look, look, I'm blind, everybody. That's Ken Strauss. Right. Saying, I'm, I'm all in blind. I'm blind, everybody. Now, this is while the big blind is deciding what to do. Again, take my pants down. I'm all in blind. And he just pulled his pants down. And, and his dick is out. He, pull, he pulled his... He has these, like, elastic shorts down. He just pulled them down. I'm all in blind! He, now, he turned his back to the table, so they saw his ass, but everybody else looking from the other direction saw his dick. The... the, the Floor man, who's actually a floor woman, is over here, <laughs> overseeing this whole thing. She doesn't know what to do. Now you've still got the big blind deciding what to do with the five five. So then he starts taking off his shoes for some reason. He has shoes and socks on. He's taking them off. Throws them. Off, throws them on the floor. Then he, he throws a shoe on the table, and it, and it bounces on the table and kind of lands between the dealer and the seat one. It doesn't really hit either. I think may have glanced them a little bit, but it bounced off. the. He threw a shoe off on purpose onto the table, and it bounced there right next to the dealer's hand, and then I think kind of hit the side of the guy in seat one. That's when the, the floor was, that's enough. I mean, enough. Okay. And then he walks away. What happened in the hand? Well, that's even weirder. I don't know if you can get weirder than the guy showing his dick and throwing shoes on the table. But uh, 
The fives decided to fold, which is reasonable. Went back to the limper, who then turned over ace three, and he's the only one left. Turned over ace three, not to not to call, but to fold. Yeah, the guy with ace three who limped in, knowing the guy was going to be all in if he limped. Limp folded with just him and the queen three left. He the guy did not want to run out ace three versus queen three. I think he just changed his mind. I think at first he saw the queen three, says, "Oh wow, ace three is a great spot, great spot. I'll limp and then I'll run it out only if nobody else comes in." Then nobody else came in, and he's like, oh, "No, I don't want to fade the three out or screw it and fold it." That's what I think happened. But that was still pretty bad on the limper's part. He should have done it. Yeah, it's the very beginning of the main event. Yeah, it sucks if that's what knocks you out. But I mean, what's this good? That's almost as bad as folding aces pre-flop against kings. Not quite as bad, but almost as bad. Ace three has queen three crushed for obvious reasons. It's not like ace king. Ace three really crushes queen three. So if that's the only hand you're up against is queen three, you've got to call it off. It would be just like folding aces at the beginning of the main going, no, no, I'm afraid they're going to flop a set, so no, I don't want to do it. Yes, you're going to call and be afraid they're going to flop a set, but you have to do it. So that was really weird. The ace three of all hands, with nobody else left in, (laughs) he folds. Had to be because he changed his mind. Small chance, like Trader Ruski said, he just wanted to commit the guy to being all in. And then fold. But that was so strange. But the story's not over. So you may wonder, well, what happened? He won the, That meant Ken Strauss won the hand with his queen three. Did he keep playing? What happened after pulling down his pants and throwing a shoe? Well, as you might imagine, he got disqualified. So they disqualified him and removed him from the Rio. It's not clear if he was banned from Caesar's properties or just removed. But I know he was not arrested, and I knew this because he decided to do a second act at another property. He went over to the Luxor, wearing the same clothing, and climbed up on an empty craps table that was not, uh, you know, didn't have anything running on it, and stood on it like he was standing on a pedestal. I'll let you guys listen. Now, I know there's music in the background. Can you hear this, by the way, Trader Ruski? I can. Okay. If you're hearing, yes, 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 that, that's him. He's on a craps table. Actually on it. He's standing on a craps table and throwing his hands in the air, yelling, yes, 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 walking back and forth on the craps table, which, again, is an empty craps table, not one that was uh, running in the Luxor. Here he's just kind of standing there with his arms folded. Everybody around there can't believe it. Now, now he's, he's decided to start stomping. He's actually like stomping his feet on the craps table. 
This guy just got kicked out of the World Series of Poker too. He pulled his pants down, like completely shut his dick to everybody. So he's getting the crowd into it somewhat. Uh, finally, the crowd who's now watching this spectacle, some of them are starting to shout yes back to him, and he's really loving this part. At this point, there's some security guards around there, but they're not doing anything. They're, this is what's surprising. That they're, they're just standing there letting him do it. Uh, I would think at this point they would just grab him or, or threaten him to get down. They're, they're just kind of watching him at this point, maybe waiting for more backup. But he's not threatening in any way. He's just acting crazy. No, he's doing it again. So now he walks to the end of the table, and I bet you know what's coming. Oh, no, he's doing it again. Oh, no. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. There he, he pulled down his oh. pants again and, and turned around so everybody can see on both sides. He, he pulled down his pants and turned both ways so everybody can see his dick and his big fat belly once again. Oh, my God. And now he's dancing around. And I pulled his pants back up. At this point, security decides they've had enough. So I got a yellow security, a, a yellow shirted security guard, who I thought was Vegas police. He's Vegas police sometimes wear those uh, yellow shirts as well. But then it said security on his back. But a, a yellow shirted security guard at this point comes over and physically pulls him down. Uh, he, he willingly comes down. He doesn't make his body go limp or resist or anything he he willingly steps down as the guy pulls him at this point the security guards dressed in black surround him and handcuff him wow he did it again wow <laughs> so now the crowd is, is saying yes on their own to him which I'm sure gave him a little thrill at the very end that uh, they're not cheering him. (laughs) And then they walk him away, and that's that. The guy is bald. He looks like he's in his 50s. He's got a big, fat pot belly. He's short. He's white. Uh, in case you're wondering, no, his his dick was not very big. <laughs> you couldn't see it that clearly. Like, there was no close-up of it, thankfully. You can watch these videos, though, on the same thread on Poker Fraud Alert. I was not present for either of these, thankfully. But they happened on the same day. They happened about... Uh, Five and a half hours apart. He was arrested after the Luxor incident, but I'm really surprised that he was not arrested after the Rio incident, given that he threw a shoe and exposed himself. People have been arrested for much less in casinos. 
if he got arrested in the Rio, you think anyone would be saying, oh, well, they're arresting people for anything. Yeah, what are they doing here? This is nothing. No, everyone would say, yeah, it makes sense. The guy drops his pants and throws his shoe at the table. Yeah, of course you get arrested in the casino if you do things like that. Like nobody would question an arrest like that. So how he avoided arrest the first time amazes me. Why did he do this? Unknown. I don't know if he has some kind of mental disorder. Now, he has a Twitter. You can check out his Twitter. It is twitter.com slash kpitboy. That's P-I-T-T, like Pittsburgh. Kpitboy. He is a big fan of Pittsburgh sports teams. He's clearly from Pittsburgh. His description on Twitter says, Steelers, Penguins, Pirates, Pitt, Poker, Lakers, I guess he likes the Lakers for some reason. I guess because they don't have a Pittsburgh base, uh, basketball team. And WWE fan. Seen every MLB, NFL, NHL, and NBA team play a home game. Interesting. Well, this guy must have some money if he can afford to travel the country to see a home game for every one of the four major sports. That's pretty expensive to do. Time-consuming and expensive. So it's funny that he was mainly playing small buy-in tournaments and then decided to take a shot at a 5K. Unless he's played other big buy-in winners never cashed. That's possible, too. But he cashed at that pretty tough 5K 6 max on July 1st and then played the main event and for whatever reason went all in blind and then did all these weird antics. He also liked to take pictures with celebrities. There's a picture on his Twitter from April 4th with... uh, a WWE star named Mandy Rose. He uh, has a, a picture of Negranu that he posted. And his Twitter looks pretty ordinary otherwise. This doesn't seem like a crazy person. This kind of just seems like a 50-year-old guy. There's more than 50. Yes, probably like... Oh, you know what? I wonder... Um, no, I see. I guess he's he may actually be younger than 50. There's a tweet on July 1st. I just want everyone to know that for the last 45 plus years of my life, I've had a best friend, a big sister, a caring mom, and every other relationship possible. It's been with this amazing woman, I tell you all now, that she is and will be the love of my life forever, Ken and Michelle. So he has a picture of his wife there. But he says the last 45 plus years of his life, which I don't think means he's been married to her for 45 years. In fact, there's no way because the, he's not old enough for that and she definitely isn't. There's no way these people are like over 60, uh, especially her. She totally looks 40s to me. So uh, I, I think the guy probably is 45 and just looks a little bit older. I guess he was around 50, but uh, I can believe he's 45. Um, so on July 1st, he posts this uh, about how much he loves his wife, who isn't bad looking, by the way. I mean, he did pretty well. He's this short, fat guy, short, fat, bald guy, and he has a decent looking wife. I'll give him that. But uh, I'm sure she's embarrassed at this point that she's associated with him. Everyone was talking about this the next day, and I assume the same day. Like at main event day two, everyone, the dealers, the players, everyone was talking about the guy who, who pulled his dick out and threw a shoe at the main event. That was the biggest subject of conversation by far. Bigger than everything else that happened, including the earthquake. Everybody talked about the guy who who showed his dick and threw a shoe and went all in with Queen 3 offsuit. 
that has been the biggest topic of the World Series. So everybody associated or who played the World Series, who follows poker, knows who this guy is now and has uh, seen these videos. It's got to be very embarrassing for his wife, who he strangely just made a tribute to days beforehand. I, I don't know what's going on. It's it's very strange. So the guy has enough money to travel the country to go to what looks like uh, over 100 different stadiums to see sports being played. And his Twitter looks basically normal. And he has a little tribute to his wife up on his page on July 1st. Like, looks like a very, very normal guy on Twitter. Just like a big-time sports fan, but a very normal, married, middle-aged guy. And then he does this. I Maybe he was on something that day. I don't know what to say. Really, really weird. And then, even aside from the dick out thing and the throwing the shoe even put that aside and this wasn't like his way of saying fuck you to the world series he didn't lose the hand yet in fact he didn't lose the hand but why would he go all in with queen three offsuit and show it that's really weird you may say well maybe he just wanted to gamble well why not wait for a little bit of a better hand why not wait for at least like Queen Ten offsuit? <laughs> Something that's uh, that's got a chance to win. Someone uh, texted me. I think maybe he was on meds and wasn't taking them. Yeah, it could be that. It could be that he's controlled by medication and acts normal when he's on it, but then forgot to take it or something. Maybe it took alcohol and interacted badly. So something messed up here for him. Some, something went wrong. The text I got from the 412, um, and then Trader Risky can comment. This text says he's from Pittsburgh, actually has a pretty good reputation as a huge Pittsburgh sports fan. First time anything like this has ever happened. Trader Risky, you have something to say? That wasn't the bad guy, was it, by the way? No. This is another oh, Pittsburgh guy. From Pittsburgh, too. Okay, got it. But he, uh, it's surprising that the Rio let the guy let him just let him leave. I mean, you think the guy's got some mental illness or something's obviously wrong. I definitely agree with the meds uh, comment. And then the Rio, oh, go ahead, sir, out the door. And yeah. then he goes over to the Luxor and does it. Again. You know, it's yeah. like, what if he shot up the place? I mean, it, it was it was very surprising that they they let him leave. He wasn't arrested. It it really really is shocking to me that he was able to go to Luxor the same day and do that. I guess there's some possibility that he got arrested and then released in that time and then went right to Luxor and did it again, but you'd think not, and you'd think that uh, maybe they would have done some kind of psychological evaluation. It's just hard to believe that he could have been arrested and then been at Luxor within five hours to do this again. So I I, I think he felt like he didn't get enough attention at the Rio and decided to do act number two. And that, that one, he even eclipsed it. That one, he, he stood on top of a table and kept shouting, yes, yes, yes. Then exposed himself. 
So And then he goes to the Lux Luxor. I mean how random. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, the whole thing is so weird. I can't explain any of it. I can't even explain the guy folding the ace three other than changing his mind. Like, why limp with that and then fold it? So weird. The whole thing. I mean, that's unbelievable. And Druff, what if... So if the guy had called it the ace three, won, I mean, lost, but then they're just qualifying the guy, he doesn't win the hand the ace three, does he? No, no, unless they disqualified him before the hand was finished being dealt or something. I guess they could have done it. But, they, but once the hand was completed, he'd just be screwed and the chips would just come out of play. If 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 the hand completed... Right, but if they did it before it was complete, would then he automatically win. I mean, that's that's interesting. I wonder if there's a rule about that. I wonder that, too. I, I bet they would have dealt it out and then whatever happened, happened, and they would have taken the... the Ken Strauss's chips either way, whether there was none left or t- a tiny bit left or uh, or if he doubled up, they would have taken him. So I think they probably would have dealt out the hand at that point. Maybe they would have killed the whole thing in the middle, but I'm guessing that they wouldn't have. Uh, otherwise, it could really screw other players. Like, like think if you have someone just crushed and you have the nuts and then they just decide to misbehave while the turn of river being dealt. And they, they, you know, like they, I don't think they'd kill the hand. I think they'd uh, let the hand finish and then kick the guy out. But uh, I, I don't think they award it to the guy who's not kicked out unless he really wins the hand. That's, that's my guess. I wonder about the rule about that too, though. But how weird to fold, to fold ace three there. What, what was the possible rationale there? It's, he limps in, then folds it. He just must not have been thinking of it right. You, you've got to think of it like you've got aces against kings. It's not quite as good, but it's close. You've got to think of it like that. It's not... I'd understand so much more if the guy decided to, you know, let's say he had uh, ace-jack and limped in. And then it's fold, 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 fold. And he's like, you know what? I, I don't want to do ace-jack against queen-three. There's just there's two ways it can get me with a queen and a three. I, I don't want to do it. Yes, I'm a favorite here, but not enough, not enough of one. But ace-three versus queen-three is a different story. You're, you're, all you're fading here is a queen, a one-card flush, I think it was the A3, the A3 was suited, too, I believe. It was. I think it was A3 suited. I, I think the queen was a different suit, but uh, I think the three was a different suit, too. But uh, but still, he had A3 suited. It makes it a little bit stronger. But all you're really fading is the one-card flush from either the queen or the three, or a one-card straight from the queen or the three, or the queen. Other than that, you win. So I, I don't understand. I don't understand why you don't take that spot. I would have been thrilled to get my money in, even at the beginning. Yes, I would have been a little nervous that this could knock me out of the main event if I got unlucky there. But at some point, you're going to be in for a situation in the main event where you're going to have to get lucky or fade getting unlucky. You're not going to be able to go through the main event and get to the money without being in something like that, in all likelihood. So you might as well do it. No point to take a 60-40 type risk, even if you're the 60 at the very beginning. I understand that, but ace three against queen three. Come on. You got to do that. Looks like he thought he had to do that. He he was smart to limp. Like Definitely limping the ace three was smart at the beginning. So if somebody else comes over the top, he's like, okay, never mind. I don't want to run this out. But... So it was smart to limp and then wait to see if it's just him and Queen Three and then and then do it if you it's, he blew it at the end. Really weird. Whole thing is so strange. 
Got a text here from the 716. This guy clearly had a prop bet, and my guess is he won it. Yeah, I've seen that theory thrown around. The problem with that theory, I'm not saying it's impossible. The problem with that theory is it would have to be a lot of money to be worth taking the criminal charges that he was likely to take from this. And also getting banned from uh, all Caesars and then at the Luxor all MGM properties, which may very well be what happened. That's a it's a lot to accept. That has to be a pretty big prop bet. I don't know how big it would have to be to this to be worth it to someone for all these things. You don't want a criminal record for a decent exposure. You don't want to be kicked out of Caesars and MGM properties, especially with all the consolidation that's been happening. You may be banned for life from both of them, and that's a hard one to explain to get back. You know, <laughs> how do you explain that one? You know, Please let me back in. I promise never to show my penis again while playing poker. Like, how, how do you how do you even write a letter like that? How do you explain it that they can feel comfortable having you there again? Especially doing it in two places. So th- this to me seems too crazy to be a prop bet, unless the prop bet was very large. To where the guy felt it worth it. Like, let's say someone offered me a hundred thousand dollars to take a uh, an, an indecent exposure charge uh, and have that on my record. I wouldn't take it. Forget about the public embarrassment of the whole thing. I even take that away. I don't. I I wouldn't want uh, an indecent exposure charge on my record. And you, you may have to register as a sex offender. I mean, that'd be horrible. There's no way I would take that on my record for a hundred thousand dollars. So even like a prop as large as that, I wouldn't do it. Now you could say if the guy was broke, yeah, maybe, but he's, it seems like he's not if he's traveling to over 100 stadiums around the, around the country. It seems like the guy must have money from somewhere. It's not cheap to do that. I can't explain it. Sometimes you just can't uh, explain these things. Sometimes there, there just is no explanation. And that happened in the first few minutes, right, Truff? I don't know the first few minutes. It, it appears to be the first hour, uh, for first two hours, because the the video was posted at 2.20 p.m., which is like right after the, when the break would have been. So it had to be in the first two hours, and it could have been earlier than that. It could have been the first one hour. It could have been right at the beginning. It was something in the first level. And it was something where, where the everybody basically, since it moved so slowly, everybody basically had to be either calling off their – Entire stack or their entire stack minus a few chips they'd be left, which is virtually nothing. Uh, Crazy. Yeah, very crazy. Before we move on to the next topic, here's another uh, text. Uh, Listen to the Smashburger podcast last night uh, after returning home after midnight. Great stuff. You're truly gifted in this area. This is referring to last show. Uh, I had a check-in episode at Park MGM. They count me $300 in food ASAP when I called. Still going to documents. Park MGM could be a good value if you play cash at the Aria. Fortunately, I'm too tight to be a sought-after fish, but I love poker, not gambling. Wait, wait, wait. I don't understand. <laughs> I guess the guy's just telling me stuff about uh, what he's doing. I, I was hoping it would be a story here. Like, like, oh, I listened to the Smashburger thing. Oh, I had this thing at the Park MGM. They, they checked me in and gave me comps. Like, okay, then what? No, that's it. I checked in and they gave me comps. <laughs> 
Oh, I I thought you said he said he had a check-in problem. Yeah, he said he had a check-in episode. Right, so he's saying that they gave, were generous with the comps. Meanwhile, you couldn't even get your milkshake for the, uh, you know. But he's not explaining what the check-in episode is. Like, I don't understand. He's a, I'm expecting there was something was going to happen at the check-in, but then nothing did. Oh, I see. I had a check. I misread. I have a check-in episode, and they comped me three hundred in food. I see. I thought he meant that they offered him three hundred. Some problem with the check-in. Okay. Like I, I was misreading it. Like he he he's checking in with a three hundred dollar comp that they had offered him. Not he had a problem that they comped him three hundred dollars in food. I I I'd love to know what happened there to get three hundred dollars in food from uh, a check-in issue because that's a pretty big thing to give from a problem at the front desk. When I've had issues at the front desk with a, an employee screwing something up or uh, they're being rude or whatever, and I've been c- compensated, it's usually like you know, twenty-five to fifty dollars, and I think that's fine. Or you know, sometimes at best they'll give me a free night or something. That's uh, which is worth you know, maybe a hundred something. But I, I've never seen getting a three hundred dollars in food from a uh, an episode of check-in. This must have been... Uh, now, maybe they screwed up badly. Maybe they had to keep moving in rooms over and over. I'd, I'd love to know what happened to get them at 300 Usually, it's got to be something pretty bad to get something like 300 The best comp I've ever gotten in my life, by the way, not from a hotel or a casino, but the best comp I was given as a result of a customer service fail was $500 by a cable company after I proved that I was intentionally left on hold for 90 minutes. And I was able to prove it. Because what I what I did is I, uh, when they put me on hold and didn't come back, I just turned on the TV, left my phone on speaker, and just let it sit there. And I actually hung up after 90 minutes. <laughs> I decided 90 minutes is enough to, to get the point across when I was going to complain. So I called back later, and I... Uh, tracked down who the direct supervisor was of the woman who did this. And uh, I asked, do you log? Before I talked to him, I asked, do you guys log all the calls? Yes, we log and record all the calls. So there's no way out of that one for her. And I talked to him, and he he must have, she was an older, like, you know, she sounded like she was 50, so this wasn't like a hot chick he was trying to protect because he wanted to get in her pants. And this guy sounded like he was in his 30s. But I, I think he felt bad for her. Whatever it was, he was really, really trying not to take action about this, but it was really, really clear that she had done this. And he was really, really trying to avoid admitting to me this is what happened and really trying to get around it. But then this became one of the cases where the cover-up was worse than the crime and he was trying to avoid it. Anyway, I I finally laid down the law to him. I told him that uh, I'm about to take this to upper management and that uh, they're going to review everything, including how he handled this. And at that point, he said, okay, I I admit there's been some problems here. Uh, What what would you like? I said, well, what are you you offering? And he said – so basically, he gave me uh, $500 in comps on my bill because I had a bill that was uh, hadn't been paid yet. He wiped that. Then he gave me like a bunch of months free, a bunch of services free. When it came up, when it was all said and done, I got – and this is stuff I already had, not like free services I didn't need. I got $500 in comps over the situation because a combination of the being left on hold for 90 minutes intentionally and her supervisor attempting to cover it up when I complained. So – in, in, in fear of me going above, above him and exposing this, he gave me $500. So I took it. I could have said, you know what? It's the principal. I'm going to go above you anyway. I'm like, no, it's great. I'll just take the $500. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I kind of saw the way the whole thing happened. Like 
I kind of understood, like I, I was not defending it in any way, and I was pissed, but I kind of understood that this was some woman who got stressed out on the call with me, not for good reason, but I didn't. She stressed herself out. I was very polite the whole way. She just uh, didn't want to deal with the problem because it was hard, and she just um. So she pretended to talk to a supervisor who wasn't really there. And then when I asked to actually speak to that supervisor, she went into a panic because she had lied to me and then just left me at hold 90 minutes and just did nothing the rest of the day while, while the call just sat on hold. So she kind of just had a meltdown there. So he probably she was probably like a nice older woman otherwise, and he felt bad for her, and he knew that if he had to write this up, she would have been fired for something like this. So he was trying to avoid dealing with it and was trying to stall me and make me go away, and I wasn't. And he's like, what the fuck do I do? You know. That, so once once he knew his job was in jeopardy, then he had to do – you know, that, then his only choice was to try to give me something to make me go away. So at that point, I'm like, okay, I, I kind of see the way this whole thing went down. Like there's nothing evil in the whole thing. It was just people trying to passive-aggressively screw me to avoid dealing with, with situations they didn't want to deal with. So I thought just giving me compensation for it was fine. I would, would, would drop it at that point, which I did. But that's the best I ever got was 500. And I've gotten a few other things over the years of like, you know, like two or 300, something worth two or 300 when something happens. But usually it's like in the neighborhood of like, you know, 25, 50. Uh, so 300 is pretty impressive, especially the guy says he's not like a high roller. So that's that's pretty good. All right, uh, moving on to the next topic here, another disqualification at the World Series. In case uh, that one wasn't enough, uh, this one, I, I feel that the guy with the dropping the pants and the shoe was underpunished, and it seems like Trader Ruski, you agree on this too, that he should have just been uh, he should have been arrested and held, and they should have assess his mental state and all that and just to let him walk off was crazy. So he was underpunished, this Ken Strauss. But uh, the next guy I feel was overpunished for something that happened. Georgie Bellinin, who apparently is a fairly known player in Vegas and also online. He plays on WSOP.com a lot. They... He's known in the community. Not a big-name player. I hadn't heard of him before this, but he's not just... Like this Ken Strauss, he just kind of came out of nowhere. Nobody knew who he was in poker until this. Georgie Bellinen was by no means a, a famous player, and most people didn't know him, but those in the local Vegas scene, a lot of them did know him, and he had a good reputation. But he screwed up pretty badly, too. He didn't show his dick, thankfully. But he did something also fairly bad. There were, there were... oh, oh, by the way, Jeff, sorry, but I had to say, Flushdraw.net had a great uh, title for that last story. What was it? Man, man Reveals the Nuts Gets Disqualified. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. That is good. He did reveal the nuts. Once in a while, Queen 3 really is the nuts. So on the same day, around the same time, Georgie Bellinen was disqualified over a different matter. What had happened was that after winning a small pot, Bellinen reached over to the stack of the player next to him and grabbed uh, grabbed one of the chips, uh, grabbed one of the stack of chips, not one chip, but grabbed one of the stack of chips 
and added it to his deck. Did it with a smile on his face and didn't attempt to do this surreptitiously. He didn't try to sneak chips as people left for a break or, or when someone uh, was away from the table or when they had their head turned. No, no. He, he, he noticeably reached over and grabbed it and pulled it to his stack right in front of everybody watching. So this was not something he was attempting to do and, and get away with. You may say, why? Why would anyone do that? Well, here is a description from someone at the table named Tom Peterson. By the way, uh, Joe McKeon, who won the 2015 main event, was at the table, too. This didn't involve him, but he was at the table and also witnessed the whole thing. But this is from a person named Tom Peterson who was at the table. He said, the guy came in and sat down at seat six. The dealer told him to get into seat five. He didn't speak a lot of English. He was from another country because he had a passport. Which is... I don't know. Maybe he doesn't play on WSOP.com. I, I heard it was WSOP.com. Maybe he plays on Party. I don't know. But he's a, he, he, I heard he's well-regarded and that, that, that people like him. He said, I want to play deal. The dealer said, no, you need to move. He finally moves, plays a couple of hands, plays them well, loses both of them. Then in like the seventh hand, he wins the pot, 1,600 in the pot, one black chip, one pink chip, one yellow chip. The dealer pushes it to him, and he just grabs the other pile and puts it right right into his without hesitation. The floor came over, and they disqualified him. He was drunk. I could smell him. I owned a bar for 17 years, and I know he was drunk. He was drinking Jack and Cokes. While he was standing there uh, where they told him to stand, the waiter brought him another drink. I asked the waiter, what did you give that guy? And they said, Jack and Coke. I love this. He gets disqualified. He's waiting for them to... Take him away, and they're like, hey, here's your drinks, sir. Okay, sure, and he downs that one, too. He took the guy's chips and put them in his stack. He didn't set them next to him. He threw them in. He had a pile. He had a mess. Was it a joke? He's drunk. I don't know. He was upset, yelling, help me, help me. They're taking me out. I heard he got arrested outside, too. Well, he did. At first, I thought it was just a joke where he grabbed the person's stack and put it next to his and then before he could move it back and say, ah, just kidding, that uh, they disqualified him. I thought it was something like that. Now, I've actually had this happen occasionally at a cash game where some obnoxious player will do this to me, will grab a chip or grab a stack and then put it back. And it annoys me. I don't like when anyone touches my chips. And, and one time I said something about it. They're like, what? Do you think I'd steal from you? I come to this room every day. Would I get take a ban over that? Like they, they give me the hard time like I'm the crazy one. But I've never seen anyone who's really suffered a consequence from doing this. I've even seen things that didn't involve me where there was a, like a prank where someone goes to the bathroom and someone t- temporarily takes a stack of theirs to see if they'll notice. And then after they don't say anything, they go, hey, by the way, I took 400 from you. I've, we, we wanted to see if you'd notice and put it back, which I think is also kind of crappy because you don't know for sure if they're going to really put it back once you don't notice. So like what, what about in that time where you do notice and no one said anything yet? Then you have to wonder would they have given it back. So in general, you shouldn't touch anybody's chips. I agree with that. But it, according to this story from this Tom Peterson, it sounded like he just grabbed a stack and then it just kind of like fell into his chips and he didn't really try to keep it separated from his chips and it's not even clear if he was going to return it. Somebody else who was there told someone I know that he grabbed it and that he believed it was a joke as he was doing it and that he was just kind of too drunk to do it well or coherently and he kind of then it kind of just fell into his own stack because he was so messed up he was he he was so smashed that 
he wasn't able to do this well and the whole thing just kind of fell in that the the joke was supposed to be that his hand was so good and he barely won anything in that pot it's like hey i deserve this too those were the words he he used but something like that he grabbed it to show that he deserved to get those chips also in the pot and grabbed it and put it in his stack and it probably fell in now uh what do i feel should have happened from this should you get disqualified for that yes uh, when i before i heard that it fell into the stack I, I thought okay if he grabbed it but clearly separated from his own as a joke then I would say give him a penalty for it that's what I would do if I was the tournament director at that point if that's all he did give him some kind of real penalty more than one round maybe half an hour or so, some kind of real penalty but not disqualify him as long as it's clear he's really he really took care to keep the chips separated and that he wasn't really trying to steal them. That it was just a joke and he, he moved the stack towards his. Yeah, kind of like a, a slap on the wrist. Say, hey, don't do that again. And here's, here's a penalty for it, but we're not disqualifying you. However, if someone gets disqualified for that, I can understand it. I wouldn't say, oh, wow, this is an injustice if someone gets disqualified. Even if it's a joke, because the truth is you're not supposed to grab anyone's chips. And you shouldn't have to determine, hey, is it a joke? Is it not a joke? You just should not be grabbing chips from anybody else's stack other than obvious situations like to put out someone else's blind or, or, or whatever. You should never grab chips and put them in your stack from somebody else's stack under any circumstances, whether it's a joke or not. And I can understand the World Series being hard-lined about that to protect everybody and disqualify them for doing that. As I said, if it, if it was clear it was a joke and it was clear the person took care to not mix them in with their own chips, then... I would just give them a penalty, but a disqualification is not totally unreasonable either. But he got much worse than that. He got disqualified. He got banned from all Caesars properties for life, and he got arrested. And that's where I think it went too far. And I think it's crazy that the guy who shows his dick and throws a shoe at the table can walk out not being arrested and possibly not being banned from all Caesar's properties. I don't know if he was or not. They won't comment, but I, I, it's possible he wasn't even banned from all Caesar's properties and just kicked out of that event. But at the very least, he, he didn't seem to be arrested. And yet they arrest the guy, the drunk guy who, who, who grabbed someone's chips of, of, of what was probably a, a joke gone bad. And he was too drunk to really understand what he was doing. Now, not that being drunk is a defense. I understand you're responsible for everything you do when you're drunk. But I, I think arrest was too far. Given the story, I think disqualification is correct. But I, I don't even think a, a ban f- from Caesars is correct. I think disqualification, including taking his $10,000 and not giving it back, and telling him, okay, you're out of the event, you lost the $10,000, uh, I'd understand kicking him out for the day. But to actually ban him for life and arrest him when I don't believe anybody felt it was malicious or that it was a real attempt at theft because he was doing it with a big smile on his face right in front of everybody. Like if you catch someone trying to sneak chips over to their stack, then I I support all of those penalties, a disqualification, the banning from all properties for life and jail. I, I agree with all those penalties if someone is caught doing that. So if you're going to break and then as you walk away, someone grabs a chip off your stack and puts it in theirs and they're caught, yeah. Throw the book at them, ban them, disqualify them, arrest them, everything. I agree. But this this was a drunk guy 
who who thought I I believe he really thought he was joking around and screwing around, and then yeah, you can picture it. He's a sloppy drunk. Ah, I should have won these two, ah, and then it falls in the stack. Ah, I should have won. I like, think he doesn't really understand what he's doing, and uh, so yeah, disqualify him. But I I thought this was too harsh. He posted a statement on Twitter apologizing for this. He posted this at 9.01 p.m. July 6th, a day later. Hello, I really want to apologize to all players, staff, Mr. Effel, that's Jack Effel, the tournament director, and the whole poker community for my unprofessionalism and misbehavior in the World Series of Poker main event. I take full responsibility for my behavior that I got really drunk and could not control myself. I was up all night playing and drinking cash games in the Rio. By the time I realized what time it is, I decided to go register into the main event. I don't remember much. I really did not want to cheat nobody. Just a stupid drunk joke which landed me a night in jail for trespass. I hope that you will all understand and believe me if I say that it's my first time in my life I was involved in such a bad story. A lot of people in poker communities can confirm that before this accident I've never been involved in any suspicious activities. I really care about my reputation and life values, and I promise you all that this will never happen again. Georgie Bellinen. I think this is probably sincere. I wouldn't call it an accident. He, this wasn't, it's not like he accidentally bumped against somebody's chips and they fell into his stack. He was super drunk and, and did this. And he's admitting he was super drunk and did this. It wasn't an accident. It was very poor drunken behavior. But it's good that he's owning up to it. It's good that he's not complaining and saying that the punishment was too harsh, which I actually think it was, but it's good that he wasn't and he's just basically saying he screwed up and hopes people forgive him. And it is true that from what I've heard, the guy had a good reputation prior to this. So I think that they should unban him. I think they should give him... Now, if this happens again, then yes, ban him for life. But I think they should unban him with the understanding that he's not going to drink like, I could see a conditional unbanning. Like, we're going to unban you, but you're not allowed to drink on property anymore. You're not allowed to show up to events drunk. If we if we see that, we're banning you for life. I'd be fine with that type of ban, or that type of unban. But I think he should be unbanned. I think he's already suffered enough, especially after a night in, in jail and losing his $10,000 buy-in at the very beginning of the event. So it's, it's not like he wasn't punished for this. He was. I just think I think they overpunished this guy, and I think they underpunished Ken Strauss, who showed his dick. I think it should have been reversed. I think Strauss should have been arrested and banned for life, and I think this guy should have been disqualified, but nothing further. Maybe told that he'll be banned for life if he continues to drink again while on property or before a tournament. Trader Risky, what's your opinion on this? I agree. I mean, if the guy's drunk and doesn't know what he's doing, well, I can't imagine if he appealed, they wouldn't they wouldn't reverse it. Someone at uh, the table with me yesterday said that he has friends in poker who are influential. He didn't say who, but I asked who he wouldn't tell me. But uh, said this guy has friends in poker who are influential who, who could probably get this ban reversed. So he might be able to come back, if that's true. But he is banned for the moment. And I don't know what they're going to do as far as criminal charges. I, you know, He was in jail. I don't know if they're actually going to press charges or if he just 
spent the night in jail and they're not going to pursue it further. I mean, that was probably just drunk and disorderly, I'd imagine. I, I would think so, too. But hopefully they didn't try to get him for some kind of theft or something like that or, you know, or fraud or something like that. That uh, I think that would really be going too far. But, yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. But both of them occurred right at the beginning, right in the first level. Two people got disqualified for two different things. That's that's really weird too. <laughs> he shows up super drunk and grabs somebody else's stack after winning a pot, not after losing a pot, but after winning, he was mad that he didn't win enough with some really strong hand. Yet the funny thing is, the person was reporting he was playing well. It's not even like he was just shooting off. This wasn't like going all in with queen three offsuit and exposing it. He actually shows up that drunk, but somehow can still play well. Which which I've heard before. I've heard sometimes people can be drunk or high. And really out of it in every way except they can play poker well. Strange. That's a very, very eventful day 1C. You had an earthquake stop it. That made people panic and run out of the room. A 7.1 earthquake. You had a guy exposing himself and throwing a shoe. Going all in with queen 3 offsuit. And then not being called by ace 3 as the last person to act for some reason. You had a guy who was so drunk that he grabbed somebody else's stack as some kind of failed joke and got disqualified, banned, and arrested. But wait, there's more. There's more. Luke Rabel has been making, I shouldn't say the news, but He's been getting attention recently for a series of tweets he's been doing that have been well-received by the poker community. Now, he was on this show two years ago when he got banned for life from Caesars. You may not remember why Luke Rabel got banned for life from Caesars. Well, it all started because he made the final table at the Colossus, which is pretty damn good, two years ago. He made the final table, and Matt Affleck, who was also there, had a very big rail who was loud and obnoxious, and the loudest and most obnoxious of his rail, apparently, was Affleck's own girlfriend. For some reason, they were focusing on Vrabel, this rail, and they were really, really heckling him with Affleck's girlfriend being the worst as far as giving Vrabel a hard time. I don't know if if Affleck and Vrabel had been having issues already at the table prior to this. But for whatever reason, the rail was really focusing upon Vrabel and really giving him a hard time at the final table of the Colossus, where the top prize was like a million bucks. Vrabel was very frustrated by this and felt he couldn't concentrate with this all going on. And the, the problem is here, let me stop here, Luke Vrabel already had a bad reputation for being kind of a loud asshole, which he is. He is a loud asshole. And if you ask him, Luke Vrabel, are you a loud asshole? He will admit, yes, I am. When we had him on radio, he was kind of a loud asshole. That's just what he is, okay? So the the problem was for him that the floor man already didn't like him. The floor man already thought he was a jerk. And the floor man was not really looking to do any favors for him or even treat him fairly from what occurred. So Vrabel went to the floor man, and presumably he didn't come to him in a polite fashion. I don't think Vrabel said, uh, excuse me, uh, they're being a bit loud back there. Uh, could you uh, ask the 
the rail for Affleck to uh, be a little bit quieter so I can concentrate on my hand. I don't think he, he did it in that way. He, he approached the floor man and probably was very aggressive about it saying, can you shut, shut them the fuck up? They're screaming in my ear. I can't fucking figure out what I'm doing here. This is a fucking madhouse here. Like these weren't his exact words, but it was something like that where he immediately approached the floor man angrily and was very aggressive about demanding something get done. Well, at this point, the floor man who already didn't like him and already felt that he had a bad reputation decided basically, fuck him, we're not doing anything about it, which was wrong. I don't care what you think of the player. I don't care if the player is a jerk. If the rail is harassing him and really, really bothering the person and insulting the person and yelling at the person when they're trying to play poker, this should stop. This should not happen. And I don't care what you think of the guy. I don't think you. I don't care if you think he deserves it or he's, he's a jerk. Whatever it is, if you personally dislike him, you have to do your job as the floor man and make sure that all the players at the final table can play in peace. It doesn't have to be whisper quiet in the room. And if if uh, Affleck's rail wants to cheer loudly whenever he wins, fine. But when someone's trying to make decisions on their hands, they shouldn't be insulted or yelled at by the rail. And that's what was happening to Vrabel there, from all reports. And Vrabel. Very, very honestly, you know, he, he he had a right to complain. I would have complained in that spot. Anyone would have complained in that spot. So just because the guy complaining uh, was not a likable person to the floor man, that doesn't mean that shouldn't something should not have been done. But nothing was done. So Vrabel was furious about this. And after he was out of the event, he didn't win it. I forgot what position he finished. Whatever it was, he... He went to Twitter and really took it to the floor man and to the World Series over this. And he was naming the floor man and saying all these nasty things about him. And this went on and on and on until finally uh, Caesars decided to ban him for it. They decided that he was too abusive to the floor man, both at the time and on social media. And they, they banned him for life from Caesars. Now, could Vrabel have handled it better? And by the way, this is a two-year-old story, but there's a reason I'm telling it. Could he have handled it better? Yes. Uh, things will happen at the World Series that you don't agree with. You will be mistreated sometimes by staff there. There will be bad decisions made. And there's only so far you can go to complain. And you can't use that as an excuse to go over the top because what happens is you end up getting banned. That's exactly what ends up happening. Uh, there's a, a stupid decision made to ban me when I was short stacked in day six of the main event nine years ago over an accidental exposure of cards. I was furious about it, but uh, I I wasn't going to approach it the way Vrabel approached that thing with the, with the floor man at his situation. You know, you've, you've got to figure out uh, what you should say and how far you should go saying it, uh, or otherwise you can get yourself in hot water. That's not to say people should be able to walk all over you, but you have to know when to stop. And he didn't. But the truth is that they caused it in the first place. Caesars caused this somewhat, and Matt Eflick's rail and his girlfriend caused this somewhat. So Vrabel was really kind of the victim here. He was kind of the victim who didn't react well. But he was the victim here. But it did seem like, because I do remember, and I think the guy came across very likable when he called in... That, you know, he was just asking the guy to, to just calm the rail down. 
it didn't seem like, if I recall from the story, that he was like screaming, "Shut them up!" You know. No, no, no. He was. No, he was. He was. He he, he even admitted that that he he didn't approach this in the most gracious fashion. But but it it does seem to be true from all accounts that the rail was harassing him, especially Affleck's girlfriend, and that he was being insulted and he was being yelled at, and it just it wasn't appropriate to be happening at a final table. It just should not have been happening, and. If that's going on and the person is reacting poorly to it and maybe not that polite about it, uh, fine. Understand, be the floor, understand as the floor man, they're playing for so much money here. They're at a final table. Fine. Let, let, if the guy's rude, you can tell him, hey, you know, I'll, I'll put a stop to it, but stop being rude to me. You can say that and then really put a stop to it. But it seems like they didn't even put a stop to it. It seems like just uh, as a NFU to him, uh, they didn't do anything, which, which was terrible. So anyway, he's been banned for the last two years. The reason we're telling this story now or retelling the story, is that uh, while banned from the World Series, Vrabel came up with an idea, and that was to mock people's tweets when they bust out of the main event and, quote, send them to the showers. He was uh, telling them to hit the showers in the athletic sense. Where, Don't get me wrong, this isn't like him sending them the, the World War II showers, where they, which were actually uh, death chambers, gas chambers there where they... Uh, gassed people to death. He wasn't referring to those kind of showers. He was referring to like uh, hitting the showers of when you're ejected from a, a sports competition. So when people would have bust out tweets instead of him responding, good game or uh, you'll get him next year or whatever else, he would retweet it with a comment that was always, uh, it ranged between insulting uh, funny uh, had commentary on the play that they said that knocked them out, uh, and, then, and then would always enter with always end with hit the showers, and then he'd show little pictures of uh, like three shower emojis. So it was kind of like a way you're being played off by Luke Rabel, being sent away. You 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 post on Twitter what happened to you to knock you out of the main event, and then. He says something snide to you and tells you to hit the showers, which on the surface could sound like an asshole thing to do, but it was actually entertaining and funny. And so much that the poker community really took to this and people started asking for him to tell them to hit the showers when they would go out. They'd bust and then they'd actually at him on Twitter and say, hey, can you shower me too? So people were actually asking to be showered. I actually am going to ask to be showered when my time comes. He also asked for donations on Venmo of one to five dollars if you appreciate the art that he's doing there on Twitter. <laughs> and, and people were sending it. People were sending him one to five dollars on Twitter on, on Venmo for what he was doing on Twitter. And uh, I was actually going to send him five dollars until I saw it was only Venmo, and I don't have Venmo. I'm not going to go through that much effort. But if, if he if he had PayPal, I would have sent him five bucks. I was entertained throughout the day. Uh, he's been doing this apparently since day one. I only noticed it on day two. But it was funny reading these things. And there's a whole lot of them. Just it's basically any tweet he finds of someone busting out of the main event, he he tells them to hit the showers and then make some comment about them. Often it has to do something uh, that they're known for. Uh, sometimes it's an insult of someone he really doesn't like. Sometimes it's kind of a mild insult if it's someone he's neutral on, but he's, he's heard things about them. But uh, this has caught fire. People are really enjoying it. And it, it's become like almost a, a ritual now. If you bust it, you've got to get uh, showered by Luke Vrabel. 
So here's some examples. Now, it seems like he likes Greg Raymer, but this is what he wrote. Greg Raymer tweeted, well, fuck, got short on the table. Uh, uh, loose aggressive player. hits runner, runner, flush with Jack nine to beat my QQ. Then 30 minutes later, shoved ace Jack and run into AA. Not going to win the 2019 main event. Best wishes to those in have fun. So Vrabel tweets back, Son of a dot, dot, dot. Sometimes it's just not in the cards, fossil chooch. But that ain't a big deal. These kids may laugh and crack jokes, but you'll always be a champion. And, and if I know you, you'll dust yourself off and fill a hotel room with hookers tonight like nothing happened. <laughs> and then he showed a picture of three. He didn't say hit the showers on this one, but he put a picture of three showers. As referring to Greg Gramer being arrested at that uh, some years ago for uh, in a prostitution sting which unfortunately for him was originally reported as a, a gay prostitution sting, and then they clarified it that there was a gay prostitution sting down the street, but with Raymer it was actually uh, women. So it was straight prostitution. Here's one that was not so nice to Alec Torelli, who I have to admit deserves this. He's, he's a big-time uh, slimy angle shooter, Alec Torelli. Kind of a big phony in general. So uh, Luke wrote to him, after Alec put, I opened 2,700 and cut off on 600, 1,200, 1,200. Big blind, three bets to three, 13,000. I jam with 86,000 with jacks. He calls with ace, king, and I lose. Great game. Had fun. Everything. An amazing, well-run event. Thanks all for the support, everybody. Uh, this is really being over-aggressive with jacks, by the way. He just jams. Uh, see, he opened in the cutoff. The big blind, three bets. And that's a pretty strong thing for the big blind to three bet. Unless this is someone who does this lightly from the big blind, but at that point to put in 86,000 over him is... Uh, he's lucky the guy only had ace-king. At least he had a chance. Anyway, what uh, he sent back to Torelli, or he retweeted Torelli and wrote this. Alec, I promise you 90% of poker is thrilled to read that you busted. You are quite possibly the most insufferably scummy, phony person in this entire industry. You genuinely make me sick. I hope you lose every flip for the rest of your life. Now hit the fucking showers. <laughs> Torelli is most infamous for appearing in a televised poker broadcast, I think Poker Night in America, where he hid big chips behind his stack to make it look like his stack was smaller. And then when, when a recreational player went all in on him with ace-queen, thinking he didn't have those chips, or no, with ace-ten, and, and then uh, then he then uh, once the players thought he had those chips, then uh, Torelli knew he was weak when the player didn't want those chips to be in. So then Torelli knew his ace-queen was good, and he won a huge pot. And video analysis of this afterwards show he was clearly hi- hiding those chips. Yeah, wasn't he like playing dumb, like he didn't know that they were there? Yes, yes. And he claimed he was left-handed, and that's why he, the chips are in that location they were. And it, it was so stupid because it was so clear he was lying. And then he kept saying, well, you make the decision, whatever you want, right? I, I remember that whole thing. Yeah, it was, yeah. It, was, it was a mess and it made him look terrible. Uh, I'm actually blocked from commenting on Torelli's sponsored content on Facebook. Like, I get ads for him all the time for this class he has. He has similar to a master class, except it's not a master class. It's some other training thing he sells. 
But he, I see that all the time on my Facebook, but I can't comment on it anymore because I was making jokes about, uh, you know, do you learn how to play when you're left-handed and, and questions like, – I, I put things like that. Or you know, do you learn where do you put your big chips? And eventually I, I, I actually got blocked by the sponsor. Uh, it was his decision, I'm sure. But uh, I, I actually cannot comment on the sponsored confidence where, where, where others can. William Kasouf we had on this show. He was likable on this show after he blew up uh, in the main event with all his table talk, but he became much less likable more recently when he was caught stealing chips from his friends at a blackjack table and was arrested for it. Pretty much ruined his reputation. After William Kasoup tweeted the following, he got showered. William said, Oh my fucking God, just busted the sickest cooler again day one of the World Series of Poker main event. Kings versus Aces, obviously. No other hand I'm busting with day one, uh, for fuck's sake. Fuck my life, LOL. Thanks for all the love and support. On to the next one. Oh, and and pick... And, and, oh, and pick, or it didn't happen, obviously, LOL. And he showed a picture of the Kings and Aces. So, Vrabel tweets in response to that. Oh my fucking God, is response. Just like Kazoo said. I can't believe it. You couldn't fold Kings? What else is new, fucking idiot? I, I, I hope you palmed some chips on your way out of the Rio, you scallywag. Only thing better than stealing from your friends is stealing from strangers. Hit the showers. <laughs> so, yeah, you're getting an idea what they're like. There's so many of them like this. Some of them are mocking the person's play. Some of them are mocking uh, something about them. They always end with hit the showers. Sometimes people will say, oh, yeah, I played really well. It just didn't work out. And it's like, well, from this hand, it looks like you're, you didn't play very well. You may want to review that. It, it always ends with hit the showers, and these have become very popular in the 2019 main event. And something happened, though. The account that he was using for this, which was a... Slay, A-B-I-D-E-S. I'm not sure what that spells, but Slay is S-L-A-Y-A-B-I-D-E-S, like Slay Abides. That account cannot post anymore. It has been suspended from posting for a week because somebody reported Vrabel's showering tweets for harassment. And guess what happened? Yeah, they took action. He got suspended. It's not clear who reported it. He just got a message that he was suspended for a week from posting for inappropriate content. This got some people very angry. Makul Pahuja posted about this, saying that it was a tragedy and uh, saying that uh, we need to know who did this. And a lot of people in poker, including me, agreed that this should not have happened. People should not be reporting things like this, even if it's uh, poking fun at you. This was... uh, Really, all done in fun. Even if offensive things are said, it's uh, this is being done to everybody. It's become a thing in poker this year, and people should just have a good time with it and have a laugh about it. Uh, I'm sure something insulting will be said when I bust and I hit the showers, and I'll be fine with it. In fact, I'm going to request one of them. If he writes something mean to me, I'm not going to report him. But someone did, and he got suspended. But not to be deterred, he. Ref- returned to an old account he had from back in 2012 called Slay America Inc. That's S-L-A-Y-M-E-R-A... Sorry, let's start again. S-L-A-Y-M-E-R-I-C-A-I-N-C. It's like Slay America Inc. 
Not Slay America, but Slay America, Inc. And that's where he's doing it from now. He's, I'm sure he's showering as I'm speaking right now because people are playing the main event right now and busting. Let's see when the last one was. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, there's other people showering now. Here's some guy named uh, Ludovic uh, Galich. No, I, I think, uh, I don't know, I think someone's re-showering him back. But yeah, he's, he's, still, he's still doing it. Fifteen minutes ago, John Cantor just busted the main, so it's time to start blindly betting in Summer League. Let's go. And person plays the sports bet. He writes back, don't know you from a hole in the wall, but I'm really glad you're out. I hope you lose this sports bet. Showers, chief. And puts the shower uh, emojis. They actually, there were some people who requested that he shower the guy with terminal cancer, who we're going to talk about in a little bit when he busted, but... Uh, even Luke Vrabel said he couldn't bring himself to do that. The guy didn't request it himself. He said, I can't bring myself to be mean to a guy who's going to be dead of cancer in a few weeks, which is good. I'm glad he did. That's the one guy you probably shouldn't shower unless he wants it. I think that guy's got enough problems. Um, that's funny. Uh, Daniel Negranu busted. It was kind of a Bad, I shouldn't say bad hand, but kind of bad play for Negreanu the way he went out. He called Jax and then put it in. He called half his stack off with Jax pre and then put it in without improving. So you you would think that if if your plan was to do that, that you just put it in pre-flop. I suppose he didn't want to see an ace flop and wanted to uh, fold of an ace flop, but uh, if you're going to put in half your stack, then you might as well... Uh... Here comes Trader Ruski back. We lost him. Trader Ruski, you there? Yeah, I'm back. I, I think I might have hit a wrong button. Yeah, so Daniel kind of shot it off post-flop with Jax after calling off half his hand pre-flop, or half a stack pre-flop. So people were kind of surprised to see that. And uh, I remember... Vrabel asked him if he teaches that in the master's class when showering him. But I guess uh, Phil Helmuth busted and didn't play well either and even admitted to it. So Daniel tweeted today, kudos to Phil Helmuth for owning this one. He wasn't at his best for sure. It's difficult to play your best when tired, and that's part of the reason Phil typically favors sleep over over showing up on time. So Vrabel tweeted back, you both played truly terribly and your poor play was only eclipsed by your insufferable behavior. The two of you should fillet each other and get it over with. Maybe you can do it in, yes, you guessed it, the showers. (laughs) (laughs) So it's entertaining. I mean, go take a look at it. It's uh, right now it's on Slay America Inc. And they're coming fast and furious. He said he got a thousand new followers today on this Slay America Inc. account. Went from uh, quickly went from two forty five to twelve forty five for people who want to see the showering. I only suspect it will grow. I, I have to assume he's going to be doing this throughout the entire main. I don't think it's going to stop. I didn't get to see what he wrote to Ivy, but Ivy went out like really fast, and Ivy was in that same warehouse that I played in the big for the big Fofty, except the warehouse is not bad anymore because now it's air-conditioned. 
It wasn't when I was there because they had bags over the air conditioner they wouldn't cut down. But Phil Ivey was busted in less than an hour and apparently didn't play well. This is kind of funny. You had Ivey, Helmuth, and Negreanu all not playing well in the main event and going out. uh, Negreanu went out on day two at least, but uh, the other two went out early day one. Wow. Sometimes I'll see some of these hands played by some of these well-known top players, and it just makes me scratch my head. I don't know if they're just not into that particular event or impatient or not feeling well, but like they'll play. I've played some bad hands in my time too, but they'll play hands worse than I've ever played. And I just don't understand it. Like you'll, you'll see them make some great plays at times and just really, really seeing everything so well. And you'll see other times they just, Suck and yes, everybody has their days when they play better than others. I I talked about this in the last show. At the mixed Omaha, I played well on day one, and I played uh, poorly on day two, and I admitted it. So yes, you you have your variance in your skill in these tournaments depending on the day and how you're feeling and how your mind's working. There's a lot of little things that can come together. Have what mood you're in. Sometimes just for no reason. Sometimes for no reason. Uh, like I, I I was feeling fine that day. I just didn't play well at the mixed Omaha day two. A main event two years ago, and believe me, I'm thinking about this now. Main event two years ago, I came in with an average stack into day three. I think even a little bit above average. But some kind of decent stack I came in with day three. Not as good as I have now, but decent. And I didn't play, play well that day, and it's, it stuck with me. I played very well days one and two, and, and not well day three. I'm thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> here comes day three now. I better be careful. Better... Watch how I play tomorrow, which I'm going to do. Try to uh, think everything out carefully and not uh, not screw up. But yeah, it's it's funny that sometimes these guys don't play well. And there's a big spotlight on them, too, when they don't play well. Look at that weird Vanessa Selp thing that happened last year, where she shot it off with Jack-7 offsuit. And it was clear the guy she was doing it to was not going to fold the overpair. He had an overpair of queens, and he wasn't going to fold. So instead of just realizing the guy's not going to lay it down, and she had no pair, no draw, you think at that point, you give up. But no, she she pushed it all the way. And he didn't lay it down and called, and she was drawing dead, and she was gone. It's weird. Well, moving on here. A horrible ruling at the main event on day one forced a player to raise for about half of his stack when he was just attempting to call, and in fact, he should have been able to call. That's pretty bad. This one did not get much publicity, unlike some of the other stories we've talked about, the guy pulling his pants down and showing his dick, the guy grabbing a chip stack while drunk and getting disqualified and arrested, that everyone's talking about. This story I'm about to talk about has not really made the rounds very much, but it happened. An unknown player who goes by Frank the Tank on Twitter, he's got a difficult Twitter handle. It's a Frank TH 
552 That couldn't be hard to remember. He tweeted this on July 4th. He was playing the uh, same day I was, 4th of July, day one, right at the beginning of the event. Waiting for Jack Effel to come to Amazon Tan 435. I bet 3100 on the river. My opponent raised to 10 k I threw out one chip, a 25K chip, to call, not saying anything, and the dealer said it was a raise, to my shock. My opponent said, call the floor, and the floor came over and said my one chip was a raise. And yes, he ended up losing the hand. I don't know if he lost because the guy just called the raise and won the hand, or if the guy then put them all in and he folded. Whatever it was, he was forced to put in 25K at that point. You start with 60K. He'd already put in 3,100 on the river, and I don't know how much before that. So he probably had like 50K left or so, and he had, he was forced to put in 25K instead of 10. Again, he bet 3,100. The opponent raised it to 10K. He threw out a 25K chip and said nothing. I've always thought that was a call. That's always been a call every time I've played. There's somebody that is a call, and I had a hand where they ruled it a call in one of the one of the tournaments I played this year. Really? So someone they they thought they were raising, and, they, and then they told them it has to be a call. Yeah. Yes, and I was big blind. I ended up calling, you know. So then I got a free walk with Ace Deuce, and then of course I turned three deuces. And he had, and then he rivered a full house on me. So I wouldn't have even been in the hand, um, you know, if they had ruled it the way this guy ruled it. Uh, Unreal. So yeah, so the, so the twenty-five k chip. Let me talk about that chip. That chip used to never be in World Series of Poker events unless you got deep, and then they gave it to you after you colored up other chips. You would never start with it. This is the first year ever that you're starting with a twenty-five k chip. In fact, someone jokingly tweeted, oh, wow, it, it took me nine years, but I finally got a 25K chip event in the main event. So everybody starts with one 25K chip in the main event. It, it's got a color that I don't like. It's got a dark green color, which makes it blend in too easily with the black ones, and I had a moment of panic in, during day one when my 25K chip disappeared. And at this point, I only had about 50K total, so to disappear at that point would be horrible. Not that I want one to disappear now, but at least I have 300 right now. So if that disappeared, it would be annoying but not devastating. To, to lose 25 when you have 50 is devastating. But I couldn't find it. And I, I'm, I'm just like frantically looking through my chips and just can't find, can't find, can't find. And I'm like trying to separate the blacks, trying to find it, and I'm just not there. And I'm in a, a, a panic about it. And so I actually said out loud, um, we have a problem here. I think my 25K chip is gone. And what I was hoping was going to happen was that somebody at the table was going to admit that they – accidentally got a 25k chip they didn't think they should have and would give it back to me and be honest otherwise i'd just be screwed there'd be nothing i could do but i thought what probably happened was when i bet some of the hundreds that i grabbed the 25k and bet it as an 100 and nobody noticed or i was hoping maybe it would be found in somebody else's 100 100 stack and then you know it'd be clearly be mine but it would be very tough to get it back i'm not sure what would have happened at that point anyway uh I'm in a panic thinking this is going to be a horrible story and how embarrassing for this to that. I, I bet a 25K at one point is at 100. And just as my heart rate is really getting to rise, the guy to my right points to me 
points to uh, uh, like the pile of hundreds I was trying to go through and points to one of the chips there that was there sitting right there. It's 25k. I had sunglasses on, it made it a little harder for me to see, but but it, it is similar in color and it shouldn't be. And interestingly, the next day I talked to someone who said they had the exact same experience that they lost the hundred the 25k chip. They thought they accidentally bet it, bet it and then they la- later found it within their own hundreds. Exact same thing as mine. So this must have happened a lot. If it happened to me and, and, and it happened to a guy who was at my table the next day, uh, you had to think that a lot of people had this experience. After that, I was trying to separate them as much as possible so this wouldn't happen and that I could always clearly see where the 25s were. Not that I stacked them on top of the hundreds, but it was I, I tried to keep them far away from each other so this wouldn't happen. Anyway, back to the 25K chip. So they sh- first of all, the World Series of Poker should have really made people aware of this 25K. I mean, people see they have it, but since the 25K chip is a very big denomination chip compared to the stack that you start with, you have, you have a 60K stack to start with, 25K is in one chip. So that's almost half your stack. So they should have really, really warned people about how to use that chip. But they didn't. In this situation, it was a bad ruling. The way it goes at the World Series of Poker is that uh, with an oversized chip, if you just throw it out there, it's a call, unless the existing pot is already bigger than the size of the chip. So if there's, let's say the pot is $8,000 and someone throws out a $5,000 chip, they don't have to say $5,000. It actually is $5,000 at that point. I always say it anyway just to make sure. Like if I'm betting five thousand, I always say five thousand and throw it out there. Just I'm in that habit, so this way there's never any problem. But if you don't say it, if the pot is already five thousand or more, you throw out a five thousand chip, then then the bet is five thousand. I had always believed though that if somebody's betting and you throw out an oversized chip, that it's just a call, even no matter how big the pot is. That uh, when you're calling a bet, that if you're throwing a chip that's bigger than the bet, that it's assumed to be a call. In fact, as Trader Ruski said, I've seen the reverse where people think they're raising by just throwing out the chip and someone goes, that's a call, right? And then it's a call and then, then they can't raise that street. So this is on the river. This guy bet 3100 Someone raised ten k. This guy throws the 25 k out there to call. And no, they're told now that he's raised 25 k. He asked for Jack Effel to come down. I don't know if he ever did, but uh, as far as I know, this was never reversed. And the guy just lost the additional 15K there, which is pretty bad. This is uh, in the first level of the main event, so this probably ate a quarter of this guy's stack unnecessarily. Because the guy was trying to call for 10, and he was forced to, to, to raise 25, and either just lost at that point when the guy turned over his hand, or, or probably didn't call a re-raise. What did you Because I mean, I've, everywhere I've ever played... If somebody bets an amount and I throw in a chip, if I don't say raise, it's not a raise. Right. That's what I always – right. That's what I always had too. I mean not just World Series, everywhere. Yes. Same thing. That's exactly what I – Did they out who the floor man was? No. But – Because that's basic. I mean that's not some confusing rule where you know, there was an earthquake or the guy pulled his pants down. That must happen (laughs) you know, a hundred times a day. Right. And and, and in fact, I'll have people call – with chips which are, which are smaller than what the bet is, so I'll bet you know, thirteen thousand on the river, and someone will throw in a thousand. 
Once they throw in that first thousand, that indicates, okay, I've called your bet, and then they're required to put out the thirteen thousand. Like so, the the second they throw out a chip there, then I just uh, I, I turn over the hand, and they're and they're forced to put uh, more chips out, and it provided that they lost the hand. So, but I've, people throw up bigger chips all the time to call me. I never say, oh, that's a raise there. I I know what's a call. I, that's it. Right. I mean, what rules? If he doesn't know this rule, what rules does he know? Yeah, so so the, the crazy thing is that he was asking for someone above him to rule on this. He said waiting for Jack Effel to come over. I don't know if Jack came or if a supervisor came, but somehow this never got resolved as far as I know because the guy was fighting with people for a while about this, and from everything I was reading, this never got fixed. So I, I don't... Uh, I don't know what happened here. I don't know, unless there's something we're missing here. I don't know what happened, and it uh, like like he's still asking Jack Effel on, on Twitter the next day. Simple question for Jack Effel: Is tossing one chip in with no verb, verbal declaration a call? Yes or no? So people looked up the rules. Initially, a rule was found which seemed to maybe apply to this, but wasn't totally clear. Rule number sixty says non-standard and unclear betting participants use unofficial betting terms and gestures at their own risk these may be interpreted to mean other than what the participant intended also whenever the size of a declared bet can be reason- can reasonably have multiple meanings the bet will be valued at the largest amount possible that does not exceed the value of the pot example blinds are 200 400 the first player to act on the flop throws out a 5k chip and announces five if the amount of the pot at the time is less than 5,000, the bet will be 500. If the amount of pot is 5K or more, the bet will be 5,000. So people were saying, well, as long as the pot was less than 25,000, which it probably was here when this happened, but uh, th- then it should have been a call. But but uh, someone else pointed out that this is this Rule 60 is not about this situation. It's about verbal declarations where you'll say something like five, and what does five mean if you throw a $5,000 chip? Is it 5,000 or, 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 or 500? And I, it's funny. I actually thought this when I was betting. Uh, I think like I, I think I threw out two five thousand dollars chips, and I said eight. And then I was a little worried, like, oh crap, what if they're going to try to claim it was eight hundred? But the pot was already bigger than eight thousand at that point, so no one questioned it. And had they questioned it, I would have been correct here that it was eight thousand. But I remember thinking that as I threw it out, I go, like, oh, I hope I say eight that they don't. Uh, no one can argue it's eight thousand or eight hundred. But but anyway, someone pointed out that this rule shouldn't apply because this is about gestures or saying something in in a way that could be ambiguous. This is not about just throwing out a chip to call. Something that Rule sixty would cover, by the way. You might remember two years ago I had an incident with Phil Helmuth where he did a thumbs up motion. And threw a chip out. This is in limit hold'em, so he didn't have to spe- specify the amount. But he 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 put his thumbs up and threw a chip out. So I'm in the big blind with like seven four suited or something, and uh, I, something I would have folded. He's raising under the gun, so I was I was going to fold this, but uh, I said, uh, "Is that a raise or a call?" And then he started getting really mad at me, and I said, "Look, I just want whatever the rule is. If 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 this is." A, what you meant to do doesn't matter. It's always like that in poker. I want to know what is the rule. I'm not. I'm not going to argue with whatever the rule is. I just want to. I just want a ruling, and that's that's really what I wanted. If this is a recreational player, I would have let it slide. But Helmuth, especially, yeah, there's, I wasn't going to let him go. So I, 
the, the floor man ruled that a thumbs up does not mean raise. And uh, he got really furious, especially because I made a flush for the hand and beat his kings. But that's where Rule 60 comes in, talking about gestures that they can be interpreted to mean other than what the participant intended. So the floor man said that a gesture of thumbs up does not mean race. If you think about it, yeah, like the person could just be putting their thumbs up over something else. That's not a accepted raise uh, declaration. So as far as I was concerned, that's a, that's the same thing as accidentally throwing out a single chip and forgetting to say raise. Anyway, uh, someone found Rule 90, which applies more. Or 98, not 90. Rule 98, a guy named Cardchucker on the forum found Rule 98, which is a long rule, but uh, he posted the portion that applies to this. Rule number 98, prior bet chips not pulled in. If a player with a prior with prior bet chips not pulled in faces a raise and bets silently, that bet is ruled as followed. A, if the prior bet chips don't cover the call, one, if the prior bet chips are not disturbed, merely dropping a new over chip onto the pl- prior chips is a call. Okay, that's what happened here. Let's think about it. They didn't pull the, any of these chips into the pot yet from the river. There's a bet of 3,100, a raise of 10,000. It's all sitting in front of both players. Nothing's been pulled in, so this is rule 98 applies here. The prior bet chips, which was the 3,100, um, <clears throat> they don't, they, they wouldn't uh, cover what this person raised. So 3,100 could not possibly cover the, uh, the 10,000 raise. So. And it says if the prior chips are not disturbed, disturbed meaning if you pull the chips back and then do something else. But that's not what happened. All that happened was that uh, um, the 3,100 was bet, the 10,000 was raised, and then he threw out a 25 chip, saying nothing. So that was dropping a new over chip, exactly what happened here. Dropping a new over chip onto the prior chips is a call. Okay. Seems pretty clear to me. The only way this may have changed, and we don't have full clarification on this, is that if the player picked up the thirty-five, the 3,100 and then threw the 25, then it might have been a raise. I don't know the rule on that one. But provided he just threw the 25 in, then that's a call. So it looks like he got screwed here. I would like to know if, if he did pick up the 3,100 and drop the 25 at that point, if, if that would have been a raise. <clears throat> that would be the only way this could possibly be excused. But I think this is the rule that, that probably this rule 98 is what applies to it. I think the guy just got screwed here. I think... Uh, the floor man got confused and believed that the 25K, if you, if you throw that back out there, that it's uh, that's like raising him. Right, but Truff, even if he did pull the 31K back, why would it be a raise? I, I don't know. Because I mean, I, I he's calling 10K. Yeah, and, by the way, did they say anything about what the other guy who was in the hand was saying? No. Like, was he saying, oh, that's a raise? He was just probably quiet. I, I don't know. It, it, actually, I don't know if it uh, – no, the other player – sorry, the other player did say it should be a raise. The other player did say it should be raised, and they called the floor over is what happened. 
as, as he said. Uh, so, so that's a scumbag move. Too. Yeah, yeah. The, he said my my opponent said the floor. My opponent said, call the floor over. The dealer said it was a raise, and the opponent said call the floor over. So the it was a little bit of a scumbag move. The opponent could have just said, uh, no, I'm fine with it just being a call or something like that. Like, um, yeah, that that was an angle to try to get the extra money out of there. But uh, yeah, it was it's pretty bad. I I'd, I'd always thought now now I I'm always so paranoid about things like this happening now. Like I I really do verbalize. Anything that could possibly be unclear, so I'll actually say yeah, call. That, I I'm sorry, Jeff, to cut you off, but I agree. That said, all the things we talked about, especially the big tournaments where they're having the waiters deal probably at some tables, <laughs> you have to make it idiot proof. I call, I raise. Yeah, you really do. Right. Yeah, and, and that's and that's that's what I'll like. I'll 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 say okay, call. Then I'll throw chips out, or uh, or else when I throw the when I throw chips out, I'll say how much it is, even if it's the full amount of the chip, and it would still be a bet. You know, if I'll throw it on the turn when the pot's twenty twelve thousand, and I bet you five thousand, I'll say five thousand or five as I throw it, and uh, um, and I'll say yeah, raise. And before. look the dealer in the eye. Like before you even move the chips, I usually look at the dealer. I'm making it seventy eight hundred, then put it in the chip or whatever. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, the only time I don't say it is is, is uh, well. Sometimes I'll say raise anyway. Sometimes I won't if it's very clear it's going to be raised. Like if I throw out a, f- a few chips and it's clear that that it has to be raised at that point, that there's I'll I'll just do that sometimes. But uh, I I do over verbalize because of fear of things like this happening. So it's pretty bad story if it's the way it happened. What was funny is this Frank the Tank, some people were arguing back and forth with him, and, and some got to insult him. And then he he got to uh, threaten everybody, this Frank the Tank, or not really threaten, but basically offer to fight anybody. He said, uh, where is this here? I do my best to play by the rules. Anybody talking smack from the comfort of their home can meet me at Extreme Couture any time. And let's see what you got. <laughs> this guy, he's, he's clearly not used to Twitter arguments. He, he got to that about uh, people could meet him to fight him at Extreme Couture. And I, I, I guess this guy's probably like into the MMA stuff and all that. So he probably, uh, he, the, the picture, the one picture I see of him, he doesn't look that big. Well, sort of. I, I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell. There's a picture of him with like four drinks in front of him, <laughs> with with poker chips. I don't, I don't know. That that makes me believe him a little bit less if he's got four drinks in front of him. It wasn't at the main event, but it's a picture of him at some other. What looks like a tournament with four drinks in front of him. Yeah, you could see he's getting mad. He wrote, uh, "Your second grade math and spelling are off, Einstein. It's not a question of math." Another tweet: "One chip is a call, jackass." So, it's getting pretty heated there. Well, I don't know what to say about that one. Really weird ruling. But I've seen some horrible rulings in the past. So, it's possible this happened exactly as said. The main event, for me... 
is going pretty well right now. Look how long I took to talk about myself. I talked a little bit about myself at the beginning about the limit holding, but I took a while to get to my own main event. As I said, I played day 1B. I got a tremendously good starting table for the first few hours. First few hours, it was me and like about five recreational players, and that was it. I think we were playing five-handed for a while, then six-handed, but there was a dead stack there. There's actually two dead stacks there for a while, then it became one. For a while, it, it was really me and all recreationals. And the only tough thing about this was that they were open raising and re-raising so big that it was costing you a lot of extra money compared to what it normally would in the main for hands you would enter and did not win. (laughs) And I just had to deal with that. There was just more variance to it, unfortunately. But people were opening up like, you know, the blinds were 100-200, and not just one, but several people were opening to things like 1,200 or 1,500. <laughs> I haven't seen this in like almost 15 years. A long time ago, you know, like 15 years ago, people would open between like three and five times usually. And then that started to shrink over the years. Now it's shrunk so much that if you're opening 2.5 times, it's considered big. There's some people who only min-raise now when they open. There's some people who go between min-raise and 2.2 times. But uh, people were opening like 6, 7, 8 times the blind. And then they'd re-raise for several more times. And so it got tough sometimes to decide what hands to come in with and then how far to go with them post-flop, knowing that this is a very deep event. I had a tough one at the beginning where one of these players opened to 1,200. This is a 100, 200 blinds. And then a guy three bets to 5,000. What do I see in the small blind? Queens, the thing I did not want to have to see. I got Shit. Can I really lay down queens here, pre-flop? <laughs> you start with 60K, but you know, I'm forced to call 5K to a raise and three bet at the 100-200 level because these people don't know how to bet. In, in this type of structure, in this day and age, it's, I mean, they can do what they want, but that's, uh, that's totally uh, way too much. And then I'm thinking, well, these recreational players, they... Uh, they like to overbet when they've got high pairs or ace king, and you know, like I'm trying to figure out: are the queens possibly good here? And I thought to myself, well, at the very least, I got to see if I flop a queen because if I do, I'm sure I'm getting this guy stack. So I called the five thousand. The original raiser of the twelve hundred folded. The guy with the so we see a flop ten ten two, or ten ten three, I think it was. So I check, I go, okay, if he puts out any kind of sizable bet here, I'm folding. Like, if he bets 10K, I'm folding at this point. Like, he bets 5K. I'm like, oh, shit, he, got, he wrote me into another call here. Especially because there's two 10s, so I was hoping he'd maybe give me a free card on the turn. So, and I also thought, well, you know, since he bet 5, maybe he's got uh, jacks or ace-king. So I've got to, I think if I call the 5 and he's got worse than me, he's going to slow down and we can see it at the end for free. So I, I called the five, the turn's a two, and he fires, like, another ten. And I said, okay, screw this, I'm done. 
So I, I tossed it. He showed me aces. But right there, that, that ate uh, 10K right there of my 60. Which is the main event you don't want. Then I had some others. You know, I, had to, I, I just kept coming in with... I had pairs. A lot of times decent pairs. Nines, tens. I, I just... Uh, I wasn't getting where. In fact, I had uh, jacks twice, tens... Uh, jacks twice, queens and kings, and all four lost. Not for huge pots, but it adds up. So I wasn't doing very well there. I was never getting killed. I was never below 40 from my 60 starting, but I was in the 40s for a long time, for hours there. In the meantime, some better players showed up. Aaron Mermelstein, who we talked about on the last show, the one who had money stolen from him at the Florida Fort Lauderdale airport. I had never met him before. He ended up to my direct right. Some good Euro player showed up and sat in one of the empty seats. They eventually picked up the stack that was blinding off. Someone no-showed. They actually get their money back, believe it or not. But they picked up the stack who no-showed after a few hours. And that was replaced by a better player. So eventually better players occupied the empty seats, which is too bad because it didn't have to go that way. Like I, I, We could have gotten more bad players there, but we didn't. We got good players in every one of the empty seats that, they, that, that were abandoned. And then when a few people busted, they were replaced by players that ranged between kind of like okay to good. So the table got worse. I decided that I'm not, I'm not going to let this bother me. I said, uh, yes, I'm off to a bad start. Yes, this was a tremendously good table where I could have cleaned up and I, and I lost there. But even though the table's gotten somewhat worse, this is still the main event. It's still very slow. I can afford to wait. I'm not crippled by any means. I'm just in the 40s. I've just got to be patient and wait for the times that I can pick up chips. And I did. And I started to pick up chips. And really, without any kind of major decision, the closest thing I had to a major decision was the thing with the queens against the aces at the very beginning. Beyond that, I never really had any major decisions. And just uh, started picking up pots here and there. Never went all in. Never faced anybody all in, except occasionally I put like a short stack all in near the end. But uh, other than that, I never had my chips at risk all in. Never doubled up. Just uh, never won any huge pots. The biggest pot I won was one where I had uh, quad nines. Flopped the set of nines on the flop, and then by the river I had uh, another nine. Got action on the flop and turn, but not the river. Where he folded. That was the biggest hand I won all day of day one. And I finished at what was almost the high for the day of 93,500. I think my high was 94 something, so it was virtually my high. I figured that was about average. It turned out it was a little bit above average. It turned out average was about 82,000. You may be surprised to hear this. You start with 60K. How can you play a full day of 10 hours of play and, and average is 82,000? Well, that's the main event for you. Everything plays very slow. The blinds are low. Everybody's cautious. So... Barring cooler type hands or people that shoot off their chips when they're not supposed to, you're not going to go a whole lot up or down on the first day, typically. You now have the option to enter on day two. 
any of the day twos. You can enter two A, the two A B day or the two C day. I think that's crap. The reason I think it's crap, and I know Ari Engel disagrees with me because he tweeted back to me when I talked about this. The reason it's crap is because since the first day is inconsequential for most people in that they're not going to win or lose a whole lot on the first day, I think it's not fair that you let people just skip it. I think it's not fair somebody can buy into day two and have a stack that's not short. Yeah, it's below average, but if the average is 82 and they buy in with 60, they're right there. They don't have to double up. They don't even have to have 50% up. They just have to win a third more than their current stack is, and they're, they're right there, which is easier to do at that point because the blinds have gone up. So I think they just should be required to put in the time, and if they don't want to put in the time, then they're stack should blind off. I think if you want to play the main event, you have to go through that day. You should just be able to skip it. Now, I'm here to play poker. I'm not here to skip it. You know, It may be positive expectation to skip it. I don't know if it is or not. It is true you are up against uh, fewer recreational players on day two. It is true that some of the recreational players are either out or short at that point. But still, you do avoid having anything bad happen by skipping the first day, and you also get to skip a day. You get to skip a whole day and do other things. I just don't think that's right. I think you should be forced to play it. I came into day two knowing I'm a little above average, but knowing that that was going to be the much more consequential day, that that's almost like the real day one, because day one, you had to get really lucky to have a big stack. Alan Kessler was one of those people who got really lucky. Among other things, he had the dream scenario of flopping quads versus top set full. He actually had fours on a 7-4-4 flop against pocket sevens. And can you imagine you flop top set full and there's all kinds of action and your opponent's Alan Kessler? That's the one time you're going to be scared. <laughs> Actually, it was a three on the... It went seven four four three three, And then Kessler put it all in. <laughs> the guy's got to be going, crap. Usually I'm thrilled about this, but against Kessler, oh no. But yeah, they got all the chips in, and not only that, I mean, they, he just he just auto call. I mean, he wasn't thinking, was he? I I don't think so. Uh, he, the threes gave him another hand that can beat him, but you know, or or ace four or something like that could have you know you could be up against. The, you, you're just that's what I'd be thinking there. I'd be thinking I'm against like ace four suited, and someone's now got the full house with a four and thinks that's good, and then uh, <laughs> now you're going to show right. them the bad news of your sevens. And, and it could have been a straight flush there too, maybe. Um, so, anyway, that, that hand was amazing, especially for Kessler. They both had decent chips at that point. I think they both had, like, 150K coming in, so this really rocketed Kessler up high. Wow. So, uh, Kessler finished as, like, the number five stack of the day. Who would have guessed that? Usually the ones who finish as the very top stacks of the day one of the main event are the ones playing way too loose. But Alan Kessler, of all people, is, like, the number five stack. 
He played day two, and he he continued to chip up some, but he finished with like four oh six. The game with three something, so he he went up, but didn't uh, continue killing it. He's obviously still in very good shape. Uh, but I came in knowing that there's a lot of different ways this could go. As far as my table draw, I recognized three names at the table. Didn't really know any of them particularly well. But there were three people at the table who had results. I shouldn't say I recognized them. When I looked them up, I was concerned about those three. Two of them were to my right, one was to my left. And the guy to my right was the only one I actually knew because I had played a lot of Limit Hold'em with him. And he was a good player in my Limit Hold'em games with him, an Asian guy. There's also a uh, decent L.A. uh, Asian guy to my left and also a guy from Ireland in seat one to my right. I was in seat three. They all had the chip stacks about the same as mine, kind of between 88 and 98. I had 93. Of those four people, the three of them and me, I was the only one to survive. In fact, uh, two of them were gone... uh, by the middle of the day. And one gone a little bit later in the day. A name that I didn't know, but apparently uh, is more relevant than I thought he would be, was uh, Jared Smith. J-E-R-O-D Smith. He's a, a guy in his mid-30s who uh, was from Illinois I looked up his results. He hadn't really cashed in anything that was uh, bigger than a 1K buy-in. He didn't have a ton of caches. I hadn't really heard of him before. I actually assumed he'd be kind of cautious because this looked like it looked like he hadn't cashed anything in an event of this size before. Well, he wasn't. He was actually he was to my left, not to my direct left, but he's a few seats to the left. He was uh, somewhat loose, so a little bit tough to deal with, and he he knew what he was doing. He he wasn't a recreational player. Um, I didn't bother to look up his Twitter. He knew who I was. I didn't bother to look up his Twitter, and it's probably better I didn't. Because as the day went along, um, yeah, everybody at the table talked, and I talked to him some. So as the day went along, uh, it seemed like I got along with him. Well, it turned out that when I first showed up there, he tweeted that he, he tweeted, "If you show up to the World Series of Poker main event wearing your bracelet, I hate you." <laughs> Guess who that was directed at? <laughs> so he instantly hated me for wearing my bracelet to the main event, which, by the way, I mainly do because I I want people to respect my bets more. I want. Uh, people think, oh, this guy's a bracelet winner. I've got to watch out for him. That's what I want. That's the main reason I wear it. And that's the main reason I don't wear it when I'm up against uh, tougher opponents who I know that's not going to matter to them. Like the 10K events, I don't wear it, aside from the main. Um, I'm sure he thought even less of me when uh, prior to, I think it's the first break, I had a hand go down that um, was interesting, and I had to think about it a little bit. I probably took a little too long to call in the river, but I had queen eight of clubs in middle position, and everybody looked ready to run out to the bathroom at the break. 
because if you don't get out there fast, you're in a tremendous line. So everybody was really looking to leave, and I had queen eight of clubs in middle position. So I go, okay, that's an obvious raise here. And not only that, the big blind was already gone. So all I had to do was steal the small and make everyone else fold. So sure enough, fold, 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 and it gets to Jared Smith, who calls on the button. And I said, you know you're not going to be able to go to the bathroom now. <laughs> he said, oh, well, I've, got, I've got to keep you honest here. So that is really what he was doing. He actually called with a crappy hand there to keep me honest, believe it or not, or hoping i just give up. Well, I flopped a queen. The flop was like a queen, low card, low card, the queen 6-2 or something with uh, uh, two hearts. I had queen eight of clubs. I bet he called. The turn was now a queen of diamonds. You'd think I would be happy to see that queen, but I actually wasn't that happy to see it because I knew this could be a problem for me if he had trips with a better kicker or he had uh, flopped a set because uh, it's hard to get away from. But yet it's the main event, the deep structure, so you can't just auto-call off all your chips with something like this with the queen, the trip queen's eight kicker. So I was afraid this could be tough to play. So I didn't want to blow up the pot anymore. Believe it or not, I hit the trips and I checked. And he bet 7,000. And I, I called. The river was an off-suited 10. So the, on the good side, uh, the flush didn't hit. And if he had the flush draw, he missed. On the bad side, I was afraid he was going to lay out a big bet on me. And I'd have to decide what to do. They put out 18,000. Which, not a huge bet. If I lost it, if I called that, remember I called seven before that. If I lost it, I wouldn't be really short, but it's still something to put in. You know, it's still, I've still got to put in, uh, it's not like I had 300 at that point. And he had a ton of chips, Druff? Yeah, he had, he didn't have a ton, but he had, uh, he had more than me. And uh, he had a, a, a well above average. So anyway, he put out 18. So I thought I'm probably calling, but I had to reason it out. So I actually said out loud, I, I, said, I knew if I called, he's going to see it. So it's not like, uh, so I said, really? I said, you really still firing there? I said, well, you know, I don't think I can lay this down. I think for a second. I go, I'm not trying to stall you. I know you want to go to the bathroom, but uh, just I got to think. I go, uh, nope, no way I can lay this down. And I threw out the 18,000 and... He said, well, you're going to be happy you made that call and turned over 9-4 of hearts for the missed flesh draw. 9 high. So I turned over the queen 8, and he's like, I could tell he was annoyed that I took that long to make the call. I didn't sit there for minutes with it. I just you know, I probably sat there for maybe 45 seconds deciding what to do instead of just instantly snapping out the 18. But I, I didn't want to instantly snap out the 18. I wanted to, I wanted to think about it for a second. No, that's good, Ralph. And just early on, too, you have to get in the mode of just thinking about decisions. Yeah. Even though there might have been a night. Just because, you know, that's the, you know, these tournaments, it's like you play well, and then you have one fucking brain fart, and you're out. Right. So I, 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 I was just reasoning it. I was, I was just stopping for a second going, okay, wait a minute. There is the flush that I could have missed, but is there anything else that he's betting this much? If he doesn't have me out kicked with a queen or a set, and I go and I said yes, there's the flush draw. There's a, you know he could just have some other pocket pair that thinks that, and thinks I'm checking because the, the, I don't have a queen, 
like the way I played it, it's not like he's sure I have a queen. So I go, I, yeah, I've got, I've got to call it. And of course, had I folded, that would have been a big mistake. So, so yeah, I, and I was leaning call the whole time. I didn't have to talk myself into a call. I was really leaning call, but I wanted to stop and think about it. But anyway, he, he, he then tweeted about, he didn't mention me or even the bracelet winner. He just mentioned uh, that uh, he had a bunch of chips, but now he's lost uh, a good amount back right before the break when he got knit rolled by trips is what he wrote on his Twitter. Now, I hadn't seen any of this yet. I looked at this after the event was over for the day. The reason I looked at his Twitter after the event was over for the day was because he tweeted to me that uh, this is during the Luke Vrabel being banned from Twitter discussion because he and Luke are friends. And that I knew by the end because we had talked about Luke somewhat, about the showering tweets. And Luke hadn't been banned yet, but we had uh, discussed Luke's ban. Anyway, because he saw me participating in that discussion, he actually tweeted that uh, he said, I actually bashed you on Twitter earlier, but uh, then I played with you the entire day and I've been reading your tweets here and, I, and I've decided that I liked you. And then he actually showed me another tweet he made that was a follow-up tweet, like a reply to his own tweet about, uh, I hate you if you're the bracelet winner. And then he showed me the reply that he had wrote that actually played with the guy the entire day and he's good people. So he actually had already corrected. Oh. So he so he actually corrected that that he that he thought I was uh, a quote good people after playing with me the entire day. So here I, I I won somebody over. This that's uh, it's, it's better than going the other way. Better than someone liking me initially and deciding they hate me by the end of the day after being with me the whole day. There, this is someone that initially disliked me and then by the end uh, thought highly of me. So that that was nice and. Uh, he finished actually with the best stack of anybody at the table. He he had some fortunate hands go down. He had one set over set against the guy next to me. Uh, he he had some good hands go down. So he uh, he finished with four hundred six k as the table chip leader. I finished with three hundred almost exactly even three hundred four hundred. I got three hundred thousand four hundred was my end total. I never broke three twenty. Even though I was at 287 at the end of the first five hours of play. So we had five hours left to play. I had 287, and somehow I never saw more than 320. Part of that was because I took a little bit of a hit when I had 7-8 suited, and the board came 9-10 jack. And I was against a guy who had about starting stack coming into the hand. So we, I just put him in right there. I'm like, you know, if he's good. It was jack. Jack ten nine two hearts, and I and he didn't have a big stack, so I go okay. Well, I'm just putting him in now. If he's got a piece of it, he's probably calling. If he does not, he's folding. But whatever, I'm not screwing around here. Don't have to worry about losing a fortune to him because he doesn't have that many chips. So he bet four k. I check raised them all in for his final uh, fifty for his final like forty seven. And he called and was very unhappy and said, you got it, don't you? And I go, well, I got the bottom end of it. And then he looked unhappy and threw his cards down. Now, at that point, I was thinking he's going to throw down aces or something like that. No, he throws down pocket jacks. So I understand being unhappy to see I have a straight, but the, the, his reaction was really like it was hopeless. I kind of had the feeling he was going to win the hand at that point. Yes, I was the favorite by a good margin, but... I just had a feeling I was going to lose that one. Sure enough, 10 on the turn. That was that. 
So that that took me down a little bit. Fortunately, his stack wasn't bigger. Now, if he had a big stack, I actually wouldn't have just shoved in like that, even if I knew I'd get a call. That's uh, wasn't going to be that reckless. But with that guy's stack, that was the best move. But anyway, uh, that took me down some, and I had to fight back some. And uh, then I had one other hand with ace-jack ace against ace-queen with an ace on the board, and the guy played it kind of weird. He he checked the flop. I understand betting the flop and then checking the turn because he thinks that uh, maybe I've got better than ace-queen, but he checked the flop, so he checked the flop. I bet there's a different person. He checked check called the flop, check called the turn, and then the river was a king. And I knew he didn't even have ace-king, but I go like, you know what? I I just have a feeling this guy's got ace-queen. So he checked, I checked, and sure enough, he turned over ace-queen. So that, that hand took me down a little bit, too. Anyway, for, from where I got, once I got to the 287, I never got lower than uh, than 240, and I never get above 320. Every time I got myself over 300, then I would have some kind of setback again. So I finished at 300. Average is 182 from days 2A and B. 2C is going right now. I assume the average will be somewhere near there. They tend to be fairly close. And we are returning to play... uh, Now I'm forgetting. I think we're playing probably... Actually, I don't even know. I have to look it up. We were playing 1K, 2K, 2K as our final level. Where we were... So every round was costing 5K at that point. 2K big blind Annie, 1K small, 2K big. So it's still pretty deep. It still moves slowly. We may not get into the money tomorrow. It may take all the way to day four. I estimated, based upon the field size, that about 2,700 people will be in day three. And that about 1,270 or so will cash. But these are approximate numbers. Caller, you are on the air. Caller. Hello. Hey, hi, uh, uh, Todd. Uh, this is Tyrone Chen again. Oh, Tyrone, you people have, have gotten used to your calls here. You've become a frequent appear, uh, frequent appearances on the show. So, what's going on? Oh, I, I, I basically first, first thing first is that I want to tell you congratulations. Really, really, that uh, I don't think the average poker player doesn't realize that uh, how high it is to cash in the World Series of Poker. It is very, very difficult. I guess with with the man of your talent, uh, cash three times, I think it's pretty good. I, I realize that you're running to some bad luck. But, uh, uh, but congratulations. Second of all, I'm chained for you every day. I watch your Twitter to uh, to want to tell you that, uh, uh, that I hope minimum you cash on the whole series of poker. Yeah, thank you. Uh-huh. Thank you. Uh, I, 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 I think at this point it's looking good you will cash, right? Well, I hope so. Yeah, well, at this point I'm, I'm projected to cash. If, if I would have average luck from this point forward, I would cash. Uh, in fact, I would I'd do more than min cash. If I were to get average luck from this point forward and play average, then I would get um, 
fairly deep, but not really deep and, and easily cashed. That would be the projection. But of course, that's just uh, uh, so many things can happen. I, I could uh, run extremely well and, and end up with one of the big stacks and really go deep. I could uh, run very poorly and be out fast tomorrow with a series of bad hands. It's it's you, you never know with these things. But uh, this is actually yeah, you the, never know. this is the best you, position. You I, I'll say this: this is the best position I've ever sat in coming to day three. Even in 2010, when I finished 88th. I was in a worse position than this, and even in some other years where I was doing well at the beginning and didn't cash, by the time we were done with day two, I was not in as good of a position as this. I'm, I've had better day ones than I did this time. Not that this day one was bad, but I didn't ha- I've had better day ones. I had a really good day one in 2012. I've had better day ones, but uh, I had a good one in 2017. But as far as by the end of day two, this is the best I've done in all the years I've played the World Series. So uh, while it's not a gigantic stack, it's uh, I've, I've always kind of struggled with day two. This time I did not. And uh, we'll see if uh, day three, which has also been a challenge for me, day three, I made day three in 2011, 12, 13, and 17. and did not cash any of them, despite the fact that I came in with uh, okay chips on all of those. So that's that's wow. been that's been kind of uh, frustrating. In, in 2010, I actually came in with short chips into that to, to day three, and made it all the way to day six. Late day wow. six. So so that's uh, so you never know where what, what way it goes. On the average, when did they catch the first third day day four three or four? It's projected right now. It, it's projected either late day three or early day four right now. That's the projection. Yeah. I had to say one thing that you do made a m- mistake. That I'm, I made. I generally is a limit poker player. I learned le- lesson. You remember the hand you have Queen Jack uh, uh, when uh, when you river a uh, a, a ten and uh, ten uh, you were uh, you were race black back and forth. You talk about that hand. Uh, which in limit Remember that? In, in the limit game? Limit poker. I'm not yeah. sure which hand you're talking about, but uh, the are, you, are you talking yeah. about Tyrone when he didn't get the extra bet in? He had the straight. Oh yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Or, the, or the one who had seven bets with yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the reason is the reason is that when I play limit poker, that I I would talk horrible lesson because some poker players are really, really bad is that uh, when you have a nut, you just go ahead and raise and raise. Nothing is wasted time. Well, Especially there's no race. I'll tell you why. I'll t- no it, yeah, it, it, the 1500 event, I probably should have done this. I'm used to playing these these middle and upper stakes limit hold'em games where I just know the players there are competent enough to not do that. And even the ones that aren't that good. So I think I was too used to that, and uh, I didn't think about the fact that – and this this guy also hadn't done anything that stupid. He wasn't a good player by any means, but he hadn't done anything that stupid to go seven bets with uh, without the nuts there. But I just thought that I, – I really just thought there's no point to re-raise. And, in fact, nobody at the table even questioned. When they saw this, they uh, – uh, nobody even – said anything to me like like everyone kind of understood when I just called like the second I just called there was said, I'll chop it up like no one thought it was even a chance that we weren't chopping it up so but I yes I should have I should have put and did that you la- notice did, did you notice this that the smaller straight was available 
Uh, yes, but uh, but uh, we went so many bits. We went four on the uh, we went four on the turn. I actually didn't put in the fifth. I could have gone five, but because there were two spades out there and I didn't have the spades, I, I was afraid I was being free rolled. So I said I'll wait till the river, and if it's not uh, if it's a safe river, then I'll, I'll then we'll raise. So I did that, and when we went th- when he three bet me, I said okay, it's got to be. So screw it, fine call. Then and and that's it. And I couldn't believe that wasn't it. So. It, the, the good thing is I didn't have a full I, I didn't have a full bet left. I only had like five hundred left at that point, so I I, I only cost myself <laughs> like five hundred at that point. Yeah, it, it, it didn't cost you that much. But that, one of the things I learned is uh, early lesson is that one time I pay a small limit poker to get down to two people where I had the nut and the, the guy raised. I re-raise. We can re-raise forever. And the whole table, a couple of guys say, stop wasting time. You have the same hand. I was influenced by that. And it turned out to be I had the highest straight, he had the lowest straight. Uh, exactly the same situation. So I, I learned my lesson is that uh, I don't care. I'm not going to waste. Uh, when I have a nut, I'm not going to waste my time. Uh, I'm, I'm going to spend my time, even though eventually you're going to chop her up. <laughs> that's just based, that's that that's that sort of remind me of that lesson. Yeah, no, I got a lesson there too. No, I'm not gonna unless it's someone I know is not gonna like you know another regular player who's who's good. I'm not gonna go a million bets with him in that case. I know there's no way he's doing it. But but anyone I don't know that that I I don't think is a good player, even if they're not horrible, I'll probably just go go with mm-hmm. it till the end there. Uh, and then of course they could always just call too at some point. So that's. Uh, but I, I'm not going to stop in the future once I have the nuts on the river, even if I think we're chopping just to save time. Yeah, that was a mistake. Anyway, so yeah, thanks for calling. Did Ty- you did wait, Tyrone? Did you play any tournaments? Yeah, did you play any? That's a good question. Did you play any no. tournaments? No, no, sir. Uh, no, no, sir. I'm not good enough. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a small limit poker player. But however, I don't know what percentage is. I'm a I'm a winning play, poker player every year. I don't know what percentage a player play recreation poker that uh, you win. Uh, I mean, for for 25 years, I'm all, every year I'm a little bit ahead. Well, what what type what what type, what, what level game do you play? <laughs> this is going to be embarrassing. I play X Golfer, a two six limit game. We only won blind. Okay, that's not embarrassing. No, you know what? There's a lot of low limit players listen to this show, so it's not embarrassing. This is not. Uh, this isn't uh, a show with I, a big audience I, of, of pros. I I, I run. Uh, I basically run. Uh, I won seven out of uh, ten times uh, on the thing because I can sit there and wait for a hand. Because yeah. There's only one two dollar Annie. One oh. two dollar Annie. Interesting. Never heard of before. No. It's the goodest, good, good, best bargain. Then you you can almost pay like low limit because the the maximum bet you can bet is six, but it's a variable bet. So so you can get anywhere from two to six dollars. Interesting. That is a a fabulous deal. Well, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you're I'm glad you're doing well there in that in that game, and that you've won every year for 25 years. That's you're doing something right then. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one one of the things is I think it is a very sad situation that in one strip one one half of the strip is MGM 
and another high to the strip is Caesar. They take all the competition out. out uh, it's not good for the poker player. It's not good for people who work in the casino. Everything else is, I think it's a very sad story. I, I'm looking, I think it's in the good old days, there are so many competitions. There's always good deal for everything. Yeah, no, you're right. I've said, I've said that before. You know, it's never good for the player when competition disappears, and that's what's been happening. The only advantage anyone gets is that they keep the same status at the different properties, and they can travel around the country and keep the same status. But it's it's not worth it, though. There's it's it's much better to have more competition everywhere, and I I don't like it, and I see you don't like it, and there's good reason for that. Oh, okay. One more thing is that you know that uh, I met. Barry Greenstein a couple times. He, I think he's one of the nicest guys in the poker community. He's always personal. He always uh, talks to you. He always gives you an honest answer, everything else. I really like Barry Greenstein. I don't know what you think about it. I, I'm, I'm fine with Barry Greenstein. He wasn't very happy with me because of my criticism of his stepson, Joe Seabach, over the whole UB thing. Uh, yeah. He uh, he did, interestingly enough, the last time he talked about me, he actually said something positive and talked about uh, my part in the exposure of the of the UB thing or, or and the, the absolute poker thing. But uh, he just didn't like the way I treated his stepson, which which his stepson deserved, but it's his stepson, so that's why he's biased. Uh, as far as how he acts in person, yeah, he's, he's always been pleasant when, I, when I've seen him, when I've played with him. Uh, he is kind of like a quiet, soft-spoken guy. He's never obnoxious at the table, so that, that, that part's all true, and I, I, I can see why you like him. Uh, one of the things that uh, it was interesting, one time I, I saw him to pick big state on the Chinese poker. I said to, to Barry, I said, is there any skill involved in this Chinese poker? He said, absolutely not. <laughs> Boy, that was interesting. That, yeah. That's a, that, no, there, that was interesting. There definitely is skill in that. That's, that, that's not correct. That, that must be skill in No, the there is. Poker, there's, right? definitely, there's definitely skill in it, yeah. Okay. 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 Well, All right. You, you guys have a good – let me say that again. I'm going to follow you on, on day four, which is tomorrow, and uh, good luck, good luck. I'm, I'm, I hope you cash. Then you then you can go on or not. Yeah, I hope so too, and I, I hope I hope this can be this can be a good year for the main event for me. So we will see. A lot of poker left to be played, and hopefully it lands the right way for me. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Okay, thank you, Tyrone. Bye. Bye. One of these days, I'm going to have to. I meant I meant to ask him if uh, Tyrone was his name at birth. We'll have to ask him that next time he calls. All right, so. Getting back to the thing about the main event, they had a, uh, I guess that's time to move on to the topic of the size of the field. The biggest main event ever was in 2006 when Jamie Gold won it. And there's a reason why that was the biggest event, and that's because that was the last year before the UIGEA made it a lot tougher to play online poker. That was the first crackdown. The second crackdown was Black Friday in 2011. Prior to 2006, not only was the online poker boom at its peak, but they were actually allowing poker sites to buy people indirectly. 
So, for example, if you got your seat through PokerStars, you could actually go to the PokerStars suite, and they would hand you your seat card. They could actually register you directly. After the UIGEA passed in late 2006, starting the next year in 2007, the World Series, in order to protect themselves legally, decided that they were not going to do this anymore, that if sites were going to buy people in, that they'd have to do this kind of under the table. They weren't trying to stop it, but they weren't going to help facilitate it. They weren't going to allow third-party sites to buy people in anymore. The main event of that year had uh, close to 9,000 participants. It had 87.73 people play, myself being one of them. I didn't cash that year. Someone who did cash that year was one Brian Mikon. Brian Mikon cashed in, uh, I think, 32nd or something. Um, He was the only person that I saw the entire time who beat Jamie Gold when Jamie Gold was ahead. Jamie Gold was so good at getting it all in. Well, he wasn't good. He was so lucky with getting it all in where his opponent had so many ways to catch and just never did. Every time you get in all with Jamie Gold that year, it would just be brick, brick for you if you had a draw. Any way out to win the hand wouldn't come for you, except with Mikon. Mikon got it all in with twos against tens and got the two. Only person I saw bad beat Jamie Gold the entire series. He just ran amazing. But that was the biggest year, and then it started to decline very quickly. It declined so much that the year I finished 88th, there were 7319 people. That was four years later in 2010. There were actually more people in that event in 2010 than any other year except for 2006. So that shows you how quickly it went down. Here, we'll take another call before we continue on this. Call, you're on the air. Caller, hello. Hello? Yes. You're on the air. Turn turn off the radio in the background, too. Sorry, man. <laughs> I still hear it. Sorry, I'm just turning it down. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> it's off now. Okay. So who's calling ben here? from Australia. How are you? Who, who are you? Who? Ben from Australia. From Australia. You're actually in Australia right now? Ben? Yeah, I am. I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Oh. Home of the Aussie Millions. All right. Very good. Wow. So what's going on? Yeah. Uh, a bit of a fan of... Bit of a fan of the show. Wish you all the best in the main event. I'm sort of following you on Twitter. Um, what I did want to ask you about is the frustration with the telecast of the main event, with everybody uh, trying to get on and trying to watch between Poker Go and CBS Access and ESPN. Would you like to comment on that? Yeah, well, it's, it's a it's a mess, and this this has been a problem the whole series where there's so many different places to find the coverage. Uh, up until the main event, you couldn't find any coverage for free. You had to either watch it on PokerGo or the CBS All Access, and both of them were previous serv- pre- premium services. So if you wanted to watch it all, you would have to have both services you'd have to pay for, which people hated. And and then with the main event, while, while there, were, there is some coverage on ESPN that you can watch for free, there's other coverage you can't, and it is frustrating to people. And it's, yeah, it's, right it's, now, we can't watch it. The yeah. main event's on, and we can't watch it on anything right now. 
And I think this is an example of the World Series overextending short-term profits versus the long-term health of the game. They should really want this to be accessible to everybody who wants to watch it. They shouldn't make it hard to watch. And if it's going to be a subscription model, it should be a very clear subscription model where it doesn't require two separate uh, things you have to subscribe to or search all over where it is. It should be something very easy to watch and find, and one subscription should cover it all. And this entire thing's been a mess, and the, the point is they, they didn't want to turn down the money. They get money from Poker Go for this. They get money from CBS for this. And they get money from ESPN from this. They wanted to include all of them, so they, that's what they're doing. And it's tough on the viewers. Surely they have an obligation to promote the game also. We want new people to play the game. and that's, uh, I couldn't recommend someone, hey, watch this stream, when they've got to register for three or four different for three different things. Well, and pay, and pay for them. And then they, there's the other problem that they, they, in previous years, they actually were restricting the ability to read the updates unless you logged in through some form of social media, which yeah, was they, ridiculous. And they, they did away yeah, with they that. Did yes, yeah. They yeah. did away with it, but and there were ways yeah. around it if you were technical enough. But but boy, that was crazy. And I, I asked Seth Polanski myself, I said, this is crazy. I said, do you understand there's a lot of casual fans of poker who are never going to play, but they, they, they want to watch and they're, they're interested in it. And it's like relatives and friends of people who do play. And it's very exciting for these people to have their friends and family watching them and they, their results. And they can't with this stuff blocked. Why would you do that? And I wasn't getting a satisfying answer to that, and then they this basically what the reason they did that is WSOP.com was losing money, and they found this as a way to try to uh, collect information for marketing so so they could make up for it, and they, they didn't realize that by doing that they were hurting their product because fans of it couldn't access it anymore. And I said you should really try to avoid the situation where people who want to watch World Series results, whether in online descriptions or actually watching streams and broadcasts of it, you shouldn't make it harder for people to do this. And I, I really think it'd be better if they just broadcast it all for free, but if they must have a premium service, make it something that's simple, reasonably priced, and only one service, not two. And and the, the whole thing's become a convoluted mess, and it doesn't surprise me with Caesars in charge. They're, they're well known for doing that. Yeah. I don't, I don't mind paying the $10 a month for Poker Go. But I want, I want to be able to watch it all the way through. That's what people are saying. That, that's what that's a lot of people, right? That's, yeah. That's what a lot of people are saying. It's not the ten dollars. They'll, they'll they'll throw the ten dollars a month down. That's not the end of the world. But they they want to just pay it and then forget about it and just turn it on whenever they want and watch poker. They don't want all this nonsense with tracking it down or having some second premium service they have to use. They they just want to be able to watch it on there and be done. Yeah, fantastic. And you uh, you I, can I, you can get thirty World Series a couple of years ago. What was that, uh, Trader Risky? Sorry, sorry. I was just going to say, if you sign up for that CBS service, we don't know if access in Australia, but you can, if you just Google CBS All Access promo code, you can get 30 days free, and so at least you can watch yeah, it. Yeah, I have done that. I can't even find it. <laughs> I can't even find it in Australia. Oh, yeah. It's a nightmare. Yeah. But, oh, uh, great show, guys. Um I, I just saw you walking around the Rio last year in your hat and Googled it, and that's how I found your show. And oh, really? So, wow. So I, you're on, I listen. Wow. So the hat actually did some people. Someone just asked me that. Like, has has anyone seen the hat and, and started listening to the show? And I said, I don't know. Maybe I'm wearing it for nothing. I Definitely. guess we got one. We got one. That's the only way. That's the only way, <laughs> that's the only way I saw. 
but I definitely am a fan of the show. I listen to podcasts all the time, but I, I love it when you guys come on. So keep up the great work. Thank you. No, thank you. Wow. Man. Thank you. No worries. Bye-bye. Bye. Ian Druff, I thought, I thought that uh, – so was the CBS I, – I got the impression that the CBS deal was done through Poker Go, but I guess you're saying that – No, it was two separate things. saying that they sold it directly. Yeah, like like there, there, I know that I don't know how you buy it, but I know there was two separate subscriptions you needed, and this really got people mad because they, they no, I, no, I know you do, but I'm saying that I thought that the WSOP did the deal with Poker Go, you have it all, and then CBS went to Poker Go and said we want this piece of it. Maybe I don't know how they, I, I don't know how it yeah. came to be. It's possible it came to be that way. I didn't follow that part, but uh, the end result for the player is the same. Okay. Uh, by the way, the reason people are people are wondering why the the trader Ruski doesn't sound the best here, and some of the callers don't sound the best, it's because of the Rio Internet. Because what I've told you guys before that me broadcasting to the show is fine because it's going the upward direction. The down direction is where I'm receiving anything like phone calls. So any voice that has to come to me can uh, be slowed down by the bad internet here. Nothing we can do. It's it's on this end, but that's what we've got. Uh, disposition is asking in chat how many chips do I have? I have 300k coming into tomorrow. Average is about like 182. So uh, about the size of the field. So the the 2010 year where I got 88th, it was the second biggest field, though a distant second, 73.19 compared to 87.73 being the record. And for years that stood. For years those were the number one and two fields. However, they've done a very good job at growing the World Series. For all my criticisms of Caesars, they have done a better and better job each year with marketing. That's something they've never been bad at. <laughs> marketing, they've been great. So even with poker getting older and poker shrinking, the World Series has been growing. Now, some of the growth has been artificial. They've added more events than they've had before. They have a lot more smaller buy-in events, so a lot more people show up because they couldn't play before if they couldn't afford it. So you, you can't totally compare this year to other years and say, oh, they had this many people played this year compared to last year, it's growing. You can't say that because of the different events and the small buy-in events that they've been introducing. But, look, the main event is the same $10,000 that's been for a long time. Yes, there's inflation, but aside from that, it's the same $10,000, and yet it's growing again. The main event got uh, 7,221 people in uh, 2017. It got, uh, let's go back to 2016. 2016, the main event got uh, 67.37, so it increased by 500 from 16 to 17. The 2018 version, I believe, was the new second place. That was uh, 78.74. It was the new second place. And then this year is already over that and uh, was at 8,200-something before today's late buy-in. So at the very minimum, it's going to be 8,200-something. I have to imagine it broke over. Oh, so so I, I have the final number. There is some question of whether today would push it over, whether the late regs today would push it over the 8,773. I didn't think so. It had to get about 500, but couldn't be sure. Final results. For the number of entrants to the 2019 main event, 
of the World Series of Poker. 85-69. Just short, just short of the 87-73 that played in 2006. I didn't think that record would ever be broken, but it looks like maybe in 2020 it will. Interesting. The Day 1C set a record with 48-79 entrance. That was the biggest single-day main event ever. The reason that was bigger than any single day in 2006 was because they had four starting days then. So yeah, it's a bit artificial because it's three starting days versus four, but that was the biggest day one ever for the main event of single day ones at 4879, almost 5,000 people. Well more than half of the people who played the event played on day 1C. That's interesting. I, I told you what I think about day 1C, but I guess most people disagree. What is making it grow like this? Definitely not online anymore. Definitely not because poker is growing, because it's not. Definitely not because we're having a influx of young players, because we're not. It's definitely getting older. In fact, when I sat down with those wrecks at the beginning on day 1B, I was the youngest one at the table for a few hours. I think the one to finally break that was uh, Aaron Mermelstein, who's like in his late 20s. But prior to that, I was the youngest one at the table. <laughs> Imagine that. That also happened to the Mixed Omaha at one point. I was the youngest at the table. So poker's aging. We're not getting many guys in their 20s anymore, especially early 20s. And the game is really comprised now of people who are old enough to have the money to play or those who have been in poker for a long time and have just aged into not being one of the young people anymore. I was never one of the young people in poker. I started in my uh, late 20s. I guess I was kind of young at that point. But uh, when I won my bracelet, I was 33 in 2005. I'm now 47. Then honestly, I'm kind of like average age in poker right now. Online poker, I'm old still, but uh, I was old in online poker 15 years ago. And online poker has uh, declined a lot in the U.S., as you guys all know. Trader Ruski is actually one of the few online poker players older than me. So this main event, the reason it did well is because of the marketing. They've just been very good at marketing the World Series of Poker. And they, they ran a lot of satellites. And I think the fact that there were these smaller events brought more people who also played the satellites to win. I think just... Uh, in general, with more people coming out here for it, you're going to have certain people who take a shot at it who otherwise wouldn't have bothered to come all the way here for it. So, this is apparently still growing. And this is something that people still want to play, as you can see. I think the future is also good for this event as far as recreational players being in it. Someone asking, is the price of Bitcoin having an effect? No, I don't think so. Maybe a little bit, but I don't think so. Yeah, the Bitcoin went up recently, but I don't think that's what it was. It's been going up every year, regardless of what's happened to Bitcoin. 
I think some of it is the fact that poker is getting older, so people can afford the $10,000 more than, say, 10 years ago when they had to either make it from poker or have the money. So now some of the people who may have wanted to play it 10, 15 years ago but weren't pro players and just didn't have $10,000 to spare to take a shot at it, now they do. Now they've gotten older and they've gotten further in their careers and their savings and they they have more money to to do it. There was not a shortage of recreational players in this event. I'll say that from what I saw. Of course, as you get further in the event, the recreational players fall out and then you've got tougher players to your table. That's why uh, I looked at my day three draw, which I could only see three other players at the moment. The other five will be ones that survive today, which is still ongoing as I speak. So I won't be able to look at that till late at night tonight. But uh, the three players who are are put with me, none of them are are known names. But uh, I looked at their results, and all of them look like they know what they're doing. I'd I'd be surprised if any of the three players who are currently assigned to sit with me on day three are bad, or even semi-bad. So uh, it's going to be a challenge, but uh, it's still a slow event. I've got chips. I can be patient. And I can. I just got to play smart, and hope the cards don't screw me. And uh, you know, I've taken the attitude with this. Of course, I'll be very disappointed if I take coolers and go out and don't make the money. And yeah, that'll be disappointing. Yes, I'll have a little, uh, little uh, depressed feeling as I walk away, as I'm sure you guys would in this spot. But um, you know, as long as I don't cause it by stupid play then I will accept whatever happened. And move forward. How did I miss... I'm I'm looking at the list of 2019 events, and I just... In the corner of my eye, it says Jared Smith actually won a tag team bracelet, which is not the same as winning a bracelet in an event by yourself, but... He, along with two other people, played and won the $1,000 tag team event. Oh, no, they didn't win. They were second. But how, how, they didn't win. They were, they were second. But still, how did I miss that? I, I looked at his results. I didn't see anything. How did, I not, how did I not see this? What must have been a pretty good payout for... I must have missed it. That's funny. I thought he had, like, no, nothing bigger than, like, a four-figure cash. I must have seen that wrong. That was the guy who started off not liking me and liked me by the end. Anyway, uh, getting back to the main event, you got to tip your cap to Caesars for this one. They've marketed the entire World Series very well. It makes them so much money, even though a lot of players have their complaints and their criticisms. Overall, it's a well-liked series. The pros generally like it. The pros show up for this one more than any other series. The bracelet still has prestige. There's not even like... Like, p- people are excited to win bracelets. Even long-time pros, even long-time skeptical pros are excited to win bracelets. Usually the only ones who put down bracelets are the ones who don't have them. <laughs> if you don't have it, you go, oh, you just have to be a luck box to win a bracelet. Big deal. It means nothing. Like The people who say that are the ones who don't have one. But even the more cynical pros who do have one are always excited to have it and excited to compete for it. 
And they've done a great job with the brand, and they've done a great job growing it, and they've done a great job marketing. They've done a great job adding to it. I don't agree with everything they've done. I don't like the fact that they've added events lower than the $1,000 buy-in. I don't like this day two buy-in crap and the late registration crap. I think a lot of that is bullshit, and I think it should it really goes against the spirit of tournaments. So I have my criticisms, believe me. I think there's too much nickel and diming and gouging of players. I think that the dealers aren't always treated the best by the World Series of Poker. But from a business standpoint, from a marketing and business standpoint, they've done a really good job with it. And this is proof. With, the, with poker shrinking everywhere, how this is still growing, it's amazing. Who knows? Maybe next year we'll have 9,000. Especially, I wonder what's going to happen when it goes to the convention center, which they haven't announced yet. But when it goes to the convention center, whether it's in 2020 or 2021, will they break 10,000? Because at that point, it'll be center strip. It'll be in a nicer venue. There will be easier access to it by foot. Because here, if you don't stay at the Rio, it's a little bit of a pain in the ass. But there, you'll be able to stay in one of many strip hotels, Caesars or otherwise, and just walk over there. I'm really wondering if this is going to even increase the field more. We will see. Do you think the 50th anniversary had anything to do with it? No, I don't think that much. I think the, that the Big 50 they had as a result of what they called the 50th anniversary, which really is just the 50th World Series, not the anniversary, but they that was a big success and that was marketed very well and that was a product of this being the 50th, but I don't think the 50th itself really matters too much to people. I, I didn't hear anyone say they were excited to be here for the 50th one. I just heard from people say, I heard from a lot of people that they tried the Big 50 as their first World Series event ever. That one I did hear. But just because it was a $500 event, it was expected to have such a gigantic field, which it did. Next World Series topic. When you have an old woman at your table, especially an old white woman, usually you do not fear her or suspect that she's going to get very deep. With all this talk about how stereotyping is bad in life, in poker, there's a lot of stereotyping going on. And it just happens from experience, and it's hard not to. You can try to tell yourself it's wrong to think this way, or you can't just judge someone by their age or their race or uh, their gender. But from your experience in playing thousands of players' lifetime, you... Uh, you can't ignore what your mind is telling you, especially when money's at stake. And one thing that most people have noticed over time is that old people tend to be not very good at poker. Even if they once were a while ago, that the, the people like over 70 are not a force at the table, aside from a few of them who, have still, uh, who are still good at poker and have maintained the ability to play well. Usually when you see someone who's over 70, they are one of the weaker players at the table. This is especially true if the person's over 70 and white. And this is especially true if they're over 70 and female. And you don't know them. Again, I'm not talking about older people who've been in poker forever. I'm talking about older people that you really don't recognize. 
But an older female poker player who you don't recognize is is that one you're really pretty certain before you even see her play a hand that she's not going to be very good. And I know I think that, and just about every time I'm right. Once in a while I'm wrong. Usually I'm right. And usually these players don't bluff. Usually if they're... uh, And if they do bluff, it's kind of like weird and random spots. But you usually have to worry a lot if they're putting a lot of chips in against you. But you don't have to worry that uh, they don't check raise very much. They usually just bet when they have it and uh, they limp a lot and you can raise them and they'll check call down unless they've got something really big and then they raise you and then you know you're probably in trouble. And uh, for the most part, they're pretty easy to play. These older females. And when I say older females, I, I mean any female that you don't know that is over 50, especially over 60. There's exceptions. I'm not saying that there aren't. I think over 50 is going too far. I think I'd say like over over 55. That's that's right. Kind of draw the line as far as we can usually pretty reliably say that. Especially if they're white females over 55, usually you can say that. Occasionally you're wrong, but usually not. Usually it's safe to assume that until proven otherwise. Whereas Younger players tend to be a lot more scary. If there's a random guy sitting at my table, I'd much rather to see a random guy my age sitting at the table than a random guy who's 26. The random guy who's 26 is going to initially scare me until I watch how he plays. And sometimes sometimes the guy sits down and he looks like he's going to be good. Some young guy he looks like he's going to be good and he actually sucks. I've had that too. But if you just point out two random people and say, would you rather this 26-year-old guy you don't know or this 46-year-old guy you don't know sit at your table? I would choose the the, the 46-year-old guy, for sure. But with even older people, you really start to stereotype them as not being very good. And for that reason, it's pretty amazing that a 71-year-old woman named Sue Faber won a bracelet... At an open event, meaning it was not a female event, it was not the women's event, it was not an old, it was not a seniors event or super seniors event. This was an event that anyone could enter, called an open event. The $500 Salute to Warriors No Limit Hold'em, which was a bracelet event. It was called that because they were raising money for charity. Some portion of the prize pool was going to go to uh, charity for wounded warriors, I believe. The $500 Salute to Warriors event with 1,723 people entering was won by Susan Faber, who is 71 years old, a white 71-year-old female. You may say, well, maybe Susan Faber is just a professional poker player who happens to be old and female. Maybe that's what it is. No. Prior to this, Susan Faber had never cashed anything more than $14,953 when she finished 18th at a circuit event in 2015. 
Other than that, she's had a bunch of three- and four-figure caches. Mostly enters cheaper circuit events for like 250 bucks. Every once in a while enters a, uh, a main circuit event for like 1675 This one was a $500 bracelet event. Got a fairly big field of 1,700 or so people. Open event. Uh, I don't know the structure, but since it's a World Series event, the structure couldn't have been bad, so you can't even say she just luck boxed into it because the structure is terrible and you just got to catch cards. I mean, that's some of it. That's some of it every tournament. But uh, at the, at, there's no World Series event where the structure is so bad that it just becomes completely a card-catching contest, as as what happens at some smaller tournaments. Uh, the World Series of Poker, they, they never have one like that for a bracelet event. But she ended up winning. $121,000. By far the biggest cash in her poker career. Now, she's had a lot of little caches between uh, 2015 and now. She's been playing a lot of poker. I'm assuming she's probably retired. And she's probably become fairly good at it. So between that and some luck, she ended up defying the stereotype and winning a bracelet. She has become the oldest female to win a bracelet at an open event. And that might stand for a long time. I think it's going to be a long time till another female of that age or older wins a bracelet at an open event. So that's a pretty good accomplishment. In fact, that's a good accomplishment for anyone who's 71, male or female. It is harder to win these tournaments at that age. It's harder to play these tournaments at that age. Once you are over 70, you're, you're facing some hurdles that you didn't have before when you were younger. Number one, the stamina thing. You have to sit there for a long time and be able to physically take it and mentally take it. You've got to sit and concentrate for that many hours and be able to sit there without, uh, you know, you walk around during breaks, but that's it. You have to be at the table. Um, you have to be able to play through any kind of uh, aches and pains and health problems you might have, any fatigue you might have. People just get tired as they get older. It's a fact that people over 70, not all, but many, have to start taking naps during the day just because they're older and they have less energy. So if you need that and, and you're playing poker tournaments, that's not very good. Uh, th- these tournaments run very late at night, which most older people don't stay up that late and can't adjust their sleeping schedule as easily. There is the mental sharpness thing. And some people, they believe it's just one of two things. It's either you're totally mentally sharp and could take care of yourself in your old age, or you're a vegetable and you need to be at a home and be taken care of by somebody. There's a lot in between that. There are many older people, I'm talking about those over 70, who are very sharp when you talk to them, and they live very independently, and they they don't need anybody's assistance, but they are not as mentally sharp as they were when they were younger. And mental sharpness is important to have in poker 
And in fact, in the days where I don't play poker as well, it's because those days I am not as mentally sharp as I may have been other days. But you take someone who's older and, and they're much more likely to have the situation where they're not as sharp and don't see things as clearly and don't think as quickly as or as logically as they did when they were younger. So people, older people who otherwise are completely competent in life and can live independently and they're, they're not even close to being at a point where they need to be taken care of, that doesn't mean that they're mentally sharp enough to succeed in poker. And that's why you see so few people of that age at the poker table. All these reasons. And that's why when you do see them, often they're not very good. Again, all these reasons. These are people who may have been good 20 years ago. So that's, that's going to be hard to do. That's going to be hard to beat. And if, if you can play poker at a high level and you're over 70, then my hat's off to you because it's not easy to do. For many reasons, for physical and mental reasons. I, I cited the example recently of uh, Vin Scully, the famous baseball announcer who announced for the Dodgers for 65 years, who's now retired. He's now uh, 91 years old, still alive, but only retired recently. But I cited him as an example where in the final like 15 years he was broadcasting, even like the final 20 years, he wasn't quite as sharp as he was when he was younger. And he still did a great job, and I still regarded him as the best announcer in baseball. But he would start to make more mistakes as the years wore on. There'd be a, a, a player he's talking about, and he'd keep calling him by his father's name who played 25 years ago. And not just once, like he'd keep calling him that name over and over. And you, you'd see little things like that happening that didn't used to happen with him. But yet, if you were to have a conversation with Vince Scully, I bet even today when he's 91, uh, he, he would be completely coherent. And I know physically, I've, I've seen him, like he doesn't walk very well now. I've seen he needs help walking. It, it, it makes sense. I mean, it's, it's great to even be still alive at 91. But physically, he's not looking that great. But uh, you know, mentally, last I saw, he's fine. And I bet talking to him, you wouldn't get an idea that he's senile or anything. But uh, is he as sharp as he was when he was 50? No, he's not. Even when he was working 15 years ago, even when he was working five years ago, you know, like there, there were differences that you noticed over the years that uh, he got less sharp. And this affects you at the poker table. So that's great for a 71-year-old to win. I know 71 is not 81 or 91, but still... Like, how many 71-year-olds do you see winning poker tournaments at all, except for the seniors' events? Male or female. So that's great that she was able to do that. And uh, this doesn't apply to everybody. There, there are some older people who just manage to keep their faculties completely and uh, are, are basically the same person, just with an older body. Maybe physically worse, but mentally they're the same person as they were when they were 40 or 50. And and that's great if that's the case. But uh, 
it's uh, it's not most people. I'm actually fortunate. My my parents, who are in their mid seventies, are actually doing very well in that way. They really haven't really. Uh, I, I haven't seen any kind of noticeable decline in their uh, mental abilities. There's been physical things that have changed that uh, are for the worse, but uh, um, even there they're doing pretty well. But uh, mentally, they'll just about. Uh, where they always were. So that's, uh, that might be a good sign for me too. For the future. But pretty big accomplishment. And no one was talking about it because all that crazy stuff was going on at the main event at the same time. The earthquakes and everything else. So there, there wasn't time to talk about a 71 year old female winning an open event. That just wasn't, uh, wasn't interesting compared to a guy whipping out his dick at the main event and throwing his shoes and someone grabbing someone's stack and getting arrested, like the, the earthquakes, that's, that's, that all drowned it out. But I wanted to mention it. Something else I wanted to mention but not spend very much time on. Liv Bori got knocked out by her boyfriend, Igor Kurganov. They actually won a bracelet together at a tag team event. I think it was last year. There was some criticism that uh, Igor played a lot more than she did. And that she kind of just rode his back to get to the bracelet. But putting that aside. uh, She was at a table with him. At, At first people were saying, oh, I bet this is collusion. I bet she was dumping chips to him so he would have a double stack to start the day. Of course, it was random they got put together. That was completely random. That was a coincidence. But some were saying, oh, maybe she did this on purpose. Maybe she they agreed beforehand that, that one is going to dump to the other. It turns out no, because she was short-stacked when this happened, and the hand pretty much played itself. It just happened that they were at the same table, and it happened that it was uh, him that she ended up against when she had a good hand. She had ace-jack of hearts, and the flop had two hearts on it. So the chips were going to get in. She was short-stacked when all this happened. So as I said, this was going to happen no matter what. This is not the first time that a couple had it where one busted the other. In 2018... Tim Riley knocked out his wife named uh, Ness Riley from a World Series of Poker Circuit main event. They were in the money at that point. Then last year, there was the controversy with Kristen Bicknell and uh, Alex Foxen, Alex Foxen, who finished first and second in a Venetian deep stack championship event where there was complaints from the guy who finished third that they were colluding, or at the very least soft playing, and I have to say the evidence seemed to point to that. And we talked about that before on this show. In fact, I I ended up sitting next to the guy at the World Series after this happened and talked to him, and uh, he reiterated that he thought that was the case. This one, there's nothing shady, as I mentioned. It was a pretty standard hand. But what really got a lot of attention 
It has, would you believe, uh, 3,948 likes on Twitter, which for a poker tweet is huge. 3,948 likes from Liv Boree, who tweeted, No one's busting on anyone tonight, that's for sure. Actually, the exact quote is, No one's busting on anyone tonight, that's for damn sure. It's with a sexual... Implications here. That's supposed to be. That's what's funny about it. And some people are like, "Oh wow, she got him." Oh, I feel so bad for Igor. He's going to be on the couch tonight. Uh, I'm thinking this is so stupid. Um, this is so being played up, like she's mad about it. This is so being played up, like this is some kind of problem, or that. Uh, he really took a chance by busting his girlfriend out of the main, you know, like, no, she's not mad about it. She wasn't withholding sex from him that night. Maybe if she wasn't in the mood to have sex because she was pissed she was out of the main, but that that probably would have happened whether he busted her or not. In fact, I bet she's probably happy that he got the chips rather than some stranger. And the hand was standard. And she was short stacked. So the person to actually bust her when she was short stacked, it doesn't matter. Like I, I have to say, I'm never bitter towards the person busting me when I'm short stacked and we just get it in an obvious spot. I'm disappointed, but I, I go, oh, fucking asshole, I got my chips. I, I, I go, okay, well, you know, I went all in. He, I was short stacked. He had a, a hand to call me. He called me. He won the hand. That's it. Goodbye. Like, that's it. I, I'm never mad or bitter about it at all. And I, I doubt she would be here. But yeah, that's typical Liv Bory. She loves to get attention like this. She loves attention. She loves to make it look like that you know she's the bitch who's going to withhold sex from him because he, he busted her for the main event, and everyone gets a laugh and raises their eyebrows about this. This this is just her. She likes that whole image. We had or have a listener to this show. Named Kevin McPhee. He's a pro player. He wants. Approached me in the parking lot of the Rio and told me he listens and he enjoys the show. This is years ago, so I don't know if he's still around. But I mean, he's still around in poker. I don't know if he listens to the show still. He went out with Liv Boree and they had some kind of crappy ending. She left him and some, something happened where, where he was really bitter about it. And uh, I forgot the exact story, but I remember thinking when I heard the story that, number one, I believed it. And number two, yeah, it was kind of crappy. So I, I think that... Uh, Liv Bory is a lot more, as I say, like opportunistic than people realize. I'll just say that. I don't know her. I know who she is. I don't know her personally. I don't know anyone well enough to give me stories about her that I can 100% believe. So I don't want to repeat gossip. I don't even remember the gossip anymore, specifically. It wasn't that important to me. But I remember my reaction to it when I heard it, and it just seems like such a typical thing she would write to, like no one's busting on anyone tonight. That's for damn sure. Like I know it's kind of a joke, but that's just like so her to tweet, and and but people really believe it. People really think that she's mad about it. There's no chance. There's no chance she's mad about it. Maybe Magic out of the event, not mad at him. And. When you get put at the same table as the person you're dating, and there's a chance you're going to play hands against each other, and in fact you should play hands against each other normally as if you were not dating. You should not soft play 
or you were engaging in collusion. You were cheating. So you should be playing the person as you would normally play them. Now, it's fine to play them differently because you're scared of them, like that you don't want to... Uh, you don't want them trapping you, or you know, you'd rather take your shots against easier people at the table. I do that too. I'll be, I'll be there, and I'll think, you know, rather than push this marginal spot against the the good pro, maybe I should uh, go easier on this one, keep it a smaller pot, and, and and wait until I play against fish, where I'm a lot more sure of myself of where uh, where I am in the hand. I'll do that, but not because I'm trying to collude, but because I'm trying to come up with the best strategy to win. So it's fine if she knows Igor is a really good player and plays him differently for that reason. But she should play him the same way she'd play any other really good player. But none of that was happening here. That doesn't matter anyway. This was... I don't know what led up to her being short. It was, it was the fact that he busted her that was the news. But like, I didn't even favor that tweet. I just, I just kind of think it's stupid. I, I I don't like tweets like that. I think it's just attention whoring. On to the final topic of the World Series, and this one is not going to be a pleasant topic. This is not going to be a feel-good topic. Poker player Kevin Racks, who can be found on Twitter at Kevin Racks Poker. R-A-C-K-S, Kevin Racks Poker. He played the main event. And it's going to be his last main event. In fact, he's not going to be alive too much longer after the main event. He was given two months to live in May in late May, after his leg was amputated, they they actually amputated his leg in April of this year. In 2017, he was diagnosed with sarcoma, which is a rare form of cancer, but it actually touched my life somewhat because I have a relative who died of sarcoma. Sarcoma is also what killed Chad Brown. The cause of sarcoma is unknown. It's not the type of cancer you get from some sort of bad behavior like smoking or even one that's suspected about having to do with uh, exposure to chemicals. This this is something unknown where you just get it. The only suspicion of the cause of sarcoma is that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it can be traced back to blunt, for, blunt force trauma against a certain part of your body. I, I don't mean if you just bang your, your hand against the wall. I mean some kind of Injury you get where you fall and hit hit something hard and get a big, a huge black and blue mark, something like that. Rarely, but it happens, it seems that sarcoma follows it. That's the only clue they have to the cause of sarcoma. Not that it can be pre- prevented, but that's the only clue they have as to why it happens. The relative of mine suffered a very bad fall on ice in Alabama on a very cold night. And the sarcoma they had started in the location where they had that injury. So I think there's a lot to that theory. And I watched that person have a very bad end, as I'm sure a lot of you have seen of people who've died of cancer. It was a a close relative, too. 
wasn't immediate family. wasn't my brother, sister, or parents, but it was it was someone close. So, uh, sarcoma is not well known very. It's not very well known because it's rare. I know it because of the incident in my family. He ran especially bad to have been diagnosed with sarcoma at a young age. I believe he's like 31 or somewhere around there. I don't have his exact age, but this is this is not an older guy. He's either late 20s, early 30s, something at a terrible age to be getting a terminal disease. At an age you'd never expect that you'd be facing terminal cancer. I mean, if I if I was facing terminal cancer now, it would be terrible luck. But but imagine you know, 15 years earlier, 15 to 20 years earlier, earlier than my age right now, it'd be really horrible. So that's that's what. And how long ago did he get diagnosed, Jeff? That's right. His name is actually Kevin Roster, not Kevin Rax. Kevin Rax is his name on uh, on Twitter. Um, he, he got diagnosed in, in 2017, and then they amputated his leg in April 2019, and told him in May of 2019 that he has uh, anywhere from a few weeks to two months to live. So he decided in June that he was going to play the main event, which was not going to be easy because it's not like he was going to be in the prime of health and just die one day. He was rapidly deteriorating as the cancer was spreading throughout his body. And the doctor did say that it it was possible that uh, he could live as much as four months, but it wasn't that likely. So he decided that rather than sit at home and just accept the fact that he's two months away from dying at a young age, that he wanted to do something that he always wanted to do. And that was play the World Series of Poker main event. Clearly winning anything there was not going to do him much good. But he wanted to play. And he decided that he's going to come out and try to do it, even in very poor health. Now, at some point, the health can get so poor that you just can't physically sit there and do it. The cancer that he has right now, it's progressed to the point to where it's in a chamber that houses the lung and the heart. And as soon as it uh, attacks his heart, which is going to happen very soon. He's going to die. In fact, it's uh, he will probably die instantly as soon as it gets to his heart. So he's... Uh, it's not certain when this is going to happen, but it, it, the doctor said it'd be very surprised if less than... Uh, if, if more than four months could pass, that he would still be alive. And uh, it's kind of projected to around two months at the time in May. Now we're in early July. And he decided to go forth and play the World Series. Surprisingly, despite his condition, he did pretty well for some time. And he got as high as uh, 220K from the starting 60. Then he went to dinner last night, the dinner break, and that's when the problem started. Uh, his oxygen level 
because this affects his lungs too. The oxygen level went uh, to a bad level. It was too low. And he had some nurse with him. The nurse said, you can't go back down there. Your, your oxygen level is too low. You're not going to be able to play. And he said, I've got to do it. I don't care if my oxygen level is too low. I'm going to do it. So he went down and forced himself to play. And uh, I think he had 210000 at dinner. He went down and forced himself to play, and it, it didn't go well, as you might guess, because he was uh, in very, very bad condition, and he busted. So he did actually bust normally. He didn't abandon his stack. He was told by the nurse to abandon his stack. He was told, you're crazy to go back down there and continue playing with your oxygen level low. But he didn't want to. He wanted to finish it on his terms. Uh, obviously, he wasn't able to play very well once he came down there. Obviously, uh, he was in such terrible shape. I'm sure he uh, could barely concentrate. So uh, he busted. But uh, listen to the tweet he sent at... 11 p.m. last night. This is just after he busted. I'm out of the main. Thanks all for your support. I had an attack upstairs during the dinner break that in spite of my best efforts to use the oxygen machine to bring my blood, blood oxygen back above 80, I couldn't. I'll be leaving back to California tomorrow. I can't breathe. I feel like I let you all down. This is kind of sad. He actually felt like that because of his story that everyone was... was rooting for him so hard to win that, that, that when he had 210k and it was gone by uh, an hour and a half after dinner was over that he felt he let people down which wasn't true at all and everybody tried to tell him no you know, this, this wasn't about whether you win the event this is about the fact that you even were able to play the fact that you wanted to do this you were able to do this you were actually able to run up a stack until your body attacked you and, there, and, and, and you weren't in a state where you could play. In fact, you forced yourself to play when your nurse said you shouldn't. So losing under those circumstances, it's, it's very, 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 very reasonable, as you, I think anyone would say here. So this is, he was being very hard on himself. He was believing that he let everybody down who was cheering for him, and he didn't understand. They were, people were cheering for him because he was playing at all and, and actually was doing well at one point, not, not because he... He uh, failed to cash in it. They they weren't going. Oh man, this guy really let us down. Why do we cheer for him? You know that damn cancer guy. How da- how dare he bust? Like you no, know, everyone was very proud of him for having done this. He said the reason he did it, aside from just not wanting to lay there and die, but he also wanted to bring awareness to the existence of sarcoma. since most people aren't even aware it exists or what it really is. So, I've tweeted to him, very inspiring story. The result of the event doesn't matter. You did what almost no one in your spot would do and managed to get a good stack while doing it. They'll be talking about you for years to come, and it'll all be positive. Trust me on that one, especially. And I really meant that. It's... 
there will be talk about him years from now the, of the guy with terminal cancer with weeks to live who played the main event and actually did well through the middle of day two until his body basically forced him out of it. It wasn't like he did well and then donked it off. And this was someone who had a dangerously low oxygen level and still forced himself to play. And at that point, yeah, he couldn't play well anymore. But okay, I don't think anybody could. He said, to be super extra clear, I busted the main fair and square. I I passed out during the dinner break and had low oxygen levels, decided to try and push through. I need to go home now due to my health. My death is scheduled for within three weeks of now. It's been amazing to be here and meet my heroes. Scheduled meaning from what they can tell of his health. Like it, it seems around three weeks is when he's going to die. But I think I read in the state he lives that he um, that they have a law that goes into effect in August where he can end it. Yeah, but 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 it. it, it I think he won't make it till then. But yeah, that, 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 that's true. That the, the state he lives in is uh, the assisted medical suicide will uh, begin sometime in August. But that's still it's getting close to a month from now. So it's uh, it's less than a month, but it's, it's three and a half weeks from now. So I, I don't know, and I don't know what date in August. I don't know if it's August first, but yeah, I, I I don't know what he'll do at that point. I asked him if he wanted to come on this show. I asked him privately. And I told him, of course, I understand if he can't or doesn't want to. And he said he's he's not sure. Uh, he'll see how he feels later on. He, he's not going to come on today's show, but he'll see later on how he feels. And uh, he also might want to write a statement for me to read on the show. And I said I'd be happy to do that, too. Uh, he, he wrote, uh, wish I could have st- stayed upstairs and let them bag me. Tried to play poker with a... Trying to play poker with a collapsing lung was stupid. Thank you to Greg Merson for the shot. I think I wonder if Greg Merson bought him in. Maybe that's what it was. Uh, wish my health would have held through the main. I really could have done something with it. So ends the sarcoma awareness tour. So I, I think what he's regretting here is that he didn't just let the, let himself blind off for the final uh, levels of the night, which was about two hours, and it was a very weird thing we ended with. I've never done this before. We actually played two hours and 20-something minutes without a break. We were we were breaking, like, every hour, like, way, way too many breaks, and then at the end, there's too few breaks. At the end, where we come back from dinner, and they're like, oh, yeah, you're just going to play through the last two hours, 20-something minutes. So we, we did. So that's that's what he would have blinded out. He, he would have still had plenty of chips. Uh, it, was, it was 5K per round. So even even assuming forty hands per hour, yeah. Let's say let's say let's say how many rounds this would have been, uh, uh, like a hundred. So it probably would have been about fifty k. He lost off a stack from not coming back, so he would have come back with like one sixty or so, which yeah, he would have come back near average. But the, the the flaw in all this, though, and this is the reason he can't regret it, is that it's not like he'd be fine on day three. Like there's a long way to go. He may he may have problems on day three too. So yes, if he knew he was going to come back down and bust, then it would have been better to blind it off. But you know, it's not like he knows he's going to be better. It's not like you have a, um, a stomach virus and you go, okay, I bet it'll be a lot better by tomorrow. This is uh, this is sarcoma. So that's not going to get better. He may have little periods where he gets better and worse, but there's it may be you know it could have been even worse the following day. So I think that's what he's feeling guilty about, that he came down and tried to 
play the last two hours and 20 whatever minutes when his oxygen level is low and then probably feels he didn't play well and, and, and lost all his chips. But he's got to realize this is, one, the the fact that he was playing was much much bigger of a story here than whether he cashed or not. And, and number two, that this was going to be a real struggle to be successful here in such a long event in that type of, in that state of health. So if, uh, when you go play under these circumstances and this happens to your body and this affects how you play and you bust, you can't feel bad. So I think he understands now, like tons of people wrote to him that, uh, there's nothing to feel like he let anyone down. I, I hope he understands. I hope he realizes that this will be seen as a positive thing and that uh, even going as far as he did will be viewed as a success and uh, he got to do with what he got to do what he wanted as a pretty much a final trip to take before he dies and it shows you how bad some people do run in life where at a young age you can get something like that and you look around watching all the other people who live unhealthy lifestyles and take all kinds of stupid risks and they're still alive much older than you are and here you just had the unfortunate luck of getting sarcoma at a very young age that's uh, definitely not fair at all and I just I feel so bad for the guy, but I'm glad he got to come out here and do that. And I hope his final memory of, of playing at the World Series is positive. Finally, I want to talk about earthquakes. Now that we're done with the poker talk, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the earthquakes the ones that just happened and about earthquakes in general, especially by people who do not live in areas where they occur much, so that people don't really put much effort into learning about them since they are not, not really affected by them, which is understandable. Like I, I don't learn very much about tornadoes since I don't ever live in a place which can be hit by a tornado. Hurricanes, uh, yeah, same thing. Like I don't ever, I don't live in an area where hurricanes can happen. I follow the ones that occur, but it's different when you know it's threatening where you are. Earthquakes I've always had to deal with. And everybody at the World Series main event got to experience an earthquake. Two earthquakes, actually, if they were here for July 4th. And there's been some misconceptions about earthquakes or wrong assumptions or wrong beliefs that I'd like to clear up for people. There may be some things you don't know, especially about uh, Southern California and Southern Nevada earthquakes specifically. Let me so let me uh, let me get to this here. Here's some facts of uh, regarding the recent earthquakes. Number one, these, as I said earlier, these were not Los Angeles quakes. They were based near Ridgecrest, California, more specifically uh, close to the Searles Valley. They were northeast of Ridgecrest. 
The closest major city to the epicenter was Las Vegas, about 125 miles away by flight. Los Angeles, near the same distance, but a little bit farther, about 150. So the closest major city to these earthquakes was Las Vegas, not L.A. Both major cities were far enough away to where major damage wasn't that likely. It's just too far. Once you get more than 100 miles from the epicenter, the chance of damage is much, much lower. If it feels like a long time since you've been in a Southern California or Southern Nevada quake, you're not imagining it. The last quake in Southern California above a 5.5 magnitude was the Hector Mines quake in southeastern California in 1999, 20 years ago. You probably don't remember the Hector Mines quake because it was in such a remote area that it was not felt by most people. To get to the last above 5.5 magnitude quake that was felt by Los Angeles or any kind of population center in Southern California or Southern Nevada, I'm not talking about Northern California or Nevada right now. You'd have to go all the way back to 1994, January 94. The Northridge earthquake, a 6.7, 25 and a half years ago. So it's been 25 and a half years since people in Los Angeles felt any kind of substantial quake. 25 and a half years. That means somebody who is 30, may not, who grew up in L.A. and never left L.A., may not even remember ever being in any kind of substantial quake. And when I say substantial, I don't mean one that kills tons of people or does a ton of damage. I mean any kind of quake that's scary with a lot of shaking. Someone who's 30, who lived in L.A. all their lives, may not even remember ever being in one. That's how long it's been. 25 and a half years. However, in the period from July 1986 through January 94, there were 11 large quakes in Southern California. 11. Here we had one from the, the next 25 and a half years, where, uh, and, and the one was, was so remote that no one felt it. And zero in the last 20 years. But in that seven and a half year period preceding it, there were 11. These included the Palm Springs quake of 1986, a 6.0, the Oceanside quake, 5.8, also in 86, the Whittier quake, 5.9, in 1987. The Superstition Hills and Elmore Ranch quake, it's uh, more in the uh, San Diego area, that was, uh, there are two separate quakes, 6.1 and 6.5, one shortly after the other, I think like a few days apart, in 1987. The Upland quake in 5.7 in 1990. The Sierra Madre quake, 5.6 in 1991. The Joshua Tree quake, that's kind of by Palm Springs, 6.3 in 1992. The Landers and Big Bear quakes separated by a few days, in also in 92, 7.3 and 6.5. And then the Northridge one, the most damaging one, because of occurring actually right in Los Angeles, 6.7 in 1994. Those were the 11 quakes, all in that seven and a half year period, and then it went quiet for 25 and a half years. There is a fair chance that these two quakes that just occurred in the Ridgecrest area might be the start of a new streak of what occurred in the mid-80s and early 90s. 
this may be a sign that quakes are about to start up again. It also may not, but there's uh, there's now a greater chance that we will start having more quakes now that we have seen these. These were actually uh, two separate quakes, even though one was kind of considered a foreshock, but uh, two separate quakes of a 6.4 and a 7.1, both in the same area. Speaking of that, the 7.1 felt on July 5th was not an aftershock of the first one. In fact, it was reversed. The other one was something fairly rare called a foreshock, where a smaller quake precedes a bigger one that's related to it. The problem is, since you can't see the future, you can't tell if a quake is a foreshock. You have to find that out later. You find out the bad news later when you think the worst is behind you. Aftershocks are very common. Once a quake of six point something or higher occurs, it's almost a certainty that an aftershock of five point higher is going to occur in the near future. Near future meaning within the next week. There are also often thousands of smaller aftershocks, most of which can't be felt, that occur as a result of the original quake. But occasionally, not often, but occasionally, the first big quake is actually a foreshock of a bigger one to come. But that usually happens within a week of the first quake. And the more time that passes from the first quake, the less likely it is that that was a foreshock. This one actually was. The 6.4 that occurred on the 4th of July that woke me up just before the main event was a foreshock of the one that occurred the next day in the evening. The foreshock was the 6.4. The main quake was the 7.1. It is still possible that the 7.1 we felt is a second foreshock of an even bigger quake to come. However, the bigger quake would occur in the same area in all likelihood, which is too far from both L.A. and Vegas to do really major damage. However, if it were like an eight-magnitude quake, then it, it could, because it would be that big. The chance of another big quake of seven or higher has gone down substantially because we've gone two full days without another quake, other than smaller aftershocks. The fact that two days have passed is a good sign. If we can get like four or five days in, then it becomes much less likely. The measuring system of the quakes needs to be understood. It's a logarithmic scale. That means that a 6.0 is 10 times as powerful as a 5.0. You would think a 6.0 is only 20% more powerful than a 5.0. No, it is 10 times as powerful as a 5.0, and a 7.0 is 100 times as big as a 5.0. This is why the higher numbered quakes, the sevens, are such a big deal. A seven is ten times the strength of a six, which is already a decent-sized quake. Anything lower than five, you're not going to feel very much, except if you're very close to the epicenter. So if a a 5.3 hits, if you're riding the epicenter, you're going to feel a lot. If you're within a fair distance of the epicenter, you have 200 miles, you'll feel it, but it won't be that terrible. And if it's below 5, unless you're close to the epicenter, it's either going to be very light shaking or nothing at all. Below a 4, you usually don't feel it all, unless you're really close to the epicenter. 
and that is because of this logarithmic scale. I felt the 5.4 aftershock about uh, 20 or about 18 hours after the first quake, and I barely flinched. I could feel that Rio was shaking, but it was much less than before. Much less of a big deal. But that, that 7.1 that followed it, I could tell it was bigger. At first, I'm like, wow, this seems kind of strong for an aftershock. I go, whoa, this isn't an aftershock. <laughs> I jumped up. The What about Northern California? What about Northern California, Northern Nevada? If you're in San Francisco, do you have to worry that uh, you're going to have problems over there now? Is this going to be a start of uh, danger there? Well, you're always in danger in San Francisco. The San Andreas Fault runs right through San Francisco. They had that devastating quake in 1906. They had that bad one in 1989. Unfortunately, San Francisco is always very much in danger of being devastated by earthquakes. But this is not making it any more likely. This quake is not going to affect Northern California or Northern Nevada, unless you're in kind of Northeastern California and, or kind of like Central Eastern California. You, can, you might be able to feel these. Other than that, it's, it's not going to make any quakes in that area any more likely than it was before. Not less likely, but not more likely. So, <clears throat> sorry about that. I sneezed. I couldn't mute it in time. <clears throat> it's something you don't have to worry about in that sense. However, Southern California is more likely now to start having other quakes. This was not the San Andreas Fault, even though the San Andreas Fault is in California. That's what they talk about all the time, the fear that they have with, with big quakes, or the big one that's everyone's worried about occurring at some point. The big one would be something like an 8.0 quake in Los Angeles or San Francisco, something similar to what they had in uh, 1906. But the quake that uh, occurred here was not on the San Andreas Fault. It wasn't even that close to the San Andreas Fault. It was not related. So this was not a San Andreas-related quake. Uh, I guess that's about it. Oh, one more thing. One more important thing. This quake did not relieve the stress of this fault or any other fault. So people who say things like, well, glad we got this one out of the way without anyone getting killed or hurt. I guess that means that uh, the big one's going to be delayed. No. In fact, it may have made it worse. If you notice aftershocks occur... You get thousands of them after a, a big quake, even if you can't feel most of them. So if it was really relieving the stress, then there wouldn't be aftershocks. So when you get a quake, it's actually more likely that other quakes will come, both immediately and in the future. It doesn't make it less likely. So do not believe that anything good came of these quakes occurring. Unless you were the guy who had pocket fives against Andy Frankenberger. Then you can feel good. Okay, so that's about it. 
I'm going to finish this up. And uh, how, by the way, sorry, Jeff. How was how was it in the hotel? Was it like a sway or a jolt or? Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it was a weird feeling. It was a weird feeling. It, it, it was. It was like a sway. It kind of. If I think the building's on rollers because the way it moved was something I've never felt before. Though I've never been in a, in a high rise building before during an earthquake. This is the first time for me. But it, it it did kind of feel like it was uh, moving back and forth rather than the shaking motion you get when you're in a house. So it just felt like it felt like the building kind of moving back and forth rather than than shake 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 shake. And it, you know it was it was unnerving, and it was one of these things like I go okay. I hope the Rio holds up, but if it can't, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and I just have to hope it doesn't. I have to just hope it's okay. And I thought it would probably be okay, but just in case it isn't, there's nothing I can do now. I'm, I'm, there's no way I could get out in time if something was going to happen. So I had to just stand there and wait both times. And the funny thing is, if if the second time was not bigger than the first, then I would have said, okay, the first time was fine, no problem. But because the second time was bigger, then I had to worry all over again. So that's something I don't want to do again. I don't, I don't want to be in a tall building when a quake occurs again. That wasn't fun. There were some people here on... Like the 60th floor, not in this building. There's no 60 floors in this building. But the, some people in these really tall hotels in Vegas were on things like the 60th floor. And for them, it was really scary because it, it seemed to be shaking even more for them. They were not happy. <laughs> David Paredes tweeted that he mentioned to a woman who was on the 60th floor or something really high up that she had a very nice view. And she said, I think she lived in a condo there or something. Anyway, she said that she doesn't even go to the window because she's afraid of heights. And then he made some kind of comment about an earthquake. Like as long as there's, there's nothing to be scared of up here unless there's an earthquake. And he said that, uh, on the same day the first earthquake occurred, before it happened. And he felt weird. I had that experience in the Northridge quake. Where I was I was on a first date, I told a girl that uh, she she took me over to her place and there was this display of plates, of decorative plates there, and I said and she's telling me how much she likes it and how important it is to her, and I said, You better watch out, this thing could go down in an earthquake. If it's that important to you, you should find a way to secure it. She says, oh, no, no, there's been earthquakes before. It's never gone down. I said, well, if there's a big one, it it might. And that was the night of the Northridge quake. Like, that was six hours before the Northridge quake. And I was still there. And I rescued it. I jumped up and I held the thing in place. I don't know why. I should have run out. Instead, I held the thing in place like a nice guy. One plate fell off and broke, but... If it hadn't been for me, all every plate would have broken. That was weird to mention that, and then the biggest earthquake that uh, happened in uh, L.A. history centered there, 
at least since it has been built up, occurred six hours later. So there's still a chance there'll be an earthquake tomorrow while I'm playing the, uh, day three of the main event. Who knows? I do still wonder the rule if people run out. Like, what happens? Do people... Do they only kill the hands of the people who leave? Or what happens? I don't know. I should Maybe this is something to find out right now. <laughs> this is not normally something you'd ask. Yeah, you, you should tweet at them. Yeah, I should tweet at them. What, what, are, the, what are the rules about, earthqu- about leaving during earthquakes? If you run out during earthquakes, does play pause or, or is your hand dead? Yeah, I think they should just say if there's an earthquake, it pauses all clear. Yeah, I, I think that would be a good rule. Okay, let me see if the chat room has anything to say. That would get them so much publicity, too, if it came out and made, like, a big statement or rule about it. <laughs> it might scare people. Great. It'd be on every newscast, you know? But people might scare them. They might be going, wait, why are they making earthquake rules at the World Series? Maybe we better not come there. Maybe we better stay away. Maybe, maybe. Okay, so let me take a look at the chat room. Then I'll be done. Then I'll just... Hope that I run well tomorrow. I just hope. Nah, nothing of value to comment on in the chat room. So I think we're done. And you got decent ratings tonight. I wasn't sure about that since it was kind of just uh, thrown to I wouldn't say the last minute, but we I, I announced it uh, yesterday that we'd be having a show today. There will be no show for the remainder of the World Series, though I'll talk about the World Series in the next show, but... There will be no show for as long as I stay in the World Series because there's not a break anymore. It's day three, four, five, six, seven, eight, whatever, until I am out, which hopefully is uh, very late in the whole process. That's that's what I will say here. What time do you start tomorrow, Jeff? Start at 11 a.m. tomorrow. You can follow on at Dandruff Poker to see my tweets. You can also take a look at the thread of uh, the main event on the World Series of Poker 2019 forum of Poker Fraud Alert. You can see a thread which not only saves all the tweets that I do with the PFA73 hashtag. Actually, anybody who tweets the PFA73 hashtag will get in there. And I also will make posts there after I complete each day with kind of a recap of the day and... uh, also a discussion of the people sitting with me the following day once they are announced. So I still have to look after today is over who's going to be assigned to me. They may not have that done in time before I go to sleep. Otherwise, I'll just have to find it out when I'm there. Yeah, but the next time you hear me on this show, I will be telling you how I did in the main event. I have the, the great unknown in front of me. And much has to do with the cards. You know, Even if I make a slightly different decision such as how long I take to fold or whether I play a hand or don't. Even if that hand itself is very inconsequential, it will change the order of the cards and change everything that's to come. So every decision causes a change in the future in poker. It really does. You can say that for anything, but in poker it's especially true because it has to do with cards that are dealt. And there's so many different ways this can go. we got to play a full day three. I could 
barely limp into the money. I could have a disappointing bust out before the money. Or I could run really deep like I did nine years ago. We will see. I hope you follow it. And hopefully it goes well. Either way, I'll be back here in about a week or so. Don't have an exact date yet, but we will have a show sometime next week. That is all for tonight. Thank you for being here, Trader Ruski. And shalom. <laughs>